Really excited today to have our first guest from America. Not just from America, though, from the Gambino crime family. And a question that a lot of people are wondering that's been sent in about this is to ask John, Elite, what do you think of the representation of mafia in movies and like Netflix versus the real deal? Well, you know, a couple of times over the years, people ask me the question on a private level between friends and guys from the street. And, you know, some of my friends and gangsters are here in the UK. So, you know, we maintain long relationships. I think those relationships as friends is uh, that's the, uh, the close knit for, for any kind of organization to, to be loyal to each other. But when you get into organizations like I was involved, I think there is no uh, loyalty. There's just treachery. So what's your favorite gangster movie? Uh, you know, I've been watching, you know, I'm a, a big guy that comes to your country now a lot. I've been watching Peaky Blinders a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, That's my parents' favorite, the Peaky. Shel- <laughs> the Shelby family. And, you yeah. know, they talk about my friend, uh, the Sabini. So, you know, I'm very close with Terry yeah. for a lot of years. So it piqued my interest to watch a little bit of it. And uh, we joke about it a lot, me and Terry. So favorite all-time favorite American mafia actor? Uh, American actor would have to be, uh, I would say, Al Pacino. But UK actor would have to be, without a doubt, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Oh, I think he's a great actor. Fantastic. I'm a big fan of his, so. Yeah. Favorite De Niro movie? Uh, It would have to be Bronx Tale. Bronx Tale. So I read your book, Darkest Hours, all the early stuff, all the high school years and stuff. There were some pivotal moments in your life. You were coming up as a kid and you were put in a boxing match with someone who was way older than you. Can you give us that story, please? Yeah, you know, my father, uh, I was more afraid of my father backing down out of fights than uh, losing a fight to a kid. So they put me in with a kid that was very good with his hands. I wasn't ready to fight him, but I was too stupid to uh, say no, I wouldn't go in the ring and I went in the ring. Well, how old was he versus your age? Uh, I guess I was about 9 or 10 at the time. I think he was about 13 or 14. But it really wasn't the age in boxing, his experience. So, you know, the kid had a, a lot of experience. He was very fast with his hands. He was elusive with his feet. And, you know, I just wasn't nowhere near that standard yet. I was just a straight-ahead young kid fighting that uh, got hit a lot. And I definitely got hit a lot that day. <laughs> so you did it for your dad to be proud, though. Well, if he would have known, you know, I was just telling somebody last night the story. I fought a guy and a big guy when I was a kid and I was giving it to him a little bit. And I had the bright idea of throwing him on the floor. Uh, I made a mistake and he fell on top of me. (laughs) My friends were there and they wanted to break it up and I wouldn't allow him. And while the kid pummeled me, he was crying. And uh, he just kept begging me, can you stop now? Then I was all bloody and I wouldn't stop and I wouldn't let my friends jump in because my father wouldn't allow something like that. And, you know, I know the guy still and we joke still. I said, you know, if uh, eventually some adults came by and stopped it, it or you'd probably still be beating me up. <laughs> <laughs> so your relationship with your father was really pivotal to your character development as a hustler. He was a gambler. Can you describe how you got into that with him? Yeah, my dad liked to, uh, since I mean, there's a lot of pictures, actually, photographs when we're kids, he's teaching us to play dice, and he's teaching us to play blackjack, and he's teaching us, uh, you know, games of poker and things like that. But he loved the horses at that time when I was younger. Was, in the younger days, he loved the horses, and he always had schemes. 
And so when he went to poker games, you know, I played a lot of baseball and we had signals. So it was kind of easy for me to pick up and I'd be at the games and uh, they were, you know, games at different people's locations, underground games. And I'd signal him of what <laughs> hands everybody had. And these guys really figured, you know, he was just a little kid that, you know, and I have no idea what's going on. And it's not typical for a six or seven year old kid to have the ability to know cards. So I would signal him. And if I signal him wrong and we went home, you know, he would chastise me <laughs> like crazy. He lost a lot of money. That part, you know, I'm still a kid. Didn't understand the amount of money they were betting. Because you were creeping around the tables behind the card players. Yeah, yeah. You what, know, what were the signals you had with, with your dad? Yeah, well, you know, in baseball, we used to have the signal clear something was across the head. Yeah. You, you touch your left arm, it was the bond. Touch the right arm, it's to steal the base. Hit and run is across the chest. <laughs> so those same type of signals we had for cards. And, you know, the same thing with the horses. You know, they used to pose bet. So in other words, they didn't have bookies back then that had the timeline. So if, if you got the, uh, a bookie that was uh, not experienced and, and, the, and the race went off, say, at 120, we would call it in at 121 when the race was already over. But we had a chain of guys. It would be my brother or me at the, at the, uh, at the finish line, and we'd run the horses to the next guy and scream the numbers, and I'd yell it to my father, and the other guy would yell it over the fence because they didn't have the phones running in the, uh, in the tracks in those days. <laughs> and he'd call it into a sucker again, you know, sucker bookie. And, you know, we'd beat him. So he taught us all these little schemes. That's a guarantee, isn't it? You can't get yeah, that guarantee wrong, winning. Yeah. But he still lost somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know too many gamblers ever, and I got to tell you the truth. But I got smart. I learned I became the bookie instead. Yeah. <laughs> and when you were doing the table thing, I mean, the rest of the other people, even, they wouldn't suspect the kid doing that, would nah, they? Yeah, once or twice a guy would say, hey, what's your kid doing? But for the most part, nah. And, nah. and, and you know, if anybody said that the rest of the guys – would, you know, would tell him, shut the fuck up, you know. Yeah, he's exactly. so, you know, yeah. a kid, right? Yeah. So the neighborhood you grew up in then, what was that? What was it like? I grew up uh, playing baseball with uh, Fat Andy Ruggiano's uh, son, Albert, was our coach, and his son, Anthony, was around. So that was my neighborhood guys. And uh, as a kid, they groomed me. And the father uh, I looked up was a gangster. He was, the, he was a guy that the people uh, know about the mob. He was straightened out by Albert Anastasia, Murder Incorporated. So as a kid, you know, most people don't know who that is. They know who Mickey Mantle is for the Yankees. But I knew who these guys were because I was raised around Fat Andy and he was my, you know, idol and his son Albert was my idol and Anthony was around, obviously, a little older than uh, Albert. But Albert was my coach. So I'd look up to these guys and say, man, I'm going to be like them. Did you find the sports kept you out of trouble? Give you discipline. Keep, well, I guess not. I started using the baseball <laughs> bat for all the reasons. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you know, it, it, listen, you know, you go in a direction that uh, you're, you're comfortable with. Yeah. So I got accustomed to getting beat up. I got accustomed to being around gangsters. And I got accustomed to being comfortable about the ways, the way they handled themselves. And I started copying them. You know, I started smoking cigars at a young age. I didn't smoke cigarettes. And my father would catch me and slap me around and hit me in the head. But meanwhile, he was smoking. And, you know, yeah. so it's a comfort level. A guy, Lou Romano, I always speak about him. He's a writer in the States. And he did a, a, a book called uh, On Zip Codes. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what area you live and is the way you're going to behave. And uh, where I grew up, it was, you know, gangster heaven, a haven. So uh, that's what I try to become. And what was your dad's attitude towards that as he saw you slip into that? You know, it, my, my dad, you know, I love my father. He's in a nursing home right now, and he's just the same way. He's even a nurse. He doesn't understand things, but he's so tough. 
So sometimes he's still <laughs> yelling at me now, even from a wheelchair and, you know, but my dad would try to keep me away from it, but he also brought me to it. He just thought I was, I, I could be like him. I would stay away from it, gamble a little bit, hang around a little bit, and that's it. And his judgment was, uh, I guess, you know, he judged it wrong a little bit, and I, I went completely the other way. I, I followed some guys like uh, uh, Charlie Luciano, uh, Blackie Luciano was, was his nickname. He was a Gambino guy, and I followed guys like Fat Andy Luciano, who were uh, quiet guys. They were nice guys, gentlemen. They loved the kids. They come to all games, but they were tough guys, and uh, I wanted to be just like them. So just going back to your childhood a bit then, just to get more about your character development. So if your dad came home and he'd lost at the table, what was the mood like in the house then? <laughs> and my father used to throw the kitchen table over all the time and through the <laughs> wall and through the windows. And if he didn't have his Italian bread on the table, I'm Albanian and, you know, I come from a very Albanian family. We were raised in one, one household, my grandparents, everybody in one household, uncles, cousins. And they would hear it downstairs, upstairs, and they'd say, oh, there he goes again. He must have lost tonight. So when he didn't have that Italian bread salad, we knew he lost something because that table went flying. And uh, he was just a typical, you know, gambles are typical. They get the winning streaks and, you know, everything's yeah. great. And he'd call us up and say, get ready. We're going to go to the Met game tonight because Shea Stadium, well, City Field was near my house. So that was the treat. And he'd bet on some games and uh, we'd go to the game. But when he was on a losing streak, stay out of his way because his hands were swinging. You know, so. so did that create anxiety in you as a kid in that household? You know, honestly, it must have because I think I was still pissing in my pants in bed until about 11 years old. And, uh, you know, even some of my friends, they used to tease me, joke, and I'm saying, I don't know why the fuck I can't control it. You know, and, and you know, as, as a kid, you're embarrassed. As, now, as, as an adult, you laugh about it and you say, but I guess some of these things attribute to it. The way I speak, I always spoke with uh, vocal cords, false vocal cords. I have a very uh, hoarse voice, and uh, I went to therapy for it. Actually, it's better now. I used to sound like a real frog as a kid. <laughs> so some of those things, I guess, took a toll without me knowing. Yeah. So we've talked about your relationship with your dad. What about your relationship with your mom? Yeah, I had a great relationship with my dad. I was I was grew up like a gangster, I guess, even though I didn't realize it. It was a man's world. And I was Albanian, so the women didn't have much say. They cleaned the house. They, you know, they had their girlfriends over and family, mostly all Albanians, not outside uh, Americans, as typical family had. And uh, my mom was, if she asked me a question, I always tell her the same. Mind your business, don't ask me. And she used to get mad at me. But, uh, you know, I guess I had a normal relationship with my mom, but more distant than my father. I love both parents, but I was just raised uh, as a street guy. So your mom was Albanian, your dad was Italian? No, no, both Albanian. Oh, both Albanian? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was raised by mostly Italians. In a, you know, I was Albanian, but my my uh, the area of, of guys I stayed with were all Italian and, you know, stuff like, you know, like that. But The Albanian, it's like, they are very traditional, aren't they? Like you say, you live with your uncles. It might be a big house, but your uncles are upstairs and you could have four or five different families in the... Do you ever, did, like, did that cause any arguments or were you a close family? No, we had a pretty close family. I had my uncle upstairs with my, my we say, hubla, and down in the middle were, were us, and then the basement, and the first floor, excuse me, my grandparents in the basement, my other uncle, my father's brother, and his wife, and next door cousins, across street cousins. And when you come in the house, you take your shoes off, which we use capuzes, meaning for shoes, and you leave it at the front door. You don't track people and friends in and out of your house. 
uh, it was something that uh, my family didn't like, and it was kind of a traditional thing with Albanians. This is your home. This is your privacy. That's respect. Yeah, it's it? a it, it, it's a big respect with the Albanian community. I have a lot of respect. I mean, my body's tattooed with Albanian tattoos yeah. all over it, and you know, I was raised traditionally in Albanian family. I don't speak well anymore, but I understand a lot of Albanian. Yeah, he clocked your tattoos downstairs. Are you okay to say what they mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have the, the king's uh, crown on my hand with a heart. I mean, the love for my country. I have the Albanian chkipe on my forearm, uh, which means like almost brother, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I have the Albanian flag on my wrist. I have the Albanian flag on my back. I have the king's crown with Albanian word on my chest. Uh and uh, most of these tattoos as a kid were because my grandparents actually wanted me to have it. And uh, through the years, I followed suit and kept doing it. And uh, I show a lot of love to my family. You know, my family in, in Albania, I got a lot of family still in Albania. My cousin Andrit's there. It's like a brother to me. And I, I show respect to our country. That's Now, is, it, is that a street tattoo or is it a prison tattoo? No, I got one prison tattoo when, uh, when I was with O in uh, Brazilian penitentiary. Uh, I had one done there, and uh, most of my tattoos are from the street. So in these New York neighborhoods, there's friction between different communities. What was it like between the Albanian community and the Italian community? Well, growing up, really, people didn't know Albanians. They weren't, you know, because Albania was a shut-down country. It was communism prior to that. and mm. So you didn't have too many Albanians coming into the United States. And the ones that did... Uh, we, most of them were hardworking people, actually, and they didn't know them. So everybody assumed I was Italian and not Albanian, unless they were from my neighborhood uh, that knew me personally. Otherwise, if they just saw the way I looked, they would think I was Italian, and most of my friends were, uh, the street friends were Italian. My, actually, my regular friends who lived a normal life were mostly Irish. So, uh, you know, my neighbor was mixed. One section of, uh, of the neighbor was Irish-German. The other section on the other half of town was Italian. So I had a mixture of, of both, and, uh, but the Albanians really weren't known until recently in, in my area, the last 20 years. It wasn't, I had a couple of friends, Sadat Lika was Albanian, went to school with me, and his uh, father and uncle were very known famous gangsters in, uh, in the area, went to jail. So it was a bit of a novelty then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're known to be an aggressive country. I've said it you know, many times over. The problem with the Albanians and myself, and it's got, what got me into trouble is, Sometimes we jump without thinking. We use our balls before our brains, and uh, it caused me a lot of, you know, myself getting hurt and stabbed up and beat up, and also me hurting and stabbing, shooting a lot of guys. So was it frustrating for you then because you couldn't be a made man? And the audience on YouTube, a lot of kids watching this right now, you know, late teens and stuff like that, they probably don't even understand what a made man is. Could you just expand on that a bit and say how you can qualify for that yeah there's five families your father has to be italian it used to be a little different but it's on your father's side and they straighten out and cause a nostra meaning uh they'll prick your finger they'll put a saint and they'll burn you uh, in your hand and you become part of the organization as an officially made man i mean listen i i've said this over i said no nah, that never bothered me uh i was a street guy and guys like fat andy ruggiano treated me and their sons treated me as a, a street guy, a tough guy, and uh, they uh, trusted me, liked me. I loved the family. And uh, as the years went on, I started hanging around different gangsters that were Irish. There was a Westies, and there was guys from my neighborhood, Irish guys who were tough guys. And I think that uh, I understood one thing, and, and that was the only thing that mattered. 
whether you're from the UK and you're British, whether you're Irish, whether you, if you're a tough guy, you're a gangster, you're going to be respected. And if you're making money, you're respected. So it depended on uh, where your balls were at. And uh, I seem to find mine pretty good. So. <laughs> the Albanians and the Irish are very similar. It's very hard working, aren't they? Yeah, most Albanian, you know, we have a, a reputation of being a rough country, but I think it's because we've been suppressed yeah. forever. And, you know, it's a country that was communism. It's, you know, it's not particularly a, a wealthy country. And I think that we, uh, you know, the guys like myself that were very aggressive and doing things to make money got that reputation. So how did you first get accepted in the heavier duty criminal fraternity? What was the first stuff you did that was breaking the law that got the police's attention uh you know first you're collecting money bookmaking money for you know as a kid for different bookmakers and then i'm doing favors and doing beatings for, for them and from the beatings uh actually i got into a little serious more serious trouble and when i did a guy tried to shoot me my first guy that helped me was uh, i went to the ruggiano family and albert and anthony ruggiano and their father uh took care of that for me threw a guy off a building, and then I understood that uh, if anybody fucks with me, uh, their family's going to be there to protect me. And then from that point, I moved on in the life and uh, kept moving forward. What was your entry-level position? I mean, you come in as just, you know, as a family friend, as a ball player the way I did innocently, and then you become an associate of that family. And then you looked at, as I got more powerful, as I got older, I was representative as a made guy and, you know, People looked at me, nobody questioned me as they looked at me as a street boss as the years went on. And uh, different people that did some interviews about me, Sammy Gravano, for one, the underbosses, uh, called me a soulmate, uh, Albania soulmate. And uh, uh, they're a professional enforcer for the Gambino family. So. How much work do you have to put in to go from the, lot, the bottom level to become an associate? I mean, you listen, everything's built on, you know, neighborhood. So they knew me since I was a kid, the Ruggianos. So the trust level was, you know, since I'm a baby. I mean, they literally knew me since I was seven, eight years old. So it wasn't hard to get close to them because we, I grew up around them. I went to the same boxing gym as Albert Ruggiano, and uh, the father watched me fight and watched me play ball. And so the trust level for me to get involved was very simple, actually. Was there any point where this is getting heavier and heavier, you're thinking... Perhaps this isn't the occupation for me. No, it was the opposite. <laughs> As you live it, you don't. You don't even. Yeah, think about you know, it, you yeah. don't think about it. It's, a, it's like anything else. You know, you're used to it, and uh, when things kept getting stepping up from different things, and the money's getting better, also uh, your comfort level is the same. I mean, you look at it as like jumping in a ring. It's just part of your everyday life. Uh, you okay it with your own self and your brain. That what you're doing is you're hurting other guys that are in this life. And, uh, you know, you try to have a set of moral. I mean, Andy Ruggiano, uh, the father, taught his sons to be humble. And th them in turn, I guess, because, you know, although I was around the father and the sons, they're older than me, the sons, and they taught me the same thing, to be a little more humble. And I think that I followed suit and I tried to be humble, but I also became vicious. I went from zero to 100 if a guy disrespected us or, or somebody in our crew. I think from an old school point of view like yourselves too, there was, I mean, Tell me if I'm correct or not, but there was no drugs allowed. You didn't deal drugs or anything. 
Yeah, we didn't deal drugs at all, but we all dealt drugs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, when, yeah. when guys say we didn't deal drugs, I'll tell you, guys are full of shit. Yeah. So we all dealt drugs. So that wasn't in the brown paper bag that's we handed. You know. That was your sidekick. We're, we're, we're all moving drugs. Yeah. You know, we might not be sitting on the corner ourselves selling it. Yeah. But we're arranging it. We're moving it. And, uh, and we're using it. Yeah. So, you know, some guys can't handle it and they used it too much. And, you know, we'd be at parties, you'd see a beautiful woman with champagne lounges. If they want, you know, a gram or an eighth of Coke or whatever, they're getting it. I, you know, I, I like to be, you know, straightforward and honest. I don't want to bullshit anybody, yeah. but that's the life. We're in the street, you know, and we're not choir boys. And uh, somebody that says we didn't touch the stuff, yeah, that's for when we were in that life. You know, that's what we're supposed to say. But, you know, when we get caught with it, it's actually a death sentence officially. But most guys don't get killed for it. Now, are you supposed to have? I mean, I've seen on the movies where they say, it's like the two Italians, they always have a wife. You're supposed to have. A, you can have your squeezes. You can have your different women, but you should always go back to your wife. Is that true or? Uh, I got to put my glasses on so you don't see my eyes on that question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. listen we're, again we're street guys yeah right? we have wives we got girlfriends we have girlfriends on the girlfriends uh you know we're running around we're all making money you're driving beautiful cars yeah. i own nightclubs my friends own nightclubs we're traveling country to country life's good and you know life's good and you try to keep it and you believe at the time that you can keep your your marriage intact and you can keep your life intact and you can be a father to your kids it's it's too difficult of a mix to do. The woman at the beginning, they might turn a blind eye to it. Later on, they don't. Uh, and it takes effect on your kids also. So, you know, it's not conducive to be a gangster and have a family, honestly. Yeah. I mean, we all do it. And, and then later on, you know, as you become an adult and a, and, a, and a responsible man to your family, you start understanding financially we're there for you, but every other which way we're not. And uh, we have no business having families and being gangsters at the same time. And the wives, do they hang around together too? Yeah, the wives all stay together, and it's camaraderie between them. It's really no choice at the matter, you know. Yeah. Later on, when I'm with Gotti, you know, my wife, my first wife, we get divorced, but we're spending all our times, dinners, holidays at the Gotti family's house, regardless what the, this fucking idiot Gotti says. But, you know, this is the reality of what yeah. goes on, you know, that, uh, you know, we, we all stay together. It's like a ball team. You know, you're with a baseball team. I play college ball. And our coach, one of the things he did was a smart thing. He forced us all to stay together. We weren't allowed to stay with fraternities or other fraternities that stay with different sororities. We had our own fraternity within the baseball team. And that closeness makes you play better. And it was the same thing in the mob. Uh, some of the things that Gotti had later on senior taught us was to force us to stay together. In one turn, he's right. It would bring guys to the ability to get a little closer and protect each other more. And the other thing he was way wrong because it brings the attention of the police to get everybody locked up but you know everyone's strengths and weaknesses as well don't you that way yeah i mean listen uh most guys in a mob uh you know you look at a guy and i'll use sammy gravano i use him a lot and because he was a powerful boss and he was a strong mob guy if somebody says i don't care if they like him or dislike him you got to be honest the guy was a money maker he was very quiet and he was a tough guy you know past that everybody can have their opinion Mm-hmm. Uh, so the guys like that you want to you know you want to look and you want to follow what was motivating you I've written a book about Escobar so he's a billionaire his brother Roberto says why don't we just buy our own island kick back Cali Cartel won't take us out we won't spend the rest of our lives in prison 
Pablo said, I don't want to just kick back on a deck chair on some island, sipping a cocktail when I'm running this multi-billion dollar business. I decide which president gets in power. And, you know, we saw what happened to him. He ended up dead. What was motivating you? Power, money, ego, women? Tommy Shelby, right? Peaky Blinders. He doesn't want to retire either, right? So no. watch that. And the reason why, yeah, all joking aside, is because the, the power is part of it, right? And it's the, the adrenaline. I'm a big adrenaline junkie, right? The rush of adrenaline, the street brings adrenaline. The boxing gym brings adrenaline. Baseball brought adrenaline. Women bring adrenaline. Fast cars bring adrenaline. That's what we live for. Yeah. It's not all about the money. I mean, there's guys that, you know, they sock all their money away. I wasn't one of those guys. You know, whatever I'm making, I'm spending, I'm enjoying life. You go around once, maybe you get killed tomorrow. You could go to jail for years like I did. I spent about 18 years in and out of prisons. So I look at, you know, joy while you got it. You know, but other people don't. I mean, you could go out of the car, you know, normal guy, get hit by a car, get sick, and it's the end of your life. So I think a lot of it is, you know, guys from the street. Well, anyway, you're not just guys from the street, boxers, you know, guys that they're in sports. It's, it's big uh, race car drivers. It's adrenaline. These guys are like us, you know, like me and, and like the street guys in a different way, but we like adrenaline rushes. And I think that's what brings us to the not want to retire and go live on an island somewhere. When you did your prison, was it like, you know, you see, I mean, I, I, I still can't believe it was you'd have your, your own salad, you'd have your meats and your wines and all that. Was that just in the movies or did that actually happen? No, I got locked up for bribery and cops in the States. It was a big case. They called it Spermgate. And uh, <laughs> I got friendly with a couple of cops and, you know, slowly worked them. And, you know, their salaries aren't large, so it's not that hard to get to them. And when I, I worked them from inside, when I left prison, I, I kept it going to keep some of my, you know, friends going and, uh, help, you know, so they could live good. I mean, I had guys like Patrick Jenkins from here. He was in uh, in Florida jails with me. You know, he's a UK guy. We're friends yeah. for a long time, and although he wasn't involved in some of that stuff, but you know, he could tell you him personally how the, the state jails work. I'm not sure about the UK prisons, and uh, fortunately, I haven't been here to to learn about that. And I got a different life. So, but you know, you look at the like, oh, it was with me in Brazil. It's, you know, those guys where we were in Brazil penitentiaries were torture chambers. But yet we still found our way to, of ways of bribing cops and surviving. Okay, and you're and, yeah, and you're still bribing. You're getting meat. I mean, listen, you have your ups and downs. Jail's jail. Prison is prison. Yeah. Guys are getting killed. Guys are getting raped. Uh, guys are, you know, getting, there's all kinds of things going on. But at the same time, we never stop hustling and trying to make it easier for ourselves to live. You make it best yourself. I did seven and a half years in Arizona day for day. In Arizona, um, and what I found is, is just like if you just not try and go in there and be the big man, just sit back and watch, just do your own thing, get your own hustle on, whatever it may be, you know, you get by, don't you? Yeah, well, you know what? One of the biggest things you just said is, and you know, there's guys that are selfish, and there's guys that want to have a big mouth, and there's guys don't aren't humble about doing time because every jail, anywhere you go, and again, I'll talk about Klaus and and was a good friend of mine from Denmark and oh and guys that you know we were just here for a reunion of guys that were in prison with us in Brazil what we did was we we formed a close close-knit of guys yeah we stayed together we worked together we bribed together we survived together if we had to hurt somebody we did it together and we try to mind our business and get by you know doing our time but sometimes when you're in situations like we were in Brazil guys get stabbed guys get killed and 
this is what goes on and you don't need to, to go out of your way to find it because as it is prison, you know, is a place that's it's dangerous. Today you're alive, tomorrow you're dead, you can catch a new case. So you try to be as humble as you can, quiet as you can, and get along as, as you can and uh, make your time as easy as possible. Exactly, so. yeah. You've got gangs telling you what to do, like Alan Waits, you've got the Aryan Brotherhood saying, we want you to do this, we want you to do that. Or don't sit on other races' beds and don't do drugs. And yet you see them doing exactly the same thing. So the hypocrites, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had no respect for that, mate. No, you know, it's why when you're when we're talking now or I'm talking to kids, you try to be as realistic as possible to so they understand and oh, just people out there that uh, mothers and fathers they want to get an idea of things they don't understand so they can speak to their kids about it. You want to be upfront with them and don't be a hypocrite. Just what you said. And just, yeah. Give them the, the the real the real deal of what goes on and you know and and how it is and you know listen we were gangsters I mean this is what we did guys like you know Terry Sabini and you know no matter what we're friends from country to country there's nothing much different from the United States to the UK uh, that bond is from the street is something as a loyalty thing with our friendship because of being not because of organizations because we're personal friends but to keep the bond is good. A lot of people say, oh, we'll stay in touch, but they never do. No, they don't do because maybe they're not true friends. When you find yeah. true friends and you get like this, oh, he was a young kid when he, when he met me in the prison system. And people say, you know, why do you guys always talk? Because, there's a, you know, when you're a friend with somebody on the street, five years, 10 years, you see him once every week, every two weeks, you talk to him here and there. But when you're in jail with a guy and you spend a couple of years with him, breaking bread with him day and night, surviving, that situation, because these ain't average penitentiaries in Brazil. Yeah, uh, There's a bond like somebody going away to war where we're saving each other's lives and looking out for each other. And it's an unsaid rule, obviously, if someone tries to stab me from behind, I know that, oh, uh, Klaus or uh, you know any of these guys, Justin that was there, different guys with us, uh, Tim from uh, Turkey. We stay in touch with uh, another guy, Max. I can go through a lot of names that we're all in touch with each other. It's good to have that, though. It's good yeah, to have because you can sleep. You can well, yeah, sleep, can't Because, you, you know, in Even those jails. Even if you do it in, like, sort of. Well, in those jails, guys try to hit a guy constantly. So, yeah. you know, and I'm not talking about with a little blade. You know, there you got uh, machetes and there's, you it's know, there's pistols in the prison. So, you, you know, for me to go to sleep easy, I got to know I have the right guys with me. Yeah, that it's going to look out for me, and they're going to put their life up for me. So we so had that machetes. situation. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I thought shanks were bad. <laughs> so before we get into more details about the Brazil prison experience, what did you get busted for in Brazil? I actually never uh, got caught with a crime, and this, this is one of the conversations that people have been asking me. Well, how'd you get caught in Brazil? Brazil was asked to man. Well, every country was looking for me. Interpol. So I was in about 20 countries. I was in Colombia. I was in Venezuela. I was in an army base, Colombia, uh, Cuba, Africa. And as I kept running, eventually I, I got caught in Brazil by Interpol. And they arrested me on an arrest warrant from the United States. How did they catch you? I was on uh, Copacabana Palace in Rio. I was behind there and the, uh, they had an Interpol thing to to get me and the army came looking for me and helicopters and they came with i don't know how many guys surrounded me machine guns guns into pole and uh no sense you i looked up yeah <laughs> and i was like i was looked up and i just knew i was done i watched everybody in all the buildings looking down and i said well this is done 
And when they arrested me, I wasn't sure exactly what I was getting arrested for. I got tipped when I was in the States that I was facing uh, a life sentence. I was going to get hit with a Rico racketeering case. But uh, for people to understand, the street life, uh, I was by, betrayed by dozens. I mean, dozens, maybe 50, 55 guys, 54 guys that were given information against me. But I never been caught on an audio tape or a videotape or selling drugs or uh, any kind of powder pills. I never been caught with a weapon, never got caught at a crime scene, at a shooting or a killing. So I never been caught with absolutely nothing to get hit with this life sentence. We know the field on that, though. So Conspiracy. It, yeah. When, yeah, when they got me, it was just off of testimonies of guys and made guys and different associates of the of the family, of the Gambino family. So these made guys have actually done no matter and actually turned around and said they're going to speak no evil, see no evil, and they actually just talk. They talk. I said, and that's the problem with these organizations that people say, well, you know, you know, this guy was a boss and, you know, Joe Messina was a boss of the Bonanno family and he was wearing a wire and he was giving up information about guys and, my, and giving up information about me and different people. And, you know, I could go through that list, which I have done. Uh, Once you lose prior. that, you lose the whole trust, don't you? You, you understand this. If everyone keeps their mouth shut, you're doing all right, aren't you? If no one talks, yeah. you're good. Well, uh, you know, you, you're not going to get that. And, I mean, through the history of uh, street you know, I think we can all name hundreds of guys that were talking and yeah. they try to use me as a scapegoat. Uh, I never was caught. And, uh, you know, initially uh, I went on a run and, uh, you know, people say different things. And I'm saying I sat in a penitentiary in Brazil for two and a half years trying to survive those jails, uh, which aren't really jails. They're more of a concentration camp, torture chambers, whatever you want to call well, it. Well, that's a hell of a lot harder than anywhere in America can give you, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent millions on, on, on attorneys and uh, investigators. And while I'm spending that money and I'm trying to survive those prisons, Justin and, and Klaus and these guys are hearing me on telephones, finding out that, uh, you know, guys are turning on me. And uh, not just regular guys, but the bosses are meeting with government officials. So, uh I knew the time was up for me, and uh, and I was I was facing an inevitable. You can't trust your own. Who can you trust? Excuse me. You can't trust your own. Who can you trust? I'm not hearing. I'm oh, he's, he's just saying uh, how he understood your situation, basically. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. With sorry. those other guys, I'm a little older now. I can't. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. The people out there are going to be really curious about the Brazil prison, and they like. Can you take us in there? Like, what first day going in? You know, is it shocks to your system? What you seeing? How are the guards treating you? What's the food like? What's your cell like? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not the average inmate, so everybody's looking after me. When they first pinch me, uh, when they come with the army, they came. Everybody, it was all over Associated Press, and the morning papers was King of New York, King of Crime of New York, and they got my picture on the headlines all over King of Crime of New York and Mafia, Gangster, Street Boss, and uh, the article started in magazines around the world and. So when I walk in the, the penitentiary, the first place they bring me is an Interpol. It looked like an abandoned building, actually. And I, I, if I had to think any different, I'd be lying. I thought they were going to hit me uh, as, as far as I wasn't going back to jail. I thought they were going to try to kill me because I don't know their country. I'm not really sure what's going on. They just yeah. brought me into an abandoned building. There's nobody there, and they're telling me this is prison. But there's nobody there. There's no lights. There's nothing. And they're bringing me up the stairs, and they have me belly-chained uh, chain to the wrist, chain around my, you know, upper body down. So I'm kind of like, uh, if you watch one of these Hannibal Lecter movies, uh, 
and Silence of the Lambs. They got me like that. Uh, they exaggerate how dangerous I am in the papers. And uh, and actually on the arrest warrant, they have me as a champion jiu-jitsu fighter and a boxer. I'm a boxer, but I'm not a, a great jiu-jitsu fighter. I've trained for a year or so, a year and a half. I'm not that good. Uh, but that's how they're treating me. They're, they're scared to get too close to me, and they're moving me with six, seven guys at a time. And uh, they bring me to this uh, one room. It's abandoned. Above me is a military a cop with a machine gun. And they throw me in a room with no toilet, nothing, and uh, put me down there. And I stayed there for about a day, day and a half, uh, pissed shit in my shirt. I had to rip my shirt open. And uh, guys like go will tell you that uh, mosquitoes that you guys can't believe. It's like you're in a jungle. And uh, I had no choice to take my shirt off, which I didn't want to do because of the mosquitoes. And I had a shit in it. And the other half, I had to use it to wipe. And, uh, you know, I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself, are these guys looking to clip me? Are they looking to torture me? Are they looking to really bring me to a prison? I'm really not sure. So your anxiety level, and I'm trying to see my way, how You'd I can get out. You'd be thinking clip, wouldn't you, really? Yeah, 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 without a doubt. And I, I started doing, above me is the bars, and I do a lot of pull-ups being in jail yeah. my whole life. So I started doing pull-ups to try to let go of some of the anxiety and push-ups. And eventually, I lay down and fall asleep on some shit, piss, whatever's there, bugs, and I, I end up getting an, a, a body infection all over me, and mm. I was welting up, so I'm not really sure what that was. And the next day, that developed, and they brought me to another prison, and then they brought me to a medical facility that was <laughs> primitive, and they brought me to Ari Franco, where was I was the first one of out of our crew of guys that was in Ari Franco. And I seen the way they walked me through everybody obviously knew who i was already people were yelling all over the jail when i walked in so they're yelling respect or are people now thinking they can extort you because you got money no 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 respect yeah it was uh, even the guards were showing me respect when i came in uh the, the paper said it was very dangerous and you know they knew that uh i was known to be a killer and in jail, obviously, that's a respect thing. And, of course, yeah. And yeah. Uh, most of the guys looked out. As soon as I walked in my cell, it was, uh, I will tell you, Klaus will tell you, Justin, uh, Tim, these guys, there's 12 bunks in, in, in a cell there. And one of them is used for food. So there's 11. And there's probably 50, 60 guys in a cell overcrowded. And I walked in, and the first thing I said is, somebody's giving up a cell. Uh, giving up a bunk and they started arguing i said i'll give you two minutes to figure out which one he is but i'm gonna, i'm taking a bunk so they uh Did you get the bottom one of that yeah no i didn't, I didn't want the bunk. actually i said uh, you know in brazil you can't take a bottom bunk because there's rats all over the jails oh yeah so you don't want the bottom. And i actually like the bottoms if i was in american prison but yeah there i insisted on a top bunk and i insisted on the back and uh my agent, David Nash, and, you know, we were just speaking about this, and I asked for I told them I want one of the back uh, bunks, and they said, why? And, you know, people don't understand this because they're the old-style bars. So if you're in one of those front bunks, they, they'll spit alcohol on you and, and light you on fire. Yeah. So, a, so you don't stay in those front bunks. Those are the worst bunks to take. And in these jails, there's riots all the time, and there's fires all the time, and there's guards actually – if you look up some of the stuff with they threw firebombs and it killed about 14, 16 inmates in one of the cells. So I know this because I've been around a little bit and it, I was living in Brazil. So I know a couple of guys and they told me the situation in the prisons there. And uh, so I had a little heads up on it. Big thing in America is to go past with the boiling hot water with the sugar in it and swill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like. Yeah, it's the United States jail sink. Yeah. 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 
So what was the food like then? Uh, rice and beans in a room like two or three times the size it is. And uh, so it sits there and, and, you know, listen, the human conditions there as it is, is known to be, you know, horrendous. So you can imagine that food, rice and beans, pre-made in those things, how many bugs, how many rats, mice are in it. And when they serve it to us, uh, the first couple of times I used to look at the food and, and uh, at the beginning before these guys got there. But when these guys get there, I tell them the same thing when they got there. Listen, ignore some of those bugs and just start eating it because that's what we got. And at times, you know, when we could get to some gods, there's times that there's weeks it's good, a day is good, and then there's months when it's not. So when we can get to them, we would get some outside food. At times, we'd get pizza and McDonald's and whatever else we can get our hands on and buy and liquor and whatever else. But on a regular fucking basis, uh, we're eating bugs and beans. Are you best getting it straight away, being first to get it, or are you best just, or is it all the same? At the beginning, I didn't want to eat it the first couple of days, and there was a Brazilian guy that I got close to, and and he was in jail with us. And if you see some pictures, we look like we're concentration camp yeah, guys. Yeah. Very skinny, and you, you can see how bad the, the your parlor is on your skin color and you know he told me at that time john you got to eat this shit whether you like it or not and then you know honestly it's like anything else you adjust you eat it and i didn't even think about it anymore i started eating it like it was nothing and you know you're shitting and pissing on the floor and in a hole and the the biggest thing that you really never adjust is the mosquitoes the mosquitoes just fucking tear you up day and night and they have dengue and guys are dying from it so you know that's the dangerous part of more that i think than being you know, the chance of getting killed in there is, is those mosquitoes. Soft toilet paper is out of the question. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want, hey, believe it or not, I just vacationed back in Brazil for two weeks. <laughs> and people said, you're fucking nuts. I said, well, I plan on going to the beach this time, not to prison. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get food smuggled in, was that guards or visitors? Yeah, everybody. You know, we, you know at the time I was pretty wealthy. Uh, some of my guys that were with us, we uh, aligned together and we did everything together between buying smuggled phones, bribing guards, hurting guys. We did it as a unit and that's what made us survive. We didn't do it as an individual. We were real, I, I got to tell you something, we're very loyal to each other and you can see it's uh, 12 and 15 years later for some of us and we're still together and we're still talking and staying in touch and uh, we laugh at some of the stories that we hear from people telling bullshit stories about a jail. They have no idea how, how dangerous and bad it was. Well, you, you've got that for life now, haven't you? What's that? You, 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 you're bonded, bonded for life. Oh, you're I bonded you say for life. That, uh, yeah. Your brother's for life. Don't yeah, you? I mean, you know, I guess, you know, I talk about the military, every country. And, you know, I got a lot of yeah. respect for the military. And I've every time I talk on a show, I bring them up because I have massive respect for guys that, you know, put their life on the line, whether they see one day action or never see action. They have the, uh, the chance of losing their life if they are. They, they do see any action so i think they understand as a brotherhood and outside of the mafia this is the real brotherhood of guys in prison yeah. where the loyalty really is there because we survive off each other and we're never going to forget what we went through together and you do feel bonded for life when you go through such an intense environment yeah because you you, you talk we watch guys die left and right you know somebody tells you you know we watch a kid that uh, was charged with blowing up a bus with people on it. I don't really think the kid did it. They, they, you know, they, they put him in a single cell and they hung the kid, said he hung himself and they left him there for four days or a week. It stunk in there. And, you know, we used to this. We watched a couple of guys get macheted uh, to death before that. And the guys weren't breathing well because we're sub below and the air is bad and they died suffering of oxygen. 
not be able to breathe because they had you know medical problems prior to that. So we watch a lot of deaths. And uh, then during the riots, you know, you, you're watching 12 and 16 and 40 guys get killed. And, you know, it's no joke when, you you know, the riots go off and there's fires all over the prisons and they're coming for you. So we uh, learned to protect each other and we learned that, listen, we're like brothers, family forever now. They mixed all the prisons together too. Cause you have, you have your paedophiles with your burglars and everything else, everything all in one. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was t- there was times when the you know they would shake us down. They put a thousand guys in a, in a space where honestly you could probably squeeze in two hundred. Yeah, and they keep us there in a hundred and ten, hundred fifteen degrees. Uh, no lights, pitch black. We're all in there naked, and you got to piss and shit. And we try to, as a group, we all decide that let's you know piss and shit in the corner. Yeah, where uh, you know you know we keep it somewhat sanitary, and you know there's nothing to wipe. There's no way to wipe yourself. And, uh, you know, those were some of the situations we were out in the yards. They put us out in the yard full of dogs, rocks, uh, military police would have guns to our heads and leave us out in the sun was, you know, some days in Brazil, it's 120 degrees. We'd stay there, you know, 15 hours without moving. So if you're pissing and shitting right where you're sitting and, uh, I gotta tell you, I don't even know how to fuck these military guys stayed because they're in, they're in, uh, all black with masks, with hats, and I mean, they had to stay out there too, just like us. At least we were naked. <laughs> I mean, so I, I don't really get it, but you know, it's a different world, you know, and it's a different system and uh, it's dangerous. And we put ourselves in a dangerous situation. So as brothers, I mean, I was friends with Klaus for years since the early 90s. So it was just uh, the same guy that helped me go on a run and survive. It's a coincidence. We ended up in the same prison, but then when we meet guys like, oh, and uh, Justin and Tim and some of the other guys, Milos, he's dead, and Camilo and uh, Max, these guys, we all stay in touch with each other. And, you know, we have a real good bond with each other. Most of us are very tight with each other. People say coincidence. I, I always think that things that have happened for a reason, it's, it, it, it was meant to be like that. Yeah, you know what? You look at life and, you know, people ask me all the time, well, you suffered a lot. You know, you've been stabbed up, battered, you've been in these prisons and stuff. And, you know, you, you could take a, a bad situation, a terrible situation, at which I was in, you know, most of my life or most of my adult life, and you could do something positive about it. And I started talking to kids and, and talking some of the pitfalls of not following it. And some of the positive is to have, like, brother friends the way we do now. And we end up being... Uh, you know, friends for life, no matter where he is, we, you know, we can reach out to each other and try to help each other. So that's the main positive you know, thing you've got out of it, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and you and can help other people. You're trying to do a positive thing with yeah. each other and, and other Pay people. Kids. I mean, kids reach out to me from every, you know, I'm in every country. I probably did about 20 magazines now around the world. And, you know, people talk to me and the parents call me all the time about helping their children. As a kid here, Sam Greenfield, I was hoping I'd see him before I left. He was involved with a gang and he was a fighter and he just received a reward from uh, the UK for helping children. So, you know, those are the good things that happen out of my past, you know, out of bad life. Yeah. You, you help a kid that's really helping a lot of kids. And I commend his father, really, because his father reached out to me originally years ago. And his father was one of those fathers that really cared about his son and his future. And, you know, he wasn't a father that gave up on him. So, you know, you got to give, you know, some kudos to some of these parents that do the right thing and really, you know, try for their children. Because a lot of them have just gave up, don't they? Just let them, just let them do whatever they're going to do. Yeah, you know, you know, nobody comes from a perfect situation. No. So, you know, I didn't come from one. And, you know, I love my father, but the the way I was raised and the area I was raised, you know, we all can have excuses for our life. But, you know, I don't believe in making excuses for, for yourself or your life. Just move on, 
you know, do something positive, change it. And, uh, you know, nobody's got a perfect situation, not even a rich kid. No. There's a rich kid that parents aren't around and people say, oh, that rich, I don't feel bad for him. But he never got some love maybe. And he was around and he was alone most of the time. So he reaches out in a different way, maybe uses drugs or he gets himself jammed up and he's doing things that uh, maybe he, uh, you know, in a normal situation. But nobody has that perfect normal life. I think that's bullshit. Even if you didn't have a penny, you're a much more wiser person. You've lived a life. And most more than most people, you know what I mean? It's like it's something that you've done. And it's an accomplishment, isn't it? You've been through shit and you've come out of it and you're looking good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I try to take my final. <laughs> <laughs> now, nah, you know what? It's it's your attitude. I think it's a positive attitude. And, uh, you know, it's no secret I don't like the Gotti, you know, family. Uh, you know, Gotti Jr., excuse me. But, you know, the Gotti family, some of them, it, it, you know, I said this recently, I like them. Some of them I really like. And, uh, you know, people got a you know, misunderstanding of what went on. In, in the public because they get bits and pieces and they get it from different media outlets that, you know, spin a story. And, you know, but uh, there's family members of the Gottis I really uh, respect and like, and I feel bad for some of them lost their life. This uh, Joey Gotti took his own life and uh, his, his mother was a great woman. His sister was a, a really nice girl. And, you know, so I talk about some of them and Pete Gotti's daughter, uh, Linda Gotti is a nice girl. And she ended up testifying against some Gambino guys and, People had a lot to say about it. This is a normal, everyday citizen. She shouldn't be dragged into a life that her father was in. No. And, uh, you know, so people got a misconception of who they're calling a rat and who they're not. And, and I, I'm big on the Gotti Jr. because of what he did when I was in those penitentiaries. He went with the United States government and he became what they call queen of the day. He called them up and asked, can I meet you? And I want to give information as long as you can't charge me with anything. So these are the things and misconceptions when they're talking about, well, do I dislike Gotti Jr.? Yeah, because he's weak, and he flipped that story around. And then they talk bad about Linda Gotti, who's their first cousin, and she shouldn't be called anything bad. This is a normal, everyday girl that went and gave information like most citizens do. She's not a gangster. She didn't sign up to be a gangster. And no. he actually, her father's not a gangster, and he's got a life sentence because he was trying to help his brother, John Gotti Sr., so, you know, and he's actually a decent guy. He was a sanitation worker. He wasn't a gangster. So, you know, do I dislike the guy? No. When there's women involved in the crime too, you find the police will go straight away. They'll go for the woman. And they'll start using, like, you're never going to see your kids again. You're never going to. And no matter what, a woman's going to put her kids first. Well, you know, I've talked about this prior, but never in the UK. You know, when you, you become a maiden member, you make it, you take an oath that you're going to take this thing, meaning Cosa Nostra, before your own family. Yeah. And who the fuck is going to believe that? You know, so they're, they're starting off being straightened out to a lie. Because at least say that your kids are going to come first and then Cosa Nostra of comes course, second. Of course, Because I don't know any idiot that's not going to save their son, daughter, child, uh, baby, before they save me. So I wouldn't even buy that. If you told me, try to sell me that, and told me, listen, John, no matter what, I'm loyal to you, I'll die for you. I might believe that, but when you tell me you'll die, you'll let your kid die before me, I know you're full of shit, mm-hmm. right? So we, we understand that, you know, we're not dummies. So I think that alone shows you it's built on bullshit, and that's the problem why it doesn't last the way people believe, you know, that the Cosa Nostra should. When did you first hear the Gotti name, and what did it mean to you? Uh, you know, I was a kid, and uh, Albert Ruggiano's father was going to prison, and Gotti Sr. was coming up, and uh, 
he had, you know, a big name. I mean, he was a, a big name, gangster, famous, and the media built him up to be something that was legendary. And uh, he wasn't legendary what everybody believed. I mean, I, as a kid, I looked up to him too. I thought he was, you know, the greatest thing around. I followed him. I, you know, I looked up, I wanted to copy him. And then I understood as I was getting older and more experienced in the street, his arrogance is going to bring down everybody. And uh, him looking for fans in the media is not what a gangster does. Fat Andy Ruggiano was a, a gangster. He was quiet. He didn't look for the media. He didn't want anybody to know who he was. And the media needed to build somebody up to that status. He wanted to be built up to that status. And he wasn't that, you know, to that status. But I got to give him credit. He was a tough guy. You know, he was just, you know, he, I ain't saying he was a killer with his own hand. He, he wasn't. He never was. Uh, but his downfall was his ego and the way he portrayed, you know, his image to the world, which destroyed everybody. And really his son, with his behavior now between, you know, queen of the day and between this nonsense he does and the internet and his kid shit, he single-handedly ruined his father's <coughs> legendary name, but the way he behaves, because really that name had a status, whether, you know, it's accurate or not, doesn't matter. He just, he had that name and the kid is bringing that name down to a, he destroyed it, and he's continuing to destroy it with some of the shit he does. It's disrespectful, isn't it? Yeah, he's a, you know, he, listen, the father was what he was, whether you like him or not. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the, the son acts like a cunt. You know, I don't know if I could say that on this thing, but. Yeah, you're fine. You know, yeah, you, you, you know, we're grown men, gangsters, whether we're good at it, bad at it, full of shit. Well, he's a rat, he ain't a rat, but act like a man one way or another. Don't play with internet and Google and having your sister and this one run around on thing and calling people names. It's childish, number one. It has nothing to do with the street guy world. And I don't think any gangster sat down with his sister and talked. And, and from what I understand, he's just writing under his sister's name. It's actually him writing. So who the fuck knows? They, they joke around now in, in New York and everyone. They call him the diaper Don now because he's a spoiled bratty kid. You know, so I think that he's destroying whatever was left of if anybody believed in what his father was, you know, at the time. But his father was one of the shortest <coughs> running bosses ever. He's he's boss for four years. Got what was your first with meeting cases. with him like? We've got you like, uh, you know, again, I was a kid, so I looked up to him. You know, I wanted to be like him, and I was a little scared, a little intimidated from him. Obviously, uh, I take an order from him, do whatever he wanted. How, how did you get to meet him that very first time? Uh, first time. I, I was at the club on 98th Street, 101st Avenue. We have uh, Bergen Hunt and Fish Club, it's called. Around the corner from that, there was another club. Uh, it was a cafe. It was known to be his brother's club. Richie wasn't a made guy at the time. And then across the street, around the right across the street from the Bergen, was another little club that Senior used. So I was over there talking to him about uh, gambling, sports business. Uh, Willie Boy Johnson was his partner in the sports business out in Brooklyn. And at the time, I, I met a... Uh, equipment manager for the New York Mets, this guy Joey DeLuca, who had the New York Mets gambling, and they started calling action into me where I couldn't handle that kind of action. They were betting hundreds of thousands and uh, you know a week in, back in the 80s. So I brought it to John uh, through the sun, and Senior sent me over to Willie Boy Johnson, and I became uh, partners with him on a half sheet. And that's really what really caterpillar to me, you know, to a little different status at the very beginning, and I guess that was about 83. 84. And how old were you then? I was about 21 years old. So you get a cut set on that? Sorry to interrupt. Go for it. Yeah, I get a 50% sheet on it. They lay out. So if I lose 200000 Gotti lays it out for me with Willie Boy. 
the father, you know, senior Gotti, lays it out, and you know, I go into black, and the until I keep, you know, the action coming in. If I make two hundred thousand, they take their hundred thousand, I get my hundred grand, and my other partner on the other end was his son, so uh, I had to play a little middle there between father and son and some of the stuff I was doing for the father and the son were a little different. The father didn't want the son to know things. So it was kind of like a tightrope or whatever way I was walking and as things were moving along with the Gotti family. Yeah. So as you made more money, did they give you more responsibility? Yeah. I mean, as, as things went on, I became, you know, personal Gotti's uh, personal enforcer, bodyguard, whatever word you want to use, professional killer. So did you just jump from earner to bodyguard enforcer or was the steps... Nah, I kind of did it on a, on a quick level because I started hurting guys uh, initially. And Jeannie Gotti was uh, partners with uh, Johnny Koenig. And Johnny Koenig I had a lot of respect for. I still do. I like him. Uh, he was one of Gotti's enforcers and uh, big money makers. And he did a 50-year bid, which he had to do 27 years on it for heroin with Jeannie. And his brother was uh, Charles, that uh, weak guy, different guy became a junkie, shooting up, smoking crack, and didn't have no business belonging to the mob. So this is some of the reasons why the mob downfall. But, uh, you know, Jeannie Gotti actually, he was my cellmate in 1997 in prison, was most of his guys are John's guys. So, and on the street, I like Jeannie Gotti. He was a good guy. When he went to jail, he became a bit of a different type of guy, and uh, we went after him in prison. What do you mean by that? I heard his best friend, uh, Ali Calabrese, they're going to talk about him in The Irishman. They say he was a gangster's gangster. He was around the Cleveland boss. Uh, me and four guys, we gave him a bad, bad beating. And uh, after that, we, we gave Jeannie uh, a little bit of a beating. This is a guy that's supposed to know Cosa Nostra. And uh, he put a black gang of guys on to Joe Gambino to try to shake him down and extort him. And, you know, I happened to know those guys also. I had a little meeting with the, the one of the guys, Warren, from this black crew, nice guy, gentleman, boxer. Uh, and we talked and he said, we, you know, we had no idea what's going on here. We'll, we'll get to the bottom. It was some of his guys. And we cleared it up. Once we cleared it up, uh, we gave Ali some beating because the message went through Ali. And uh, Danny, me, a guy named Lee, another guy, Nino, we set him up in the early mornings by the gym and we rocked his boat real good. And, uh, then we went after Jeannie. And these are things why Cosa Nostra doesn't work. Because you got guys like this that break in a level. Now, Joe Gambino, that was with me in prison, was a gentleman and a nice guy. And he understood Cosa Nostra. And whether you like gangsters or you agree with the life, but the guy was a gentleman. That's my point. And he did his time quietly, minded his own business. And uh, there's no way. It's like us stepping to, you know, in jail, everything's racial and it's city bound and it's New York and it's Philly and the blacks in, in New York ride with the white with white Italians and, you know, they don't go against you from D.C. They ride together. So we all have our hooks and, you know, we understand jail. So we don't go step to a black crew and try to shake anybody down. If we do, we're in the wrong. We understand that. And Warren was a sharp, uh, tough guy, street guy, and he understood that. And they, so they stepped away. They didn't step away out of fear. They stepped away out of respect and courtesy. But what Jeannie Gotti did was... Uh, you know, if this was 1980, 1990, he came home from jail. They should have cut him up in pieces and, and killed him for what he did. But we destroyed his time after that. He never did time again like a man in prison. So for people watching this who don't know who Joe Gambino is, um, how did he rise up? How did he be, get into power? Well, Tommy Gambino's it's a cousin, and Tommy Gambino was uh, also in prison with me. He just passed away in actual causes. And again, Tommy Gambino was another guy, very wealthy, a very a businessman, a gentleman. 
didn't talk, didn't look for trouble, just uh, did his time and very well respected. As, as you know, these guys aren't killers; they're just nice guys. And uh, uh, Tommy was Carlo Gambino's son, and Joe was a cousin. And they, they they do correct time. You know, there's ways of doing time in prison, and there's guys that can do good time, guys do bad time. I mean, maybe you know. Listen, I give Genie benefit doubt for one thing. Uh, he could have did nine, twelve years. Him and Johnny Kinnick when they sold uh, heroin, and they took a fifty-year bid on the chin out of stupidity because they listened to their brother John, his brother John Gotti Senior. They wouldn't allow him to take a plea. What they would have did about eight years. So, if this is about looking out for your your brother and looking out for your your soldiers, you're supposed to tell him to take the eight. But instead, he was worried about his image that they're selling drugs, and he made him do fifty. So to me, that's not a leader. Were the Gambinos bumping heads with any other crime families when you were an enforcer? You know, listen, every you always have disputes between families, but it's usually, for the most part, it's worked out by sitting down and having sit-downs and working out because, you know, this life is not about killing each other. It's about making money with each other. And there's, there's good relationships between all the crews. It's not what everybody thinks. The, 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 the wars start, like, the you know, the, over the years, the wars started where guys were, clipping our guys left and right because uh, we killed Paul Castellano on sanction. God, he caused that. And as our guys are getting killed one after another, we're not killing anybody back. So this is one of the reasons I said he's a soft, he was a soft leader. Uh, you, you, you're letting, we're getting uncontested killings and we're not, we're not contesting them. Uh, and there's wars during the Colombo days, wars because they split for factions within the family and Joey Scopo Sr. was another nice guy. Senior God, he put him in there to take over one faction. He got killed. We didn't do anything about it. But Joey was best friends with Jeannie Gotti growing up together. So that's why they put him in that position. But usually it's that the money situation's cut up properly. The unions are cut up properly. And it's uh, everyday business is about any other business. It's about making money and without killing and without wars. But, you know, like anything else, guys step over the line, do the wrong thing. And in this life, you lose your life for that. Did you just need um, sort of permission for taking a made man out? To kill somebody? Do we yeah. need permission? Yeah, you're supposed to go from, you know, you don't, you know, listen, we all do it. I did it. You know, yeah. you, you're clipping guys. Uh, Jimmy Burke and uh, his son, Frankie Burke, had a situation. He told me it was for his father from an old heroin deal, and me and him went out in Brooklyn, and we killed two guys, and I did it with him. And he wasn't with our family. Uh, Jimmy got life already. Frankie was a good friend of mine. He's dead. He got killed too. But uh, I went and did it on sanction. Uh, Frankie asked me to take the ride with him. I took it. And, and then, you know, I did the work with him because he was a friend. But uh, otherwise, if I get caught doing a, a piece of work, I'm supposed to be killed for it. I understood that. Yeah. You said we took Paul Castellano out. Were you part of that crew? And can you describe how he was taken out? Well, I wasn't part of the hit. I was a young guy, but I was privy to it. At the time, uh, you know, Senior again used his friend Angelo Ruggiero as, as a scapegoat because they got caught on tapes talking about selling coke. And, and Senior used the excuse of uh, Angelo and he shelves them later on, but he didn't shelve them. Uh, he actually promoted them after the Paul Castellano hit. So that story's bullshit too. He used that as an excuse to go hit Paul. And at the time, Paul had a couple of cases. It wasn't a sanctioned hit from the other families. And what it causes a, a big rift, but they hit Paul in front of Sparks Steakhouse. I think Sparks on 46th Street. I just did a, a show there last year. But when they hit him, there was a meeting there, and it was to discuss what was going on in the drug business and what happened with Jeannie and, 
Johnny and these guys. And when he gets out of the car, uh, him and Tommy Bellotti, there's a setup of guys to to kill, to make sure Paul doesn't leave that scene. Uh, backup car, it was a backup car at that time, was Sammy Gravano and John Gotti. And Sammy brought his gun, but John never brought a gun to that show. So this is the typical of uh, really what goes on. And this is the typical why people hear me constantly speaking up for Sammy Gravano. And, you know, so people understand at the time when I, when I was being raised in the Gambino family, I wasn't particularly close to Sammy. I seen him once in a while. I said hello to him. And I even was chastised by Gotti Sr. at one time not to get too friendly with him. I didn't understand at the time. But I guess Sr. didn't want me to get close to him because maybe eventually he wanted me to hit him, kill him if he wanted. So he didn't want me to have that feelings for him, so maybe I wouldn't do it or I would tip him. And, you know, I wasn't schooled enough at that time. I was a young kid when I first met them. But uh, I look at Sammy as, as, you know, I've said it over and over again. If he wasn't betrayed, uh, it would have been a different era. He was betrayed, completely betrayed. And anybody who listens to the history and follows it uh, and forget about the United States, this is a different country. So maybe everybody would understand, listen, this guy got completely betrayed. He didn't do anything wrong. We were in prison with it so, weren't we? Yeah, so we had an ecstasy trafficking operation in Arizona, and Sammy DeBoer was out there. That was their operation. And uh, Wildman was on the chain gang one day with uh, Gerard Gravano. Yeah, so Sammy got nailed a couple of years before us. So Gerard was telling us, you know, all the prosecutor's tricks and all that kind of stuff. I've read his book, Underboss, as well. So, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've come to be familiar with his side of the story. Before, um, just going back to Paul briefly, though, is it true that he was in a replica of the White House, prancing around in his silk pajamas, losing touch with the foot soldiers? So that weakness was shown, kind of. I don't agree with that. No? Is that I a mean, myth? listen, everybody's going to have their own opinion. I think yeah. he was, listen... Paul killed more guys as a, as a boss than any of the other guys did, more than John. So, wow. And John didn't kill anybody with his own hand either. That's, yeah. So that's bullshit if anybody knows the stories because somebody just sent me a message again. I heard he did this. Heard, well, you heard wrong. You're hearing bullshit stories. When they killed uh, uh, McBratney, he was there. He didn't kill him. They didn't even do it right. They couldn't get him out of the bar, and Galliano had no choice but to shoot him in the bar. He wasn't the shooter. But, you know, listen, Paul was... Uh, a big, big earner. So Carlo, when Carlo handed it over, I don't think it was just because of family reasons. He understood the relationship with Genovese family. He understood the money relation and the power that money brought to the Gambino family. And these guys are businessmen. And, and, and so the, the, the idea is to make money. It's not to kill. I made a lot of mistakes because I was shooting a lot and killing a lot, but that was also my job for a lot of guys. So, you know, as an organization, you know, if you don't have to kill guys and you can make money, that's the idea. And uh, Paul, I believe, was just a, he was a strong leader. You know, guys will make the excuse he was greedy, he was taking money. Well, you know, 99% of these guys are sheep. There's 1%, I've said it over and over again, of guys like me making money and, and killing. And you got some guys that just make money and then the other guys that just kill. But uh, you shouldn't be straightening out all these guys because they're somebody's son. They've never seen a fucking day on the street. If he's got killing, no though, and not making money, what's the sense in that? Well, and and that's the problem because you got 98% of these guys are deadbeats. They, they ain't able to earn. They just yeah. follow you that makes money or follows me that's killing guys and making money. And so, you've got you an expensive pay. Yeah, and, and, and so they're, they're crying about, you know, Paul or somebody, but go out and earn. You know, exactly, yeah. so when you got guys like, you know, 
uh, you know, Gerard, I don't know him personally and meet him personally. I talk to him on the phone plenty of times. So people that know who he is, Gerard's Sammy's son. And, but you know, he's also, you know, a gentleman. He's, he's, he's a quiet guy. He's low sp- spoken, he's low key. And the, the father raised him right actually. And, you know, and, and this is the point, a lot of these guys raised their sons. Uh, an example, Patty Catalano was a heroin mover and his son opened his big mouth to me one day. He thought I gave a fuck who his father was. I tied him up. I put him on lighter fluid all over and I beat him up and I was going to put him on fire. I mean, no one gives a fuck who your father is. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to respect somebody if you're a gentleman and if he's a tough guy. And uh, if you're a tough guy and not being a gentleman, somebody eventually is going to kill you too. So with Paul gone, the different factions of the Gambinos scramble for the leadership? Uh, no, it wasn't scrambled. It was, you know, it was a coup <laughs> and uh, Gotti had it arranged. And he, he uh, awarded himself the, the position. But the problem is he wasn't capable to run in that position. He wasn't an earner. You know, I just recently did a show and the guy asked me, he did, you know, it was Gotti. Would you tell me you're a better earner than Gotti? And I should have answered that a little different. I'm going to say, Gotti fucker couldn't answer, he couldn't earn two cents. Yeah, I was in 10 times better earner than him. But his guys were earners. There's a difference. His guys were bringing in all kinds of money from heroin, construction. He couldn't. He never made a penny from anything. Sammy made the construction money. Guys like Johnny Koenig made the heroin money. Guys like Mark Ryder. But John himself, you know, he, he wasn't capable. He was capable of running a gang. He wasn't capable of running a mob. And it was a big mistake, him coming into position. So we've got to actually never killed anyone. What, what gives him the right to take that position? Because he had killers around him. He had serious guys around him. Guys like Johnny Knigg was a killer. Tony Roach was a killer. Willie Boy Johnson, although he was doing what John Gotti Jr. was doing, meeting the government queen of the day, informant, was a tough guy killer. You know, he had guys that were killers, yeah. uh, no doubt. And that's what made him strong because he aligned himself around some serious shooters in earnest. But him particularly, if you follow the history of him when he was younger, he couldn't even hijack a truck right. So he, <laughs> and that's the truth about the guy. But I give him credit for other things. You know, the guy maneuvered people. He did yeah. do that. He put himself in a position. He, you know, he knew when to take opportunities. He took it. He surrounded himself with guys like Sammy Gravano and Frankie DeChico. You know, but when people see the history of this and they don't understand the mob, when they kill Paul Castellano, there's nobody to contest it. There's Peter, there's Peter Castellano who's not a tough guy. He shows up two weeks later to play cards at, the, at our club because he's not a tough guy. The older guy is Joe Gallo. He's an old man. You know, Tommy Gambino doesn't want no part of that. He's a gentleman. He's a, you know, he's a multimillionaire himself. He's not a gangster, a hardcore guy like that. He's just a nice guy. So who's going to contest this murder? He's got Frankie Loke in the Bronx on his side. He's got Frankie DeChico. So God, he does make some right moves. He takes, he aligns himself with all the young guys that are tough and the guys that have the power like Frankie DeChico and Sammy Gravano in Brooklyn and Staten Island and Frankie in the Bronx. Nobody contested within our family. The problem he was going to have is Vicar Muso with the Lucchese family and Gas Pipe and the Chin with the West Side. And these guys were going to hit Gotti. No doubt if he doesn't go to jail, he's going to end up dead. It's just a matter of time. And they, you know, they blow up a car and he's lucky he is in the car. It was the wrong guy who was in the car. <laughs> Excuse me, was in the car. And guys are getting caught on tape. Bobby Manning gets caught on tape trying to hit Gotti and Gotti's going to get hit. The FBI goes to his house once or twice and once, and we got on tape, we heard you're going to get hit. Gotti acts like he's not worried about it, but he was very worried about it. And uh, 
it was only a matter of time before they, you know, they hit him. And because of the way he carried the media around him, it was so hard to get near him. And I think that's one of the things he purposely did. He understood the media around him is almost like having law enforcement around him, which law enforcement did come around him because of the way he behaved. This is blanket of protection, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, so, the, the, you know, the media is for guys that are not active, not for an active boss. Yeah. Of and so he destroyed what Cosa Nostra was. You know, when you talk about Andy Ruggiano, you're talking about guys don't even know who he is, right? You guys don't know who he is. Nobody knows who he is, but he was one of the most powerful bosses around our area. And God, he just stepped into his position because Andy went to jail. Later on, he comes home, he gets sick, he dies right away. But these are the guys that, you know, if you're going to make movies about or do shows about, it's got to be about somebody like him. Guys like Robert, you know, Angles, people don't know who he is. He's a guy that got away from the life and he preaches now. And But these are tough guys from the street that were quiet. And uh, he never became a made guy, became an a associate, but he was known, you know, really known on the street. So you get guys like him and you, you look back and you say, if you're going to follow this life, this life's about being quiet, making money, being a gentleman, just what you said earlier, and uh, chudge along a little bit, uh, low key, and you can last. Yeah. When you, when you go out uh, like Gotti did, of course you're not going to last. You last four years. The public, you know, looks at him because the media built something up that's really not true. That doesn't exist. But it's it's probably the single worst thing that happened to the Gambino family ever, that uh, Paul Castellano getting killed. You're going to get haters too, aren't you, to see that you've got the money, you've got that. So they're going to start telling stories about you. They're going to try and bring you down or whatever. They'll try it anyway. They can, can't. They? If they can't physically come and get you, they're going to try and do it some other way. Well, you know, you get this kid shit now because, you know, it's a different era. You got cameras all over the place and you got guys on Google, again, yeah. like, like a bitch. Who, who does this stuff? On, know, you know, yeah. I mean, really, this is for kids. This is for girls to show their ass, to play around and flirt. And not for gangsters or legendary names, whether they're correct for being legendaries. You, you at one time, whether I like it or not, well, it makes a mockery of it, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, whether you like it or not, Gotti Jr. became the acting boss of the Gambino family. Do you imagine that he plays on, like, a bitch on these things? I mean, doesn't he look at himself and say, Jesus Christ, I'm embarrassing the fuck out of myself and my father's name. And his father's got to be doing tum tumble souls in that fucking grave. I mean, he's got to say to himself, what the fuck did I raise? What are we gangsters who don't even go out the house just on the laptop? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not on, I tell everybody, I'm not on Instagram, I'm not on Google for years. These idiots are arguing with somebody under my name that ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, and I said, well, you know, you'll hear them say, well, uh, they got to mention my, why would I mention their name? They do a movie and they get 300 people watching it because it's nonsense. Yeah. You know, people aren't stupid. You can talk to somebody and they can see through who's bullshit and who ain't bullshit. And of course. Guys in prisons with me like these guys know I'm aggressive in jails. They see me stab guys. They see me, they, you know, they know what I was about in prison and they know what I was about in the street. <coughs> so, and I tell kids the truth. I can take my glasses off and I tell everybody, I've said it on a lot of shows, I cried my eyes, eyes out a lot. I mean, that's reality. I'm a human being. I don't yeah. care how many people I hurt or how many times physically I get hurt. Mentally, there's a different pain. So when... You want to tell, you be honest with people, you got to be honest with them. You guys are in jail, you understand it. There's emotions, it has nothing to even do with you sometimes. It has to do with your family, the suffering, there's going to loss of life, not your own life, all this. So, you know, reality of this life is a lot of pain in it. 
And I've cried myself to sleep, man. Of course. I know biggest killers. I got guys around me for years that were killers and friends of mine, big killers, tough guys, shot up, this, that. And I watch and I, I held them in my arms for them and, and tell them it's okay for things that were going on where we're in prison with their family or somebody's dying or their son got killed. Or, hey, there's a million things that go on in jails. Things you can't control. You can't, like, yeah. as, soon as, as soon as you know that you got a call from the, uh, the reverend, you know it's not good. News. Yeah, you know it's not good. You know, you got guys that, you know, you, that's why I said, you know, we understand the life. Yeah. And I understand the treachery better than anybody now. Because, you know, you guys all know, there's lawyers all over. Let a lawyer go look into my case and see if I ever got caught with anything physical, ever. They got me. When I went to jail years before I went in and out of jails my whole life, I got caught. I got caught with a gun. I got caught. They thought I shot somebody. I got caught then. I got caught at assaults. But this case that they just tried to hit me with a life bid, I didn't get caught with anything. It's all these guys ratting, and these guys trying to switch the story. And I'm talking about me, guys. One after another, well, God, are you, you know, for people who don't know what queen of the day is, it's no fucking excuse. You call the FBI and ask them to sit down and talk to them to give up guys and, and talk about opening up a fucking prison. You're a rat. You can't change that. No. These guys were in prison with me when the phone call came. They'll tell you I didn't sleep for days. I said, I'm fucked. This guy's going to hammer me, give me 20 life sentences. And at the same time, his guys are giving me up. Made guys, captains, bosses, banana boss. I says, and they switched and said, I betrayed somebody. I never betrayed anybody. He's betrayed me. So the only difference is I'm not a sucker for you. Yeah, you find the ones that always call the rat. Uh, right, the rat. right. Yeah. I mean, listen, my mother's not on Google or internet, so my sister's. And, you know, you got your sister on there because it's, I, you know, from what I understand, it's him under his own sister's name. And if it ain't you and it really is your sister, what kind of fucking man are you? Tell her to shut the fuck up. Talk about herself, not about you. Unless you talk about my business with her. Oh, doing nails. You know, did you sit down and tell her that we killed somebody or we were moving drugs yesterday when, you know, in the days when we were doing it? Were you that weak too? That you told her that? I mean, I'm not sure where the fuck the girl's getting her information, if it's her or if it's really him. But the ability of the scratch they got to waste money to do this and waste that time. You know, I travel around the world. I'm in Switzerland. I'm here. I'm there. I'm in Germany. I'm in, you know, 15 countries. I'm busy. I ain't got time to sit on that internet and play these kid games with them. Where's your favorite country you like being? Just to chill, just to actually just enjoy. Well, I, you know, I'm all over the world. I go to Denmark because Klaus is there. I go to Switzerland. I got some good friends there. And I go to my country in Albania several times. I have family and friends there. But I love the UK because I got my, my buddies here, yeah. you know, and uh, we can relate to each other. We know each other a lot of years and we did some time together. So, and now, you know, us from Brazilian penitentiaries, these guys are here with me. So, you know, I got a lot in common here with a lot of people here. And, uh, you know, I got some you know, It's good you can here. see one another as well. Cause I'm not allowed in America. I got deported three times and banned for life. So I could never go back anyway. They had him classified as a menace to society. And I was sending, like, Mission Impossible-style teams through Canada and Mexico, bringing him back in. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, but here's the thing. I mean, you, you guys have the ability in a different way than I do to let kids notice, you know, there's a lot of suffering with this stuff. And that's really the message, right? Because they got to get the real deal of what goes on. So they, you know, because when you're young, you know, we're full of, you know, we take all kinds of crazy chances and we don't think before we do things. And then later on, you regret it. Instead of doing things like what you guys are doing now, there's opportunities for kids to do this stuff. And there's opportunities for kids uh, not to follow everybody's lead like a sucker. Sit on your two hands, you know. We just want them to feet. know it's not as glamorous as it looked. And it's like, you know, there was good times and there was laughs and there was, but 
it's not a life would give anyone. It's not a life would give me worst enemy. No, and and you know, and you guys at least were a group of guys who were friends and and friendly with each other. I'm involved in an organization whose treachery is crazy. <laughs> I mean, I just told you, so I I, not, I never got caught. You know, so let somebody explain when everybody's yelling rat rat rat. How the fuck did I get locked up? We actually got lucky. Didn't we? we had 155 core defendants, and there's only three people talked out yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, that was really lucky. I'm curious because we've only got drug felonies, and we can't get in any fucking country. Yeah. How are you going all over the world? You want to keep that secret? I'm special. <laughs> uh, you know what? Ten passports later, Brazil. <laughs> Brazil just recently let me in, and I had trouble getting in. But you, you got to remember, I go around from schools to schools. I talk to kids. Uh, I got a track record. Like yeah, I've been doing it almost ten years now. You got an like, Albanian yeah. passport? No, no. But um, I, I could get one anytime I want in Albania, and uh, you know, so you know what I'm doing is really I'm, I'm trying to tell a kid, don't do what I did because you're going to suffer and you're not going to live a good life. And you know, people ask me, well, you know, some of the things like even when I came back from Brazil, and they were, you know, they they got this kind of concept that I'm supposed to get life, and look at all the guys I shot and killed, and I went through numbers of them, and my last uh, interview, and I could tell you another 20 I did now. But extradition law was 30 years max. Coming yeah. back from Brazil, you guys know some of the stuff from extradition, and my friends know some of it. I, it's the most I could get. So when they sent me back, there was no more death penalty on the table, or they don't send me back, and I only get max 30 years. For, I did two and a half years in Brazil. Actually, that credit should have been almost nine years, just for that, for the, because of the, the torturous time you do that. But when I came back, I could take a plea out and the most I'm facing on that 30, cause you're going to do about 25. I supposed to get nine years off on the 25. So I was supposed to do uh 16. If I went to trial, I've got to watch what I say. You cause know? I can't really go back and say a lot of stuff. What I've really done because it can just have me back and lock me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I packaged my deal after Gotti ratted. So it was very simple for me here. And you know, I should be thanking him. <laughs> so people ask me why'd you testify again well, I testified against a rat I says, and, you know, yeah, yeah. so you know it's so yeah. even though there's no statute of limitations on murder you can talk about your stuff well it's part of my plea all of it I blanketed it all I put it in there's nothing I can do that's clever yeah yeah and uh, you know and uh, I made that deal back then and you know and I live a different life you know guys try to bait me all the time and I tell them the same thing. Listen, same guy. Easy for me to reach out. And actually, I probably got tons of guys more than I used to have in every country. They'll do anything I want for me anytime I want. I was going to say, so, you probably won't have to personally put hands on anyway. You nah, yeah, yeah. You know how many guys ask me, you know, you, you, you want me to hurt God? You want me to kill that God? You yeah. want me to do this? And I laugh. And I said, let him suffer. He's got to look at himself in the mirror every day. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. he can't bullshit. Listen, you guys are smart guys. Guys that have been involved in the street. He could spin that story all he wants. We were sitting in the penitentiary. These guys were with me. And he's making a meeting in 2004, 2005 to meet with the government, queen of the day. You're going to go in and talk to what the fuck you calling the government and ask them to talk if you don't want a rat. And in our laws, you know you can't go in or you're a rat. You went in, made a deal, became queen of the day. And who the fuck knows how long you've been doing that for? We just found that signature on a couple pieces of paper. It could be years you've been doing that. Then went round so, and called every yeah, fucking yeah. else rats. And all I do now is, you know, he's talking about doing this, that, that other thing. You, you, you did 300 people in your movie. Just shut the fuck up and go away. Yeah. You know, you're ratted. You're not fooling gangsters. You're chased out of the neighborhood. You're chased off the, away from the mafia. You're chased out of every country. Everybody knows what you did. You got to wake yeah, up and Go away yourself. and shut the fuck up and act like a man at least and stop with these, these 
Instagrams and this nonsense. And aren't you embarrassed? Guys on the internet are calling you diaper Don. I mean, you know. <laughs> so how do you stop the guy? Really? I mean, you got to say, you want to buy your own? But listen, he knows, you know, guy looks in the mirror, he knows what he is. I mean, there's nothing else to say. So, you know, but when you look at countries like here with my friends that know me and they're in jails with me and they're in, you know, from the streets and they you say, see the he's not fooling anybody. Yeah, no. everybody knows he's full of shit. And, 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 you know, we joke about the way he blinks that he lies all the time because he blinks so much. And that, that's been since he's a kid that was nicknamed. So, I mean, do something positive. Teach some kids something. I don't exactly, know. Exactly, yeah. They're not calling El Chapo's son diaper Don after today. <laughs> um, going back to, I was going to ask you about the blowback and you touched on it from Paul's murder. But a lot of people watching this wouldn't understand what you said about the chin. And could you just explain who the chin is, what the beef was between the two families and what the retaliation was? Well, you know, in a mob, you can't just hit anybody you want, especially a sitting boss. So any boss from any crew, unless it goes to the commission and everybody approves it, you can hit the boss. If you don't, the reason why they're so strict with it is because they could be the next guy getting killed. So uh, Giganti was the boss of Chin. Giganti was the boss of the Genovese family. He was probably the most powerful family, even though you hear the Gambino family was. But Giganti had, and they were known to be a very quiet, powerful family. And uh, Lucchese family, uh, Amuso, Vic, also from Howard Beach, same neighborhood of Gotti, uh, despised Gotti. And he was also very powerful, and he was aligned with Lucchese with the Genovese family. So they decided on uh, what Gotti did, obviously, was against Cosa Nostra law, and we're going we're gonna to hit some guys and make sure that uh, they understand that we're going to hit Gotti too. So they hit Eddie Lino, uh, made guy for Gotti. Gotti didn't hit nobody back. They hit Frankie DiCicco in a, in a bomb. They didn't hit anybody back. They hit Bobby Borriello in front of his house. They didn't hit anybody back. They hit Joey Scopo, that guy he placed as one of the acting bosses of one of the factions, the Columbo family. We didn't hit anybody back. So this was the rhythm of what the public and the kids and everybody doesn't understand. And then when he got in trouble, he blamed his goomba was Angelo Ruggiero, and he fucked him and shelved him and blamed him for getting caught on tapes. Yet Gotti got caught on more tapes than him. And then when he got caught again, he fucked Sammy Gravano, and he blamed everything on him. And then he fucked Frankie Loke, and he wouldn't let him even defend himself or meet with his lawyer without him being there controlling the case. So Frankie got life. You know, so that's history. That's the truth. So, you know, on a personal level, uh, you know, I could talk about the, the outside of the, you know, the God family, and I always tell everybody the same thing. I don't want to do that. I'm talking Cosa Nostra. I'm not talking about, you know, the like him, like a little bitch. Yeah. You know, so... That's him that does that stuff, and that's why he's not man, and that's why people don't respect him. But on the other hand, at least his father was a street guy. At least his father was a gangster, and at least his father, maybe he wasn't you know, good at what he did because he really wasn't. He, you know, The media needed somebody to be a sucker, and he raised his hand. He was a lot more real than his son, though. No, he's a street guy. I mean, listen, yeah. his father His father went to the same high school as me, Frank K. Lane, Brooklyn. The kid was born with a little silver spoon in his mouth. And then when daddy left, his own sister wrote an article in 1992 that uh, my brother doesn't have the stomach for this life and he can't do it. And then he filed a million papers against me when I came home from jail. You, you know, he, fill, he filed it with my parole. He filed it with the FBI. He filed it with Washington, D.C. He had his sister file. They all filed that I'm going to kill him. So, and then he wants to talk nonsense. I ain't going to kill him anyway, but what are you filing all these papers for? Yeah. 
And, and then you filed in the, when you're on the courthouse steps and you said your life's in danger. So just go the fuck away. No one cares where you're at. No one's paying attention. And stop this nonsense calling yourself a boss because that's a fucking joke. You know, you, you, you got put in a position because your father was in that position. And your father happened to take down not just the mob. He took down his whole family. It's almost like a child attention seeker, isn't it? it? Because he ain't, you know, he's not, he never got there. You know, he just doesn't know what it is to be a man. If you watch a weak guy that's like him, he stays with all weak men. And I'm not talking physically. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody, that my, I got friends that never got into a fist fight and they're the biggest men around. So I'm not talking, I'm talking about gentlemen men that you can have a conversation with. He stays with clowns, complete clowns, because he wants to feel like strong. He wants to feel important in front of him. I stay with men. Yeah. And, and those men make me a more of a man because they're, they're intelligent, tough guys, whatever, businessmen, you know, guys but you're that you don't respect. You don't think any better of anyone else. You don't an equal. Uh, the only insecure guy stays with guys like this. It's, you know, it's an yeah. insecure quality. You're not fooling anybody. You can't get on an interview. Ask them to do a show with you. To please come and I want to ask you some questions. You want to ask them that, did you say on, on YouTube, I only ratted on my enemies? Well, I definitely ain't his friend. So did you go and make queen of the day? He can't come talk to you because who's going to bullshit? You're going to hammer him. You're going to say, what the fuck are you talking about? You went in and you made a deal. You became queen of the day. Yes or no? Did you say, I said it a joke on not how many interviews and shows I did. He says he only ratted a little bit. I says, well, I got that broad pregnant just a little bit over there. I said, fuck are you talking about? You ratted. You had the ability to give me 3,000 years. How'd you do it? Just a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Right. And these guys will tell you that, you know, these guys were away with me when they, they heard me on the phones. And I was trying every escape plan there was out of Brazil penitentiary when this guy was talking. I said, I'm fucked here. And then you got other captains saying, if I'm not nice to Johnny A. Light, that he's going to kill me. What kind of statements are these guys making? Yeah. Well, you know, allocuting to positions in the mafia. Yeah, a lot of allocute. What do you change the laws? Now you're allocuting, and you're allocuting to the existence of the mafia. So you, when it's convenient, everything changes. Well, with just what Jeannie Gotti did to Joe in jail, you disrespectful fuck. Joe never fucked with you. Joe didn't have an ego. Joe was a quiet guy. You ain't going to turn that around at something. There was too many guys there. You know, Persico was there, the boss of the Colombo family, his brother, Teddy. There was a million, I can name a million guys there. You know, so. Probably the respect from the whole mafia has gone, haven't they? Because there's that many people who just talked. And, and you, you know, you, when you have that many people talking, you lose the structure. When you have uh, guys that don't belong in that life, you know, you got like, you know, and it was some nice guy, kids, like Vinnie Butch, Corallo, you know, these guys got straightened out in my house. You know, he's a nice kid, I guess. Big yeah. kid, good looking kid. He's running around with Gotti. You got no business. You know, he's a street guy. What the fuck are you doing in there? You know, what, what are you, what's wrong with the father? What are you making this kid for? But this goes on day and night. Where I had a kid, you know, I talk about this other kid, Banano Skipper, Ronnie Gialenzo. I call him a punk too. I mean, he set up one of Gotti's brother-in-laws for me. And then after I left him there from the street for dead, this idiot picks him up and takes him to the hospital. Who's a rat? You just set him up. What kind of gangster are you? You got scared he's going to die, so you don't want to get blamed with it with me? And then you want to call so me a rat? So you took him to the hospital? Yeah, he took him to the hospital. I said, And I sent the message after that. I should have chopped this fucking kid's head off. You're setting a guy up, who the fuck are you taking him to the hospital? Now, that ain't a rat. So you, you just want to sell pills and you want to sell weed and you want to sell whatever, a little coke, and you want to run around with a crew of jerk-offs and say you're a gangster. 
Listen, <laughs> please call for anything serious. Oh, oh you know if I they picked him for that, he was going to give me up. What, <laughs> what he, I was amazed that he took him. I go, why the fuck did you take him? Because they thought he was going to die. Who gives a fuck? I said, that's why I left him there. Yeah. Uh, you know, but how do they change that? I don't know. It's, you know, it's mind boggling. You know, if you want to be a gangster, that's what you do. So you said when the chin was retaliating, Gotti was absorbing the blows. Was his game plan just sacrifice these people, I'm the boss, absorb the blows and ride it out, not go tit for tat? Listen, exactly. He was going to throw anybody under the bus to keep himself out there. And listen, we're in this room. It's being recorded, right? We assume every room's recorded. Why the fuck am I going to blame every crime in the world on you? Why am I talking about it? Just because I know if it's bug, I said, see, listen to those tapes. I didn't have nothing to do with it. It was him, 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 him. I mean, there's nothing else to say here. We're not working on Wall Street. We're not bankers. The fuck you talk? Our laws, when you commit a crime, they're not supposed to be spoken about, especially a murder. It's a death sentence. Mm -hmm. So when he brought up these murders, what's that about? I want somebody that's a, you know, a historian to tell me what's it about. I want them to tell me why isn't everybody writing this? Why, why are they sending a false message of the history of the mob? Because some guys in the media wanted to build up this guy to be what he was, but that's not reality of, of who it is. Would you want him to be your boss? Would you want him to be your boss? Who's going to want him to be your boss? When this is what he, a, a real boss, a guy that stands in front, he takes the weight. He's the one that's doing all the shooting. He's the one going, okay, you're at a certain position now, and you know, your, your days are over, but you never were a shooter before that. And you stole a position because you had a lot of friends, without a doubt, that were fucking very loyal to you. Johnny Koenig won. And the reason why I like Johnny is because he was a nice guy. He drove around on boats and bikes, and he had a good time. He wasn't want to sit in a club all day. And that little bitch, Gotti Jr., stealing all his money when he went to do 50 years because of his father, you're stealing the guy's money. And then you got a brother that's fucking you because he's all high and he's too weak to handle John. And then, you, you know, these guys want to know where's the loyalty. There isn't going to be, I was supposed to kill Gotti Jr., See, uh, the, the brother Pete Gotti, even though I like him, he was in the package, and the brother-in-law Carmine. The same guy that gives me the guns, Charles Koenig, gives me up that he gives me the guns for $700. So when people ask me, well, you know, didn't you testify here? Fuck yeah, against the guy that just gave me up on a fucking triple homicide I was going to do, because he's a junkie. He's not his brother. He left his brother suffering in jail. His brother couldn't get a favor out of me. He had to come to me through him or through his uh, adopted son. That's the reality of what these kids got to know. You know, and I like Johnny. I still like Johnny. I don't know what his sentiments are, but he knows his brother was weak. When you get away with crimes for years, there's a degree of arrogance. We were joking, we're above the law, we're never going to get caught, all this kind of stuff. So Gotti goes to all these trials. He's got this killer legal team, gets named the Teflon Don. Do you think that just fed his ego and made his guard slip? And he spoke more to give more evidence of. No, because he beats these cases because Sammy takes the reins and tells us all how to get to these, these juries. We're all in on it. Sammy's the one running the show, but we're all part of it. And he's getting, so John knows he's going to sit there. He's got his chest out because he ain't going to jail because Sammy took care of it. So everything Sammy saved his life, how many times? Sammy has the power. Sammy has the guy. Sammy's making the money. So... You're fucking jealous of Sammy and you're trying to fucking hammer Sammy. And listen, they can, the rest of the mob, when Sammy testifies, they can blame Sammy all they want. Here's what I'm going to say. The same thing I said to these guys when I was in prison. 
well, you guys are gangsters. This is the Gambino family. Why didn't you fucking kill Gotti Sr.? And Sammy wouldn't have to talk. He had cuffs on him. He's in Manhattan jail. Never had a chance to get free because of Gotti just hammered him on a fucking thousand tapes. Kill Gotti. In jail, kill him. And it's the same thing with Junior Gotti. I'm sitting in the penitentiary. Why the fuck he's killing him? Aren't we the Gambino family? Isn't that what we do for a living? So when it's time to kill these guys, why aren't you killing them? Because they got that name? What the fuck does that mean to me? So that's the realistic part of the, in the mob. And the realist part of Sammy, he's got to be frustrated shit. And then all these guys, whoever he later on implicated or whatever, it's their own fault. Because when Sammy was on the street, he was taking care of business. Why didn't you take care of it for him? And you left him desolate. You know, it's not like you had a chance to go kill him. And you know how many guys are in prison? You give guys never getting out. You guys know. Hey, give them a million. Hey, the family, again, if we give you a million dollars to your family, you're near Gotti in jail, yeah, stick them up. Stab them up, kill them. Why didn't you just do it? When you want to be the mob or you want to be fucking Girl Scouts? I, don't, I mean, you know, you have a choice. I mean, these days it's different. I understand that because of technology. It's not the same. There's cameras everywhere. There's cell phones everywhere. It's a little more difficult. But in those days, not at all. It was easy. We're not offering a million, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not worth a million. <laughs> <laughs> I give you ten. I'll give you the ten. On. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fifty dollar bag of heroin in yeah. Arizona prison. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. take you out. What made Sammy the ball such a good underboss? Because of what you guys said, he didn't have an ego. He was humble. He was, you know, he was quiet. He didn't run around yelling and you know. He did the work. If he didn't do the work directly, he made sure somebody else did the work. And he was a big fucking earner. And he had a great crew of guys around him. So. He had the whole package and, you know, he got a real bad fucking, you know, and it, he spent a lot of time later on in jail. And I think a lot of that is, you know, because of what happened in his past and he got hammered, but he conducted himself different. I said it from when I was a kid, when I first met him, John tried to intimidate me, which he did intimidate me. I was a kid. I won't say he didn't intimidate me as a kid. As an older guy, I was a little smarter. And I looked at him different, and I looked at him like most guys looked at him. You probably want him dead. But Sam, he didn't try that with you. He looked at you. He said, hello. He didn't try to scare you off. He didn't try to intimidate you. He was secure with himself. So it was a, it was a different human being. And, uh, you know, you get guys in those positions. Like Vic Muso was in the neighborhood, and he was that type of guy too. He was okay. He wasn't one of those guys trying to intimidate anybody. He went about his business because he was secure in his life, and he was a fucking killer. So he, he was no soft guy. Uh, so these guys were legitimate killers, gas pipe. Maybe because John wasn't one of these guys. There wasn't a killer like that, that he had that insecurity complex. I'm not sure because I didn't have those discussions with him, but who the hell knows? I'm not a psychiatrist. But uh, some of these guys, that's why I say when you, you, you talk about Sammy, people hear me talk about him. He, he got a bad shake. What was your first meeting with Sammy like? Yeah, just a long goodbye in 80, something like 84 or some shit I see. But, you know, we're always at the clubs. We're always in the, you know, we're always at the Bergen or the Ravenite. Or, and you hear this nonsense. Well, there's no pictures of me in the Bergen. You know, I hear all this dumb shit from people on the internet. And I'm like, because at the trials, they played a video of me at the Ravenite. At the courthouse, I'm picking up Gotti Sr. in Brooklyn. At his house, I'm coming out of his fuck. How many pictures you want from me? I'm not fucking George Clooney doing a show. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you, you know, <laughs> so... And the nonsense, and you know, these these are people that don't know the life or the gaudy, you know, ass kisses or whatever. But if you understand the life, and and guys in every crew understand this life, 
And it doesn't matter what family, or, you know, whether it's New York mobster, Chicago, Philadelphia, whatever. We understand one thing, right? We understand that you make an appointment to see the FBI. It's done. You're a rat. Finished. And I've said over and over again, and the son, try to open up the Bronx House of Detention. You know that, right? Get the paperwork, and he admits it. He was going to open a jail to put all those guys in jail and make money off us. <laughs> That's even worse of a rat. So, you know, and he admits it. So I don't even know what these conversations are about. I'm in a penitentiary in 2005 trying to save my life with these guys. I says, and we're getting information one after another. These guys were all giving me up. You know, it's not, you know, if, if, uh, if I didn't want to go nowhere, I would have saved my millions, about 35, 36 million at the time, my houses, my nightclub, my parking company, and I wouldn't spend a day in jail. And I wouldn't ever have to leave my family. That wasn't my choice. My choice was to be loyal to Cosa Nostra, be loyal to my enemies, and be loyal to my, my friends. And in return, they all fucked me. Did you feel like very betrayed? Yeah, I was betrayed, but you know what? I, I you know, Like I said, listen, I don't give a fuck. I got a new life. I moved on. I try to tell kids don't follow the same shit that I did because look what this. You know, here's an example. Here's an example. Here's an example. And uh, move on with your life. I had a crazy life. You know, I, I, I moved around from country to country, getting chased all over the place by Interpol. I got guys trying to kill me at the same time. I'm trying to save my own life, trying to save money. All my good friends betrayed me. And uh, somehow the story got mixed a little bit here. But uh, this guy's a lawyer. is very easy to see. Did this guy get caught with anything? I never got caught. Now you can go country to country freely. Yeah, I mean, some countries don't let me in, despite what you guys just joked about earlier. Uh, I can't get in Canada still. I'm trying to get in Canada. They won't let me in. There's a couple others, and I won't mention because I don't want them not to let me in anymore. I don't think so. There's not a whole lot in Canada anyway, <laughs> apart from Baker. I got some bats. family and friends there, and, oh, you know, know, yeah. So I, I'd like to see them. I got a good friend of mine that does a TV show there. But, uh, I used to come over the border from Canada, Niagara Falls, Buffalo, New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I went there, Buffalo, New York. I couldn't go on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people are fascinated by the inner workings of the mafia. So say John wanted someone killed. How does that go down the line? If if I wanted somebody killed, John? If John Gotti wants oh, to have somebody killed John, as the it, boss, it, it, how does it go down? It depends on who it involves. So if it, let's just say it involves uh, somebody that Sammy could get near. He's going to go to Sammy first with it. You know, when we killed Louis De Bono, I'll give you an example, Sammy really didn't have that much information of what happened with Louis. You know, he didn't know that hit went to Gotti Jr. as a, as a, a first hit as a captain, and John brought it to me. And then we had a discussion, me and John, with Bobby Borriello. And, and from there, you know, he gets hit. So uh, that's one hit. It depends who has the access to a guy. And you try to keep it close-knit as, as much as you can. So it's not in 10 different people's hands. They killed one guy, I forget his name, offhand Jewish guy. It might have been Weiss. And I don't know how many guys got hit with that murder. I think that's what that was, that murder. They, like 10 got, different guys got conspiracy to get murdered. To get to to murder. It's the most ridiculous thing because a lot, it's not like people think there's not that many guys out there doing these shootings. You know, everybody thinks everybody in the mob's a killer. It's not even close to accurate. Well, what's the preferred method to take someone out? It depends on the guy and the individual too. I mean, if it's me, uh, you get you're gonna hit him first. I, you know, I'd rather hit him to the body if he's moving because it's gonna slow him down. Then you put a couple in his head, but. 
if you have them, like you have some guys, you just shoot them a couple times in the head because you always got to hit him with a headshot, make sure you finish him. Uh, guys make that mistake and uh, they leave them live. And sometimes those guys that have lived, they're coming back and they're killing those same guys. So, you know, it's, uh, it's when, when you're going to do your work, you got to do it uh, precisely and you got to do it like a professional, really. And, you know, people say, well, it's cold. Well, it's the truth of what we were doing. So it is cold. Yeah, I met a guy in prison and wrote his life story. And he was a banana associate, went out to Alaska and formed his own clique out there. And he said that his preferred method was right in here. So the skull, the skull just shooting them so mm-hmm. the skull doesn't circumvent the bullet. So when you say in the head, did you have a preferred part of the head to shoot them in? Yeah, if you're going to shoot them, you shoot them two, three, four times. It doesn't matter where you shoot them in the head. If you're shooting them that many times, <laughs> he's not getting up. From close range, that is. Yeah, I had an idiot guy that was with me once, and he told me, you know, I think he's alive still after, you know, a couple of days later. And I'm like, well, you can't be this fucking dumb. But there are guys that it is dumb. Yeah, in Arizona, they had us do the concealed weapons permit classes. It was actually cops who taught us how to kill. Well, yeah, actually, I went and shoot, and that's who taught me how to shoot. You know, I used to go shooting range in Florida. Yeah. And there was an ex-cop that, that taught me how to shoot. So for home protection, of course, they taught us this. Um, shoot him in the chest. And, and the head. Yeah. And then you got the heart always, and the yeah, brain. Yeah, yeah. It's always, a, it's always a body shot. So did it ever, other than the one that you described then, were the mess-ups during these hits that things just got really out of control? And You know, guys will talk about whether it's a, it's, whether it's a murder or whether it's a robbery. It's, it's not set up properly, meaning you're getting bad information. So say John asked me to kill somebody and I bring it to you because it's somebody, you got to give me the intel. So you tell me this guy's at this location and there's only two people there. Well, there's four. You tell me there's no alarms, there's an alarm. You tell me there's no dogs, there's two dogs, three dogs, five dogs. You tell me there's nobody else in there, there's no women or children, there's women or children. And this happens a lot because you're getting guys that are idiots. And, you know, a lot of these guys aren't good at what they do or they're scared and they don't really want part of it, but they got no choice. So it just depends on who you're bringing with you and you better know who you're bringing with you. If it's children, would you abandon it? Would you abandon it? If I notice children wearing a killing, yeah, 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 and the, you know, I don't have any bad, you know, you gotta have morals like that, haven't you? No, I don't. I, I don't have any bad murders like that. I don't. Yeah. You know, when people ask, you know, I don't have anything. I never robbed uh, or killed anybody in an armored car. The guys used to ask me, I say, I ain't doing it. I ain't. I didn't. I didn't uh, sign up to kill regular guys, man. I don't care you who calls them what names and oh, he's a cop. I don't give a fuck for that nonsense. No. To me, I don't look at nobody like that. I never did. Not then. Not now. If he's if a gentleman, a he's a gentleman, he's a regular person. Regular per- uh, yeah, I ain't judging anybody what he yeah. does for a living. But if he's a gangster to me, yeah, he's open. Yeah. Okay. But when I when I used to do home invasions, drug dealers, I tell all my guys, you fucking kill anybody here, I'll kill you. Because it's not necessary. You can control the room if you're good at what you do. You don't have to kill anybody. You don't even need to shoot anybody. But if you're going to shoot them, you better not kill them. And they knew that from me. I never killed anybody on an armed robbery and no- nothing. And I don't have any killings like that. I don't have any shootings like that. When I go after somebody, my shootings are for what I want accomplished, whether it's to kill them, whether it's to hurt them, whether it's to, you know, butcher them. So, yeah. So if you go on a job and there's four people instead of two, do you abandon the mission or do you improvise? It depends. I, I, I you know, Gotti gave me a, an armed home invasion of a doctor that was beating his wife in Florida. And the cousin, uh, John DiGiorgio, who was another guy that was an informant on a drug case, and it's Gotti's first cousin on the mother's side. So when he gives us the hit, uh, the robbery, excuse me, 
he, he leaves out the part that he's sleeping with the doctor's wife. That's first. Second, he, he leaves out the part that it's across the street from the police station. Third, he says the guy's got a million in cash and doesn't tell me he's a doctor. Doesn't tell him. Fourth, he's supposed to have guns for me. He didn't have any. He's supposed to have a, uh, a car for me. He doesn't have that. I went with two guys from Brooklyn Court Street. They were around Bobby Borrello's kid Stevie and Joey, uh, Spanish guys. Nice guys. And when we get off the plane, they say, uh, uh, we ain't doing it. And I said, no, we're doing it. And they said, no, we ain't doing it. I go, Steve, Joe, we're down here. We're doing it. Don't worry. I'll get in. We'll do it. And we end up doing it. They weren't happy about it. And, you know, I tied the guy up. I wrapped him up in a uh, carpet. I cut the carpet off the floor, mm -hmm. actually, for a straight edge razor. And didn't go in with a gun because the idiot didn't have a gun for me. And he had a dog. He told me there was no dog. He had an alarm at the police station, everything I just said. I, I still tied the guy up. The guy was begging me. He goes, I'm a doctor. I don't got that kind of money. I knew as soon as he said that, this motherfucker got his cousin, his fucking the, the wife. Personal and uh, and Gotti and is too stupid to find out himself the details. And that's not the first time. I did another armed robbery of uh, Colombians, four kilos and in Queens, his other guy, Vinnie Fursey, left me in the, in the house. One of Gotti's other guys, another guy, Frankie Finelli, I did another armed robbery of uh, a major uh, car ring guy. Left came you being run off. Ran off. Frankie Finelli, another one of Gotti's guys, ran off. And a guy, Chicky Alito, told Gotti, get rid of this guy. And made guy, nice guy, tough guy, actually. Him and his kid and Gotti betrayed them. And they stood away from Gotti. But these are some of his guys. These ain't my guys. Yeah. My guys never did that to me. But these are weak guys that, you know, they're, they're, they shouldn't even be in this life or pretending to be in this life. And every one of these guys left me. You never so, run off to leave another man in there, do you? That's just like... Yeah, they just, you know, the guys, like I said, you know... There's no they, point in even turning up if you're going to do that, is there? Your button's going to get pushed in yeah. this life, no matter what. And they're going to see if you got, you're going to hold your mud or not. And if you can hold your cheese. And, you know, these fakers, they ain't making it. I mean, if you're in this life, you're gonna. It's gonna happen exactly what happened to me. You're gonna get batted. You're gonna get beat up. You're gonna get stabbed up. You're gonna get shot. You're gonna do all kinds of time in jail. These guys will tell you I fought left and right in Brazil penitentiaries, knives, everything else. So when guys want to fake it, I've stabbed guys all over the place in the street. That's part of it. And you're gonna get it. You're gonna. You're not just gonna give it. You're gonna get it too. Mm. And you know, it's unfortunately that's the life. And it's you know, not one way street, is it? No, it's not one way unless you're going to choose your your spots and you're, yeah. you're a complete punk and you're going to go with ten guys all the time against one and two. And but that's not reality. When I got stabbed up, I went in against five guys, so I knew I was going to get it. But you know, I wanted to accomplish what I wanted. I wanted to get one of the guys. In I hindsight, did. would you have done that again, or would you have done it differently? Now, you know, when I talk now, it's like I'm talking about a different guy. So I say in hindsight. Yeah, yeah I know what you're saying. But, you know, when you're younger, you, you, you're a little more wild. Yeah. You don't think as much. As you get older, you get a little smarter. You handle things a little different. You're a little more patient. And, you know, as I got older, I, I learned patience. I mean, I waited nine years to kill one guy. I waited. I talk about it. I waited six years to get another. I waited about five to shoot another guy. So I waited. I, you know, I learned. And in jail when we were there, you know, I waited to get a guy. I, I paid a cop to get over four cells to stab a guy up. What he done? And uh, him and his friend gave up uh, things we were doing in jail. So one of them was uh, on a street. And so I got to him and, you know, but you got to be patient. And, you know, it's part of it. And so you, you learn, the, again, you got to learn that, you know, what you're given, you might get back. And guys try to hit me on a daily basis. So yeah. guys are always trying to kill me. 
How many times have you been shot? Just once. Just once. What was that? And story? it wasn't. It, it it was just a drug deal. And, and uh, when they pulled on me to rob me, uh, I really didn't think the guy was going to shoot me. And I said, "Get the fuck! You ain't shooting nobody!" And he shot me. <laughs> so what, what did he shoot? Yeah, he, he shot me in the hip only. But he could have killed me, you know. But he just didn't have it in him. And you know, and he took the money, and I just shook my head like this is my own fault for being a jerk off. But uh, I really didn't think. And, he probably would have shot you out with fright, though. Huh? He probably would have shot you out with fright. Yeah, you know, it, it, listen, it's part of the life. I mean, listen, I laugh about it now because at the time, I was more steaming. I got stabbed up, stabbed, and I, I was really hurt. Yeah. But actually, when I got shot, it went in and out, so it didn't really, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as you, you would think. I would think it would be a lot worse, but uh, with the stabbing, it was, it was bad. But, you know. It's part of it. Listen, after they stabbed me, they baseball batted and they hit me with a car. They did everything. So, you know, and then, you know, I got caught out there a couple of times where if it was a different guy, I'm lucky it was a more serious guy because if you get caught with more serious guys, if you get caught by more serious guys, they, they finish it. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so, you know, a couple of times I lucky. Then I had a crew of guys who were trying to kill me for years. And they were serious. They killed a lot of guys. And I went after their guys and America's most wanted guys. And Which crew was that? Gene Eady crew, Double Vito and this kid, uh, uh, Frankie Fornadello and uh, Tabita. And they, these guys were wild. I mean, there's some wild kids out there. That, you know, so when I talk about some of these guys like Ronnie G, they, these guys ain't tough guys. Some of these other guys were tough kids. They were killers and the shooters, the young gun kids, uh, the Antonucci brothers and, uh, and another kid, Kevin, uh, that's doing life. He's, you know, they, they grew up with me and you know, tough, another kid, one of their guys, they killed him, Marty. These guys were out there shooting, killing. And you, whether you like them or not, they were tough guys. But some of these other guys, you know, you talk about these guys ain't real, they're fakers. They, got they were actually real. living it, though. They weren't talking about it. Yeah, they, they, well, they it. live in a different era. If they live yeah. in our era when everybody's shooting and killing, you know, everybody's dead in my era. You know, so. <laughs> how, how wild was the Mayo's crew and what did they get up to? Yeah, well, the Mayo's crew, if you crossed in the wrong way, you know you were going. If they if they pitted Jane, Gotti knew that. Gotti didn't go nowhere near him. Gotti knew that if he wanted to kill, he was finished. So, you know, he was a serious, serious killer. His, his, all his girls, Santas and Testas, his whole crew of guys were uh, serious fucking guys. And, and that's what you're talking about, real killers, not the bullshit that you got some of these young kids now that talk all that garbage. So they were running a slaughterhouse, basically. Yeah. I mean, you know, you ain't. Listen, if they, if they were tagging you as the number, you're going. Yeah, you said you ripped off some Colombians. Were they weak Colombians? They no, they were no. The they tried to hit me. They tried to hit me after that. Uh, they came looking, laying on me at a bar, and someone caught the move and they called me. And I was walking up my, past my house, and uh, they they opened fire, machine gunned on me, and then I went back after them. But they didn't know where I lived. They just knew the car, and somebody told them the car was actually. They almost hit my brother by accident because they went there and they said to him, "Are you John?" And he and he looked like me. And he went out to them, and he was like, nah, I ain't Johnny. Do you know who he is? He says, no. Nah. And he's like, all right. And he went back to the bar, and somebody else told me they went. And I said, oh, they know the car. Because when we did the, the move, I went through somebody, and I parked the car a couple blocks, but I didn't think they knew the car. I had a brown caddy at the time. And then they, I parked it around the corner from my house, and they laid on the car. So I went towards the car, but I knew they were looking for me. So I kind of set it up that way. I put the so car that's why you didn't park outside your own. I got rid of the car after that. And, yeah. you know, after a while, they came around and I, I just laid low for a little bit. And I tried to clock them. They moved from where I made, you know, when I did the heist. And 
I did it with counterfeit money. Besides, I mixed it in. Uh, Gotti was involved with me with that. But uh, after that, that was, uh, it slowly went away and they never came back. They moved off. I used to do business with some serious <coughs> Colombian guys, a kid, Henry. They killed his father. He was involved. And when I went on a run, I had some friends later on, cartel guys that helped me move uh, from country to country. So I had some hooks outside the country. I wasn't a typical guy. I moved around a lot out of country. Do you have nightmares about any of this stuff? I don't sleep good. I don't really have nightmares, but I don't sleep well at all. PTSD, you know? anything like that? Yeah, yeah, I got PTSD. I was diagnosed with it. Somebody made a joke about it, and I'm like, all right, you know, you want to fucking joke around about it? You know, you, then you don't understand it. Guys that were in the Army, they understand it. Guys that seen a lot of killing and action in different ways, you know, whether whatever they did for a living, they understand it. So uh, some idiot made a comment about it, and so... so. If they don't understand the reality, I mean, listen, I don't give a shit what anybody says anyway. But I say the times wake up, yeah. I go right up like that, and sweating and hot sweating, I can't get my breath. It's like almost like I'm panicking. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I get a lot of lightheadedness and stuff where you don't want to move. And uh, people say, "Well, you seem pretty normal." I mean, listen, it's relative to your existence, right? You can yeah. be normal, but there's times like uh, if you ask me to sit here and talk to you tomorrow maybe i'll say i can't do it you know so it's just uh it's part of life yeah it's, you know i deal with it like anything else people watching this are going to be like why didn't you ask him for a full brazil prison riot story can you can you run one of those down yeah i mean listen we're, yeah i can and you know we're working on something a group of us uh of doing something with a television series we're in the middle of a couple of negotiations with different people on on what went on in brazil and some of the guys and uh, around the world with friends with us and some of the guys from the UK that helped us while we were there. So, uh, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of stories out of, out of Brazil, but uh, one of them was the secretary of defense actually came into Brazil penitentiary. I caught a beating and they wanted to move me out of uh, the prison. And uh, my lawyer says, listen, they're taking you out to a hospital because it hit the newspapers and everything. I told my lawyer, you ain't fucking moving me nowhere. And tell them no, ain't nobody moving me out of here, or we're gonna have another riot in, inside the jail. And these guys knew that. And they, you know, I got beat up pretty bad. And I said to my lawyer, "Set up ten guys. I'll pay them." You know, my lawyer, had, I was sending money left and right. And I'll, you know, I'll pay you all ten guys, but I want guys that are good with guns. I want them to follow those trucks when they take me out of the, out of the prison, so I make sure they don't kill me on the way out and dump me. So, the that you know, we got in touch with. You know, different guys. They got carloads of guys, military, ex-military guys that we hired. And they brought me out to a hospital, but it wasn't for about three weeks. And, uh, and when they see me get out of the, out of the uh, paddy wagon, they say, well, his face doesn't look bad. He says, fucking three weeks later. Yeah, said, yeah. I mean, I got beat up. These guys, I got beat up pretty good. But, you know, this is everyday business with us. And, you know, part of that is at the same time, the warden that was running a jail, he uh, and his assistant warden, assistant warden had the warden killed. And this is part of what was going on there. And he, you know, one of the new wardens came in to see us. We were downstairs and he's like, we want to, I'm going to work with you guys and stop corruption. And we told him, listen, you're a nice guy. Get the fuck out of here. We don't want you to stop corruption. And you're going to get yourself killed because he was an ex-chief of military police. Anyway, a couple of months later, he's trusting it. He, at first, he wasn't trusting the assistant warden who was acting warden now. He was walking his kid to school and they killed him, military. Uh, and he didn't listen. We told him, listen. So do good. <laughs> he didn't understand the money that was being made through yeah. the system. And he didn't understand how many guys were involved. 
and this is Brazil. So that's just some of what we went through. And, you know, when they brought the Secretary of Defense to talk to us, they wanted statements out of us, and we all said the same thing. No matter what they say, tell them, no, we got no problem here, and we don't know what you're talking about. And that's what we all stuck to, and they interviewed us. And they, I guess they brought guys like equivalent to our CIA or FBI or something. Yeah. They were black suits and ties, and, you know, they're sitting there listening to us and acting like they're in our favor. And we all know if you open your mouth, maybe they're going to take us out the back room and shoot us. You don't really know what they're going to do there because guys were getting killed left and right. You're not accountable over there, are you? The doctor, I mean, they could just kill you. Listen, they were raping inmates. The guards were raping inmates, you know, like crazy there. So, you know, one of the guards that we had on the payroll was crying to us one day. We were, he was drinking with us. We paid him. They brought us pizza. We're all hanging out. And, and he starts crying. And we're like, what's wrong with you? And he says, I can't do this anymore because they were upstairs at the same time raping a couple of guys. And we told him, and he was part of it. He's crying. So we said, what the fuck are you crying? What are you raping them for? He goes, they made me because they didn't trust me if I didn't. So this is, you know, but this was everyday life for us. But at the yeah. same time, we're, we're bribing our cops that we got on our side. And uh, we're controlling them through our guys. And we're also threatening them. And we're getting information from our cops. And some, what you want well, know. some of them, we're getting information where they live, their families. Yeah. So we're threatening them back. And then at one point during the riots, I don't know, it was all over the news here in the States, I, I believe also. During the riots, some of the guys that we're involved with, they're ordering murders of cops that were killing guys in, in the street and in jail. So when they're answering their door, guys are killing them. I mean, we're not behind it, you know, personally, but we know of it. And guys that are in different factions in jail with us are letting us know this is going to happen this week. So, uh, and then they accuse me of... Uh, causing a riot between with the bomberos and the police. Federal police and uh, firemen that were locked up were in our prisons. And there was a riot, and they accused me as being the leader of these corrupt police and firemen that we were the riot, and they sh shifted me out to another jail, Bangu 2, which is another penitentiary, and I got a good beat as a welcome there. I guess the warden told that warden to, to, to hurt me. So, uh, I mean, these, you know, but we're all of us, you know, these things are, Typical for all of us guys that were there when, you know, O was there a little longer than me. I believe he was there almost four years. So, you know, Klaus was there a couple of years. I was there a couple of years. This was everyday life for us. And then there's days when we had some fun. I mean, but we made it and people ask you, listen, you, you know, we had a good camaraderie of guys and we stuck together and we paid our way and we fought our way and we bribed our way and we did whatever we had to do to survive. And so uh, the situation with us was uh, up and down. And it was volatile always, and you know it's our lives day and night there on risk. You can't even, you can't, I can't even tell you, you know how dangerous it was. How many prisons have you been in? How many years? In Brazil, I was in uh, three, and then that holding, so four. Uh, in this country, uh, United States meeting, I was in Philadelphia, New Jersey, California, and Florida, and I was on rounded jails. I mean, total, I don't know, thirty-five, forty jails. I've been everywhere. So in Arizona, it's all the racial gangs. How did your crew fit in? In the States? Yeah. Or in the, in the States, listen, I had a lot of friends. I grew up in a neighborhood, and you know, guys know I have a lot of black friends. So, you know, I never had a race as far as I look at skin. Like, you know, most guys like McKee in prison, I think I talked about this recently. You know, the blacks eat on one side of the mess hall, and the whites on the other side, and Spanish ride mostly with the whites. I used to sit with my friend Butch on the black side always. And maybe other guys might have said something to somebody else, but I grew up with them. You know, we were friends, we were tight. Uh, 
and I never looked at color on the street. Now I got a lot of black friends who grew up with me. I just don't like racism either way. If it's black against white, white against black, Spanish against Spanish. I think everybody should judge each other for each other. So, you know, the same way we were in Brazil. All of us guys, we were from every country, every race, and we stuck together and only gave a fuck what race you were. And, you know, I, I grew up like that from my parents' belief of uh, the way they raised me. So they never had no color uh, thing with them either. Their friends, one of their best friends were black, and their daughter was my good friend. And, Why do you do that so, in America? I think it's because they think it's tough in numbers. Beyond me. I just don't like when, when groups, whatever group it is, goes against the weak number of group. You know, so it always is, happens. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest group, like the blacks will get with the, the, the Chicanos, and there could be a small majority of blacks in, say, like Arizona. Now, if we were in Philly or somewhere like that, it'd be completely different. Yeah. But it was a small minority of blacks. Does that kicking off of them? Oh. And you just say, "Can I go a minute?" You see them all lined up, and there's like I don't know about eight hundred, and there's like forty blacks. Yeah, it's not even fair, like is it? Well, right? well, jail's geographic. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, this kid from Philadelphia, Joe Mecca, he was a big kid, six four, benching five hundred pounds, and a little skinny black kid knocked him for a loop. Right? Oh yeah. And the guy Joe had a big mouth and. The kid knocked him, but then a couple of the black guys jumped in to jump him. I'm well, I just got out of the bucket myself. I was in a hole for another fight. I'm walking up the tier. The last thing I want to do is stick up for Joe because I really think he's got a big mouth. But I stick up for him because this guy's jumping him. I don't care if he was, it was the opposite. He was white and it was four black guys and five black guys. Well, if he was black and it was four white guys, I would have jumped. It was, if he was my fight friend, it was unfair. Right? So I jumped for him and I, I fought this guy, Muhammad. And Muhammad was probably about 270, 280, and he was about 5'10". And I, he, afterwards, we go to the hole, and he, he said, John, I thought well, you were my man. I thought you were my friend. I says, we were friends, but I ain't let you do what you just did. You yeah. jumped in. First off, the skinny kid fucking whacked him. You didn't need to jump in. I said, second, ain't happening, because then the next guy walks up the tier. It may be me, and everybody thinks okay to jump. I said, you guys know the rules here. You know, they, I don't got to teach them anything they don't. They already know. And there's a friend of mine, Terrence. He's another guy that was there, this black guy, that happened to walk in a family pizzeria that we had, and he was telling a story. He didn't know it was me in there. He just happened to be telling one of my old partners the story. And he says, that's John, man. He's right there. And then I came out, and I was hugging Terrence. And all his brother, he's got a big family. His friends and cousins were telling the story. He said, yeah, this guy will fight. And, you know, to me, it didn't matter the color. It just mattered that, you know, that don't it just ain't the right way to fight and if you yeah. want to fight fight but don't do it that way i mean there's times when a guy deserves two guys to kick his fucking ass or three guys or whatever but on a one-on-one something like that keep over it nothing, one-on-one, keep it one-on-one. he was beating him anyway and joe ain't no fighter he, he's lifting weights and it didn't help him because this skinny kid fucking took it to him so you know in arizona it's good to know where the shanks are buried but well, it sounds like in Brazil you needed an artillery in your no, cell. In, in Brazil we did have an artillery. We constantly, you know, were moving around weapons and, you know, the, listen, machete. You got to have a machete, but machete's not good enough. You need guns, and in those jails we had everything that. We well, you're not had. plugging a machete, are you? <laughs> you got these people in America plugging <laughs> and, and machetes, like. <laughs> you know, there was riots there. Guys got shot. You know, there's different things, but we had guards. The yeah. most important, I had, there was some really close guards with me, this guy Santana, uh, and he stayed loyal to me from jail to jail. I was just talking about him yesterday with the guys, and just a real good guy, and wasn't about money only with him. 
because later on when we had trouble, he stuck with me. And when I went for another prison, the money was dry, and uh, I had problems, and I, knew I was in serious trouble. I was one of my friends with the, the guard in the tower with the big gun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had, the t- we had the towers. We used to go out like once a month. We were out. It was not a yard yard. It was rocks and shit and yeah. dogs. And we were, we were like, you know, you have to be in your underwear with no shoes. So you're naked and uh, we'd walk a little and uh, they had the gun towers and they shoot at the walls above us all the time. If you're too close to hear it and there's bullet holes all over the walls. And, you know, we were talking about uh, one time me, Klaus and Owen, a couple of guys about blowing up one of the back walls to escape, you know, because you you, you get out. What's the problem was we didn't know how to coordinate it. And then we didn't know how to control those tower guys. And we were trying to figure it out and, and we never did that one. We, you know, some of these we tried on a regular basis. If there's a shakedown, do you have a special place to put the machetes and the guns? Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were talking yesterday. We used that in the shitter on the ground. Uh, we'd get one of the kids that had no money and we'd take care of him, let him use phones and stuff. And we'd wrap his hand in plastic and shoot, shoot the guns and the, the cell phones in the shitter all the way to the back. The machetes, no, we dug it under one of the concrete beds. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know exactly how we did it underground. I don't remember, but we left some uh, uh, machetes there and a pistol under there. And the, and the shitter is really was the main spot for the phones and and the and the weapons. How easy was it to corrupt the guards in the American prison system? No, a little harder, but you know it could be done. And you know I got to guy Kimmel. I used to call Kimmel uh, Flash. Yeah, Flash was. I don't know if his name was Kimmel actually, but. Anyway, the guy we called was Flash, but I knew when I got to him, uh, Danny Marino was a captain in the Gambino family. He okayed the guy, Charlie Ray. Charlie Ray was a snitch. And uh, I told my friend at the time, Nino, don't trust nobody. It's just for you. I'll get you the stuff. You want to give it when you're out, but don't tell him where it's coming from. And he told us Charlie Ray because Charlie was approved by Danny and uh, he set everybody up and he got a woman agent to come into the jail and so maybe it was about 12 or 1 o'clock at night, and he didn't have my telephone number. So somehow they got my father's number, and I happened to be there. My father was sleeping. He says, they, John, it's an emergency. Some guy's on the phone, Flash. He said, he need, I knew right then he was taping the call. I said, this guy's pinched. And uh, so they got me for that. And when they surround my house, they come surround my house, this guy Sweeney. He knows me since I'm a kid, big agent, six foot six. Nice guy, actually. He actually talked up for me to get me out on bail. <laughs> when they locked me up when they surround my house. They're all over the place. I got 12 dogs, and one of my dogs almost bit the guy or bit one of the agents. They're on my roof. They're all over, and I'm like, oh, I'm fucked. So when they bang on the door, and he says to me, I says, what am I being arrested for anyway? <laughs> so I'm thinking it's murders, right? So he goes, like, oh, that, that's it? All right, no big deal, because I said, oh, it's bullshit. You know, because they they came strong, you know, so I figured when they came like that, it's, you know, they come at four or five in the morning. Uh, and You think it's something like very serious, wouldn't you? Like murder, like you said. Yeah, I thought it was something serious like that, and it wasn't. And, you know, it was, so it was no big deal. I mean, it, I got violated. I got charged, and uh, then I got violated also. And I, so I went in, I got out, I went back in for a couple of months again. How close to the mafia work with the police, politicians, judges? There was a, a mayor, Milan, from Camden, New Jersey, that was hooked up big with the Philly guys. and So I had some information back and forth about property and whatever. I didn't know him good. 
But when he comes to prison, he's in the same prison as me. And I go see him in the music room and I'm talking. I go, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, duh, just stay away from me. And I laughed. I said, you stupid fuck. You should have said that to us before you got pinched. Now you, pinched. <laughs> now you need me. <laughs> so I used to say to him, I used to go break his balls once while in a music room. I go, stay in the music room. I said, you learn your lesson now. He goes, fuck, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I've got some other questions that are coming here for you. Um, facing life charges, you were never caught with drug, drugs and weapons, and assault or shooting or any physical evidence or audio or videotapes. How did you manage that? Yeah, that's what I was saying. These guys, it was guys like Gotti goes in for Queen of the Day, and you know they never have evidence on me. Nobody caught me with anything. Nothing. I never got caught selling a line. I never got caught with a fucking joint. Nothing. So when these stupid fucks are talking about rats. Well, I want these idiots to explain to me how did they pinch me? It was all guys that were informed. Listen, I move on for that. I don't even give a fuck who did it. I just don't, you know, there's a list of guys. There's guys like Peter Sicaro that's got a big mouth that was an informant. He went on, he was one of the guys testifying. So, and there's guys that did testify against me that that I like and I'll talk to them. I'm like, I understand it. It's your life before mine. It was a good buddy of mine. Kevin Bonner became a big witness. He actually tried to kill himself because he was testifying against me. And he's really, to me, I, I forgive him. I've said it over and over again. He's a nice guy. They, they hit him on the chin. He got 10 years. He didn't rat. He got 20 years. He didn't rat. He got 27 years. And he finally gave me up. But he's also the guy that drove Gotti Jr. home as a kid. Right? He's a great witness. And he says, I drove him home. Gotti killed the kid. He said he killed the kid when we were kids. That they, they were at a bar and he stabbed the kid up. His girlfriend testifies. A couple other guys testify. And Gotti can't get pinched for a fucking murder. And meanwhile, they come to me and they go, did he, you know, did the guy kill him? I said, this fucking rat ratted on me. Of course he killed him. Yeah, and I, I said the same testimony. And no one, he can't get pinched because he made that fucking deal when he went in for Queen of the Day. Yeah. It's a state case, no, no, no statue, and he's, nobody will lock him up for it. That's just one of the reasons why he went in for his deal. But guys like Kevin Bonner, and I had guys and other guys, I don't even want to mention names of guys I like, because... Honestly, I understand it. My life's moved on. I go talk to kids, and I don't call these guys rats. And, you know, Kevin has sons out there. Hey, he, he saved his life instead of mine. I got it. But at least Kevin's man enough to say, and he tried to take his life because he didn't want to do that to me. But Gotti, the problem I have with Gotti is he couldn't be a man on the street, and he can't be even a rat the right way. He ain't even got the balls to say truthfully he went in. He switched the story a hundred times. I mean, you guys know, everybody knows. You go in for the people that don't understand and you make a meeting with the government. It's for a purpose, one only, to rat. And they call it queen of the day and it gives you the ability to say anything you want and then can't be charged with it, any of those crimes. And he did that. And who else knows how much more? Who cares what they wrote on a piece of paper? Because we don't know if those meetings were consummated on the, that day or he's been running as an informant for 10 years or 20 years. We'll never know. We just got his hands on a couple of papers of his. So there's no way to change it. But he panicked. He did his own videos. I only ratted a little bit. I only ratted on my enemies. I only ratted because I had a weak moment. I didn't. I love that. No, no one could go to jail. There's another good one. <laughs> no one could go to jail only if I put him there. Like, in other words, whatever he said, he's got to testify to or they can't get charged. I mean, some ridiculous statements. But we know our laws. And once you made that meeting, it was only to be an informant. And once you made that meeting, we don't know how long you were informant. It could have been three decades for all we know. And I know in 1992, your sister wrote a letter saying in the newspapers, you don't have the stomach for this life anymore. And it's out there in public. So 
who knows? But I don't really don't give a fuck about him either. I just don't like the idea that he changed the story. Don't put it on me. Beyond you, because his whole life he's put it on somebody. You know, go eat what you did, carry it, and move on with your life. I've called Sammy the Bull before in my past, but I've said I'll take that back now from what you told me, because he he's the one who got ratted on also, wasn't he? Yeah, if you check, Sammy just did an interview. I think last night or it's out. It just came out today. With Patrick. With Patrick. Yeah. And Patrick's a very bright guy. So he, he's nobody's dummy. He does his research. He knows. That's why I say guys like Gotti, I'd love him to do an interview with you. And then after he's finished with you, go see Patrick and let him ask him real questions and say, well, what business, what was your intentions of Queen of the Day? Why would you make that? What is that mafia's laws? What happened to Willie Boy Johnson when he did exactly what you did? We killed him. Well, your father ordered him dead. Uh, you know, you were going to open up the Bronx House of Detention and make money off of all those guys that were from the street. So to explain that. You know, explain, you know, you can't explain it. So don't you, there's no reason to explain it. If we get Gotti, I want to do the Gotti with you as well. <laughs> oh, I'd love to be at that. People, are, <laughs> yeah, if you want to watch the, the interview with Patrick, with John, it's in the description box below this video. On a question about the law then, we had conspiracy, continuous criminal enterprise, state version of RICO. Even when there's no physical evidence, how hard is it to beat RICO and conspiracy? I mean, state RICO, I think he's going to go back 10 years, I believe, right? My, mine went back, I think, 25 plus. So I think it can push it to 30 years. I mean, my indictment went back to 80 something. So it's fucking almost impossible to beat these RICO cases. Um, I hired tons of lawyers. I hired tons of investigators. And the Middle District of Florida, at the time, the prosecutor himself said 54 guys went in against me. So it's not like it's a number picked out of nowhere. Uh, I had guys like uh, guys that are, there's a guy, Marco DePinto, if anybody's interested in watching a video, Gotti paid him to do a video and talk against me. And Gotti, I guess, paid him because he sent all my paperwork in when we were in Brazil penitentiary to the United States government to try to get me a life sentence and uh, uh, death penalty, which was off the table once I was in Brazil. But he sent those papers into the government. So this is one of Gotti's guys. The Accardi brothers, they also testified against me. Gotti gave them an okay. Scott Barron is an attorney in, in Howard Beach. Gave him the okay. That was in a newspaper, him ratting on me. And Gotti said, oh, he's a regular guy. Let him rat. Meanwhile, they're all making money off this Scott Barron. It was his weightlifting partner. I mean, I give, give you that list of what he did. It's a fucking scam what this guy's done. But uh, th th this is the reality of the treachery of what went on. So kids who've got gangsteritis who are watching this and they're out running around wild and shit, they don't realize, you know, if, if one of their crew does something, that can fall on them. They could be... Well, the thing they don't realize is this. And I've said it, I think, on his show. Ralph Natale, boss of the Philadelphia mob. So you guys, the kids that are listening to this, or parents that want your kids to hear, became an informant in a rat, right? Joe Messina wore a wire, banana family, became a rat. The Valdiarco and the Lucchese family became a rat. You got Whitey Bulger in Boston that killed him in jail, became a rat. You got John Gotti Jr., Gambino family, became a rat. This is what you got. This is not normal treachery. It's treachery behind treachery behind treachery because they think all their friends are their friends. But meanwhile, they're making phone calls and they're giving up deals. Just like Gotti did when we're sitting making a deal, he's in a back room telling the feds after we just had the meeting, right, queen of the day, this is what they're doing. And it's not on paper. You're not going to see it. The problem is, the, the, the thing is, when he got caught, 
this is what a bullshit Aussie is. Watch the timing on when he got caught and go look at 60 Minutes. He did three 60-minute shows. And I asked, I called Stephen Croft, and I like Stephen Croft from 60 Minutes, and I called him a blowjob. I said, what kind of fucking interview did you give this guy? You threw beach balls at him, but you didn't ask him why he ratted. You didn't ask him why he was queen of the day. And his answer was, well, Gotti's lawyers didn't allow us. They gave us the questions. And we had a standby or we couldn't do the interview. It wasn't me. It was my editors that accepted this. But yet they wouldn't let me go and answer to them. I did 60 minutes on legalization of sports gambling. Yeah. But they wouldn't let me answer what he said. They wouldn't let me stick up for Sammy Gravano. And, not, and I wasn't Sammy's guy. I was around the Gotti's, but- what happened to Sammy was a scam, a shame. And, you know, so these kids that are believing in what I've we believe that, in, they, they didn't have any clue of what was going on. And I can name on and on. Ronnie Truggio, I helped try to help him. And I told him he can beat the, if he beats the drug case, they can't extradite me from, from uh, Brazil. He's a captain, get me with him. And I said to him, I'm trying to help him beat the case. His good friend is the concierge of the family, Jojo Carrazzo, who never cracked a fucking egg. He didn't have a loaded water pistol. So here's the concierge, the Gambino family. I could bitch slap him up and down the street. He says, you can put a gun there and let him come in the room with me. He's going to run. <laughs> so when, I, when I'm talking about these guys, he's no longer a concierge, but he was at one time. But when I'm talking about Ronnie Trucchio, his opening statement, his opening statement in 2006 is Gotti, Gotti and Johnny Alight are partners in a drug business. He said it 14 times, right? Go get his opening statement. He's a captain. I'm a captain in the Gambino family. So you just rat it. I mean, existence of the Gambino family, just ratted. Then you blame the Bonanno family, Captain Vinny Asaro, for the, for the young guns. So you just ratted. Then you said, if you're not nice to Johnny Alight, he's going to kill me like he does everybody else. Well, he didn't say it exactly like that. He said, I'll end up like everybody else, meaning I'll kill him. What kind of fucking statements is this? And then you got Joe Messina who's wearing a wire. He's giving information against me and everybody else. And you got Fat Dom. I like the guy, but he, he turned. He's given up. Mikey Scars is John Gotti's right-hand man. And he turned. And I got nothing against these guys, actually. I'm just saying, at least all these guys are men enough to come turn, whatever they did, and come forward. This guy is trying to bullshit everybody and, 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 and calling guys at rat pedophiles. Well, I guess he's a pedophile. Because who's he fooling? I want him to get on and do a show. When he, he, he won't go on the air. Instead, he bitches up and he writes under his sister's name like a fucking cunt. You mentioned the Whitey Bulger hit. Was that a spur of the moment thing or was that more No, the guys that hit Whitey, Anthony Arellata is a skipper with the Genovese family. He's a good friend of mine. Actually, he was in GQ here with me. Uh, I introduced him to some people doing a magazine and he's from Springfield. He, uh, he had these guys' brothers that worked for him. And uh, when Whitey was a uh, rat snitch and one of the brothers was, uh, they're wild guys and the guys that like being in the limelight, I guess. They got life anyway. They didn't give a fuck, and they butchered him, killed him, one of the brothers. So uh, I think Anthony told that story in, in, in GQ, if I'm correct. But I still stay in touch with Anthony, and he uh, he's not involved. He walked away from the life. And the guys that, same thing. He, he, I mean, I could go over the story over and over. The guy that he was told to kill the boss, the guy that was involved with him, he told him, I don't trust him. I think he's a rat. The guy was a rat. Yeah. So they fuck Anthony, and, they, and then they pinch him, and he says, well, sorry. And Anthony says, what do you mean, sorry? I told you he's a rat. Now fucking kill him. They wouldn't kill him. And then Anthony came in. This is what the kids have to see, because you're just the next guy. And, and then after you, there's another guy. Anthony, nobody wants to go out of the way to kill nobody or anything. Cause, and you know what? If you're making money, they take your money, too. Johnny Koenig never stood up, did 50 years, did everything for Gotti Sr. Gangster's gangster, nice guy. 
And everybody fucked him, even his own brother. So, and meanwhile, Gotti Jr. will shit in his pants if John was in front of him. He's stealing all his money while he's in jail and he's abusing him. And he's telling everybody he's a junkie piece of shit, cursing him out. His mother-in-law died. He had ordered everybody not to go to the wake in 94, 95. I believe it was we went. I made sure I went. You know, I feel bad for him because of what happened when he was gone. But he's a reality of what happened when, when these guys were gone. But Whitey infiltrated the FBI more than the movie showed. I don't know, you know, because I know guys like Pat Nee, who was involved uh, on the opposite against him. And they say he was involved in the IRA. Pat Nee was a nice guy. He didn't come off like a tough guy. A uh, gentleman also. He was at McKeon with me. And uh, he told me a lot of shit about Whitey. He's a fucking garbage piece of shit. This night when we would have all the Another guy, McCarthy, was there. Nice guy. Uh, Stevie was there. All Irish guys. The, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think the other brothers, they, the armored car guys, all from the South and Charlestown. And so I know all these guys. And, you know, from what I understand, uh, Whitey's always been a fucking, you know, double dealing, sneaky bastard. So, you know, they, but, you know, listen, that's the street. It's hard to get guys to be, lo- you know, to, to be loyal, really, unless you grow up with. I look at the Philly guys and some of them I think are big mouths and this and that. But, they, they, you know, Joey out of Philly, He's, he did something that was very smart out of all the guys. He stays with all his childhood friends. So all his childhood friends are pretty loyal to each other. It's a little different. Even though they're on a small stage, there's only like 15 of them. And, you know, you talk about New York, you're talking about fucking 100,000 guys. So, you know, but they stay loyal. And Joey was legitimately did his own stuff. Joey didn't need nobody to do any work for him. And so, you know, you got to give him credit there. You know, they got a little different thing going on a very small level. It's all about childhood friends, though. next one of these questions that's come in then what is the understanding to the Gambino family opposition to the existence of Cosa Nostra so it's back to what I said earlier if you know if if you're going to admit and allocute to to his existence how do you have structure well these guys you know you know we could change the rules all we want you know it's like drunk driving right they say it's one with one or two drinks, one drink, you can have two drinks, you're drunk. Okay. They catch me next week and I can tell the cop, listen, if you let me go, can it be three drinks today? So I don't have to go to jail. That's what they're doing. They're saying, okay, we're going to change the rules now because I don't want to do the other two or three years. So I'm going to admit there is the, the Gambino family. And their excuse is, well, they already can prove the existence of the, of the mob now. So why should I go to jail for another three years? I'll just go, you know, I could save that three years. I'll admit, yeah, I'm a Gambino captain. No, it's not that simple. I said, because every guy that talks, if you guys are active, it makes it that much easier to fuck his with a Rico case. He can't beat as it is. At least if guys are fighting it, they'll say, listen, I don't care what that guy said or that guy said or that court case said. This guy went to jail and he said that doesn't exist. So as case law, your lawyers can use that. So when these guys are switching and they're changing the rules, I'm Albanian. I'm not Italian. I don't got to live by their fucking rules, right? Because they said I'm not good enough to be strained out in your life. But then when it suits them, I'm the boss. When it suits them, if you will listen to Gotti's trial, he said, his lawyer said, I shot 60 guys. Get the tapes. His they don't trial. live by their own fucking yeah. lives, though. Yeah, yeah. So, you know and, I mean? I, and I said I didn't you know, shoot 60. That's, that's an exaggerated number. He says, but okay, I didn't have a computer. I'm not trying to yeah. play down anything I did or play it up. I really don't give a fuck. And then sometimes they say, oh, I didn't shoot anybody. Well, do me a favor, call the government and tell them they made a big mistake giving me all this time and can I have my money back because yeah. I didn't do nothing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, so listen, reality of the life is back to the same thing is, 
you know, it's a treacherous life. All this is treachery and kids got to understand it. And we got to save some kids so they understand that this life is bullshit. Were you disappointed you couldn't be a made man? Nah, I didn't give a shit. I says, I know when I walked in a room, there's no, you know, it's crime is an equal opportunity place. When I walk in a room and I say, I'm going to kill you, you're going to say, well, you really can't today because you're Albanian, you're not Italian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Excuse me, it's Wednesday. You know, I want to see somebody tell one of these guys from Ireland or Britain or anywhere that's a gangster and a yeah. tough guy, hey, you can't kill me, you're not fucking Italian. I'm a man. Yeah. It's too late. <laughs> so. Next one of these questions. What is extradition? And why did Brazil Interpol hold you for years to bring you back to the United States to face 30 years, not life or the death sentence? Well, again, the, you know, once, I, once I, was, uh, I left the United States and there was rats and informants all over the place, they sent out uh, one RICO indictment. I believe they sent out two, a superseding one. So actually two different indictments, just on testimony of informants. Who those informants are, you know, you know the, the thing what happened with Gotti is you don't know how much information he gave, because once they start giving this information, like Willie Boy Johnson, he refused to get on the stand. He just wanted to give information like Gotti was given. So we don't know how many Gottis were out there giving information against. I was to start saying yeah. they're like canaries, though, aren't they? Yeah. So you know when they're giving information like that, you can't get their paperwork. Gotti went and he said on one of the interviews, "Here's my papers of ratting, and here's Alight's papers." And I left. I went on a show and I says, no, I don't think you're getting this. You guys fucked me. And I came forward afterwards and I said, yeah, I'm going to fuck all you. But not like you, like a punk. I came forward and said, okay, now it's on. Now after you all fucked me, you all ratting on me, you're all foreman on me. I'm telling you now, duck for cover because everything I got, now I'm coming after you. Because you didn't have the balls to kill me another way. And instead you try to kill me this way. So same thing when I tried to kill them. I, I shot a guy. Stevie Newell, he did a he did a fucking interview for me. He did a if you watch, he's on a Reform Act. He does a, does an audio interview. He did, he was on Perfect Gangster with me. This is a guy I shot. This is a guy that worked for me in the drug business. This is a guy that says I was the smallest guy that worked for Johnny Elliott. I made fifteen thousand a month. And this is a guy to say that the Gotties were going to protect him and the brother-in-law. And after I shot him, they asked that same guy, "Can you kill Johnny Elliott for us?" Now. It, it, is that not fucking funny? I mean, so now you're this guy's talking up for me. And there's another guy on one of my shows. I, you know, we killed his brother and he speaks up for me. It says, if I said I shot 30, you better double that number to 60. So, you know, anybody that knows me from that neighbor, you ain't going to bullshit these guys. He said the same thing. Captains in that area answered to me. And of course, they're going to answer me. I'm making money and, I guess, and I'm violent and I had a ton of guys with me. So the power comes from that. You know, when people ask me now around the world, and you, know, you can ask Albanians and people who know me from every country, I got thousands of guys if I want. I, I, could, I could destroy Gotti tomorrow anytime I feel like it. I don't want to. I don't live this life. I don't advocate this life. I advocate this life's bullshit. I changed my life 10 years ago. I'm going to keep it that way, and I'm going to talk to kids and try to get it in their head. Look at my life. Look at what guy I was. Look at I'm the guy doing all the shooting and the work, and look at all these gangsters bosses like Joe Messina, whether I like them or dislike them, you're wearing a wire. Whether I like Gotti Sr. or dislike them, he destroyed the life. Whether I like Junior Gotti or not, you're an informant. You can't change that. You're, you're a queen of the day. There's no way to change. How that fucking crazy family tries to correlate what he did to me, if you watch, go read everything, 
we're in jail. What the fuck has that got to do with me, what you did? You ratted on me. What did you think I was going to do when I came home? If they gave me an opportunity to go testify against a rat that you are so I can get the rest of my deal, then what do you want me to say? I didn't rat on you. I left the country. I left my family. I left my family fucking dismantled. I lost all my money to do the right thing against my enemy. You can walk around with your head held up high now. He's got to look in the mirror every day. And know what yeah, and I think at the beginning, people didn't really know what went on. They didn't know the story. They, you yeah. know, they, got, they got a version of what they were selling, and he's got big money, and he pays for it. And then he blocked my Wikipedia, and he went on there, and he made a new Wikipedia. I couldn't get on it. It was locked me out, and all nonsense. Same thing with my Instagrams and, and Facebook. So I've been off it for years because of what they were doing. Yeah. And he's got a campaign of guys trying to instigate me to try to get me locked up again. I mean, all this nonsense is kid shit. But this is going to be his legacy now. He, and he's destroying his father's. I don't got to say anything. This is what his father's raised. And this is why his father never really respected the kid. So when you're on Facebook, you do little smiley faces. Yeah, I got a smile. <laughs> I'll show you my phone here. Like, see, I, got no, I got no Instagram or Facebook. I don't have anything. They're idiots. The, the people that they contact, somebody will screenshot something, something, and somebody will send it to me through one of the phone apps. Yeah. And I look at it and I laugh. Like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? I'm not on it. You're best without it. It's yeah, yeah, like yeah. the world of nonsense. Yeah. When I was in prison in Arizona, 5,000 miles away from my family in England, my mom had a nervous breakdown. How hard was it for you to be away from your family like that? You know, I bought a piece of property uh, for about cash, around 650000 And then I put a road in, actually with Gotti's trucks from a, he had a, a paving company. So it cost me about his costs. So I paid about another 150000 So it was 800. I built this. A house for my grandmother. I built a, it's only, I redid a, a, a garage, made it a four car garage, and I made it a, like a one bedroom condo. I built another house in the back for my parents for a couple hundred thousand. This is in the 80s. I probably spent a million and a half. I put an outdoor boxing ring there, had professional fighters like David Reed there and Prince Badi, Bobby Chez, myself. We were all there training and fighting at a pavilion of weights, had baseball cages out there, basketball, had all kinds of trikes, quads, bikes. I spent millions there. And, uh, I, I just, I went through all, all this money and, and all this thing and I moved my whole family there. I moved my ex-wife, with my kids, I moved my grandma, I moved my parents. I bought another house a mile away, not even a mile, half a mile away for myself. So I kept my family close knit. The biggest thing that destroyed this family, my family is not me getting stabbed up, not me losing my money, but me abandoning my family because I knew I wasn't going to either. If I stuck, stood around, I was going to get the death penalty or I was going to have to kill a lot of guys, and eventually I was going to get killed anyway. So I didn't have choices. So I came home to a family that's been dismantled, and this is what kids got to see. And my and I'm fighting over this for eight, nine, ten years now. And that's another thing that Gotti does. He steps into my family life, and he tries to get my brother. He tries to get my son. He tries to get my ex-wife. He's got no fucking set of morals as a man. And regardless what anybody says, I don't go near his children. I don't bring up his children. I don't bring up their personal lives. I know a lot about his father's brother that lives in California. I don't say anything. I leave it all alone because that has nothing to do with the mob. But you're such a spoiled little motherfucking brat that he can't be man enough with everything he does. And I can't be more verbal than I've been through this whole thing to say, yeah, you want to be a fucking gangster and you don't want to talk about yourself because you'll have that bullshit that I can get charged again. Let's talk about your father. Bring, let's just speak about your father. Come sit with you and just speak about your father. Let's speak about him talking in rooms if that and why. Let's talk about how he fucking blamed everything on Angelo Ruggiero 
But if it was true, what you said, why do you elevate him in a position after Paul got killed? And then you fucking shelved him, and then you wouldn't bother with him, but yet he's the one that brought you to Neil Della Croce because Neil was his uncle. This is the thank you he gets, the same thing he did to Sammy. The same thank you he gave to a list of guys I said that died. The same thank you he did with his family because people talk, well, I have other kids with other families. Yeah, I do, but I take care of my responsibility. But your father don't. He didn't pay for his children. He leaves them in the street desolate. And that's on tape from his prison. And then his family, let's go with his family, the Gotti family, the father's bitching because they talk about him, they exploit his name, but they didn't visit him in prison. Nobody even went to go see the guy. So this is, you know, whether, you know, John had a lot of good things about him, the father. You know, he was fun to go out with. He was, he'd laugh and this and that. He wasn't like Junior. Junior was a, just a miserable, insecure kid, but the father was fun to go out and party with. And yet, that family wants to exploit him. The kids don't even know him, the grandkids. They talk like he's, uh, he was, you know, the, the, the language is ridiculous. But why didn't you visit him? Why didn't you send him anything? Why didn't your kids visit him? Why didn't you send some fucking letters? He's on, he's on, he's on tape complaining like crazy. My own family don't come see me. But now Junior also wants to blame his father for putting him in the life. But then you want to keep exploiting his money. Keep selling his story. So which one is it, buddy? You want to be a fucking man and take it on? The, I'm not blaming my father for shit. My father, I love my father. He'll tell you he loves his father, but then he blames my father. Oh, poor me, my father put you in a life. And that's a lie. His father used to chase him away from this life. There's not a fucking thing that comes out of this guy's mouth that he's a man. And that's the, and he's too stupid to see it. And he doesn't see that everybody else sees it. So in Iceman the movie, he's got this parallel life. He's just, you know, slipping in out family life. Hits, back to the family, hits. Did you feel your life was like that at some point? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, you got a lot of things that you want. A lot of times you're cheating on your girl and your wife or whatever. You know, you're bullshitting them. You tell them I got to do something. But then it's a lot of times, realistically, you really got to do something. And they don't know the pressures on you because, you know, it's a ton of pressure. Every time you go out of the house, you're moving, say, 50 keys. And another time you're going out, you're going to make a deal and then you're going to kill somebody. Another time you, you're worried about, is this guy in a form and I got to go see him? There's always something and there's always so much stress, but the girls really don't understand what it is. And that's why I say a, a series really is very hard to do. And at the same time, you're fucking around like crazy with different broads because there is a stress level and it is a release because you, you, you got to go out and have a good time and laugh just like we did in prison with, the, you know, with Klaus and these guys. We, you know, people will say, fuck, they were having a good time. They're out in the rain. You know, in the cell, it rains in one section. We'd sit out there singing and drinking till we got drunk and fall asleep out there. But that's what keeps you existing, right? Because those fun little moments make you say, okay, it ain't that bad in here. And then the next day, the torch would us, so it wasn't that bad in there. So, you know, but that's part of, you know, the existence of, of the street world, right? The, the ups and downs. So when Pablo Escobar died, his son got on the radio and said, I'm going to rise up, avenge the death of my father. Then he re- got off the radio, he realized what he'd done, thought better of it. For your kids, do they look at you as something that to avoid or something that they aspire to at some point in terms of your, the bad things that you did? You know, you got guys that talk about me in a good way, mostly actually in a good way, and then you got jerk-offs that talk in a bad way. And I tell my kids all the time, I don't want you saying shit for me. I don't need you to defend me. I don't want you near this life. They're in good shape, my kids. They box, they this, they work out. And they're nice kids. They go to work. But I don't need them to be involved in this life. And I don't want to be, you know, I'm, if anybody fucks with my kids, 
They're going to see an old side of me. And I tell my kids all the time, I don't want that. I don't want you as involved. And I want you to feel bad. So stay out of this life. And if someone says anything about it, you say, my father's not hiding. He drives a convertible. He lives in New York. You want to see him, see him. But stop talking like cunts on TVs, on internets, and this and that. You got something to say, load a gun, go buy a box of bullets, and come see me. I says, but if you're going to talk about my kids, my kids ain't gangsters. I says, I was the gangster. And if you were that much of a gangster, you wouldn't be talking shit. I just abused this kid on the, uh, the last time, this Frankie Jadisi. The, the kid is Gotti's friend. His father stayed with Gotti's. His father died. He's a junk dealer. He never used a gun in his fucking life. He's another punk. When I beat his friend, he didn't help him back in you know the early years, in the late 80s, early 90s. When I had to collect money for Johnny Koenig with, with the stunt, he's meeting in front of a fucking precinct. Then when I got to go see him and Gotti, they're on telephones. They won't come meet me. You're the same guy talking about my. What are you talking about my kids for? You got a kid too, so you want to you you're telling kids don't stay with my kid this and that because you're Gotti's friend, because your nephew stays with your son stays with Gotti's nephew who got eight years for three different fucking felonies impossible, direct sales to drugs, I don't know how many sales he had on tape on video he cops out to eight years then he gets hit with another case for a bank robbery then he gets hit with another case for an arson and they don't give him any more time it's fucking impossible, so. When guys are talking and this kid's talking, only a punk does that. You're talking about my kids. Yeah. Well, fuck, my kids ain't gangsters. They're regular guys. They go to work. They see what you're doing. They see that you're doing good. Well, you know, I want to say, like, what, what I want to say is, but, you know, is you keep talking about my kids. I'll forget my past. And if I ever revert to the same thing, I'm not one of those guys. Anybody knows what I used to do. I kick doors in. I go right in your house. I don't got to wait nowhere. Yeah. You know, I don't want to do that life. I don't, I'm finished with it. But any normal guy, girl, Eventually police officer, politician protects their kids and family. Yeah. Only a fucking coward talks about somebody's kids, about, you know, any any which way. Family first, every time I'd kill for them, that's a fact. Yeah. I'll ask no questions. Yeah. So, you know, and it was easy for me, same thing with him. I could do what I want with him. I don't do it. So kids watching this then, if you're tempted into the gangster lifestyle, imagine John kicking your door in. Imagine Peter kicking your door in. That's the door you're opening when you're getting into that lifestyle. Do you think that the takeover of drug gangs has ended the traditional mafia power? Uh, you know, you got so many different gangs. You got so many young kids. And the problem is with young age, they're aggressive. You know, I used to tell guys that I was mad at when he said, why'd you send this guy? And I was saying, oh, why'd you send kids? I said, don't call them kids. Because when you see young kids come for me, they didn't come to talk because they're not experienced enough to talk. They're only coming there to hurt you. I says, if you get a little bit out of line, they know what they're going to do. I says, but when I send somebody else that's a little older, he's coming for a conversation to let you know if those kids come next, you're going to have a problem. So the problem is with young kids, they don't know the consequences. Sometimes it's too late. You know, I was telling a story the other day about a kid. It was a United States story and a kid broke up with his girlfriend and another kid was with the girl and he was walking her home. And I think, I think that kid was black, actually, he was walking home, but it wasn't a racist thing. It was just that he was with a girl, his girl. So he killed the kid, killed the black kid. So now that that girl is, the boyfriend's going to jail for a very long time. That poor kid lost his life for nothing. And while he's in jail, she's going to be with somebody else anyway. Oh, yeah. I said, what do you think? She's a young, I don't know how old she is, but 17, 18, 19. She's got normal. She's healthy. She's going to have sex with him. If I was the parents of the kid that died, I'd be sending pictures every day to that kid in jail. Say, here. Yeah, now, are you going to stop that? He was six or yeah, before he gets his day. The problem is they're not, I don't think they're being taught 
properly at a younger age. I think it's getting lost somewhere. You know, that we need to take a little more responsibility for the younger kids. And well, there's no them. respect a lot of them down. I mean, I, I, I can't just say London, I'd say everywhere too. But there's young kids nowadays that, I mean, they're going to university and that, and they're walking home from the university and they're getting stabbed yeah. for the phone and killed for the phone. Yeah. For a £700 phone. I mean, I don't see the point in that. No, they, I, I don't. I think they're losing a little bit of. Uh, I, I I blame a lot on schools, not just parents, because they keep saying parents and parents, parents. But the problem is the parents are at work; they're not home. Maybe they're from dysfunctional families. But the schools got to do a better job when they go to school from a young age, from five, six, seven. Instead of teaching them some dumb fucking class in phys ed, you know, in, yeah. you know kid wants to play ball, he's gonna play ball. You don't need to teach him phys ed in school, but teach him something about life. You know, well, do you need a, like a boxing or something to give. Well, I say every out. kid that wants to be tough. My oldest son keeps having issues with me, and you know, every family has problems. So, you know, you want to be a tough guy. My old, my oldest son, same thing. Go in a gym, go yeah. fight, go sit in the gym every day and fight. If that's you know that's what you want to do, get in the gym. Same thing with any other kid, because I know some of my friends are tough, tough fighters. Tough, they're good with their hands, and and then some of them pro fighters. Some of them never became pro because they were on the street and they got in trouble. But the answer is the gym, if you're mad. Go in the gym and fight. You'll get tired of fighting. But somebody's got to do something to help some of these kids to understand. I have a real good friend of mine that grew up was a murderer at a young age. He was a killer, young age. I got to give him so much credit because he turned his life around. And I had some, his family was involved against me and whatever and killings. But he turned his personal life around and became, made his kids such good, successful kids. And that's like a prime example that we can do it if you really want to yeah. do it. So I got to him. His name is Michael Stratton. And, and I got to tell you, he's, I, I, I use him. He doesn't even know half the time I'm telling my family. This guy really did the right thing. Or Richie Langston, another kid that grew up with me. That, you know, and, and Robert Angles, who I was talking to later. And these guys are all kicking back and helping kids and doing different things. Or, or Fat Andy's son, Anthony Ruggiano, he does things with kids and drug kids that got on hooked up with drugs and these guys got to be commended because it's easy to do nothing. It's easy to do what God is doing with me, right? Just keep fucking, do something positive. Why don't you come talk with me with school? Yeah. You know, why don't you do something when I'm talking to these kids in school? Come come with me. Why do you got to keep bullshitting everybody? Nobody's buying your story. No one's interested. They, know, yeah. they can see right through his yeah, bullshit. Yeah, yeah, everybody see through his bullshit. You could save that for his little neighbor, the little 50 friends he's got. Yeah. But besides that, everybody knows you're full of shit. So why don't you do something with your kids? I won't even say he's got 50. Yeah. He's paid for 10 of them. Yeah, you pay. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> what makes you think that kids listen to you? How do you measure that? Because of we have experience just what you, all of us do. You know, it doesn't have to be just with shooting and killing. It's experience of life, experience of selling drugs, experience of getting stabbed up, shot, experience of, of all the years in prison, and they know we're real deal. You know, if they think you're fake, yeah. I always say the same thing. When I did some talks with chief of police or this one, you need a conjunction of people to reach kids. That means you could talk to that police officer, you could talk to that therapist, you could talk to me, and you talk to you guys. And in conjunction, we could save some kids' lives, right? You're not going to save them all because, like, I wasn't ready for a long time. But we could save some of them. And by doing this, we, the guys were just talking to me, Owen, and would just talk to me about doing something here with an, another guy that does uh, Andy, right? Andy. With a guy, Andy, and he, they want to do something with kids and in a city. I'm all for it because somebody's got to reach out. And I think a lot of problems, not just 
the United States, UK, the ball players and movie stars and everybody else that got influenced, they need to fucking help a little more and stop being selfish. And so, you, you know, you got a lot of them child, are good. It was worth doing Yeah, that. but you got a lot of people that are such influence, ball players and, and movie stars. Fucking help some of these kids, man. You know, do the right thing. So a lot of them do do, but you need more of them to come out. Yeah. And if anyone's given any free gym passes, I could do as well. I'm 26 stone, for God's sake. <laughs> so cry for help. Yeah. <laughs> You've already covered the Queen of the Day question. Any more questions for John? No, it was a pleasure seeing you. And it was a pleasure to do an right. interview with you. How can people watching this video support you and find out about your work or book you to do talks or find your book? Well, they can get in touch with me through my website, www.johnelite.com. I got four books. I got another one coming out. I've, What's uh, the names of the books? I have Gotti's Rules, the first one. I have The Darkest Hour 1. Uh, Darkest Hour 2 is coming out shortly, right after the Christmas. And uh, Prison Rules is just, a, uh, just a, a handbook of factual. That's Nick Christopher that did that. George Anastasia, who's uh, he won all kinds of awards for best writer and criminal guy in the United States. He's like a, him and Jerry Capiccia, number one or two with the world of crime. And uh, Nick Christopher and Susan Pike with the Dark South. When this podcast comes out, we'll put a list all the all links. Yeah, we'll be yeah, in the description box. Yeah, and David Nash. I don't know. Can I? Uh, and my agent is David Nash from the yeah. UK. And obviously, I got to tell you, I'm, I got a big connection to this country because of all the stuff I've done here. Yeah. And uh, my friends that are here, and I'm trying to do some work here. And uh, so I'm advocating, you know, big here, obviously, in the UK. And, I, you know, I love the country. If we so could help in any way by doing whatever, we'd help. Okay. I appreciate it. Guys. Yeah, he's a hustler, that Nash. He's got a death threat on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the links yeah. to John's stuff are in the description box below this video. Please put your comments down there. Let John know how you felt about this interview today. If you've not subscribed yet, subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand box. Big shout-out to all the people who donate to support the production of the True Crime Podcast at this level. Patreon, PayPal, Just Giving, all those links are down there as well. And to all of the other episodes of the True Crime Podcast. This is about, I think we're on almost 60 right now. All hard-hitting stories ex-prisoners, ex-gangsters, ex-cops, ex-prison guards, on and on and on it goes. All right, John, thank you, guys. Thanks, thanks, John. Thank you. That was brilliant, man. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Uh, So I have this stuff out about my life. I probably did about 15 magazines in 15 different countries now. Uh, And my life became... (coughs) pretty public through some of the trials and some of the things that went on in my life. I don't know how many has did any research about me and about the mafia. I know people have an interest in it and the, uh, the truth and the falsity of really what's reality. And I try to go around and, and talk to young adults, kids about the realities of the mafia. Um, one of the things people are under the belief is I personally don't like the Gotti family. That's not accurate at all, actually. There's a lot of the people in the Gotti family I do like. Uh, Some of the in-laws I do like. Uh, One of them was Pete Gotti Sr. He became one of the acting bosses of the Gambino family when John Gotti Sr. went to prison. Pete Gotti was a sanitation worker that retired and he stayed with a lot of good guys, regular people, people like you guys, people like family members of mine. And 
when he got involved with the mafia, he wasn't a killer. He wasn't a drug dealer. He was just an average everyday guy. Go to work, go home, and he had a good family. His family, his children were nice kids, and that all got destroyed by the mafia. Pete Gotti right now is doing life in prison for being loyal to his brother, John Gotti Sr. Pete Gotti's daughter, Linda Gotti, became a witness for the government and testified against some members of the Gambino family in a double homicide at the Shamrock Bar in my neighborhood, Jamaica Avenue, Queens. Now, people will call her a rat. People in her own family will disown her. And I tell you now, she was a nice girl. She always was a nice girl. And that's one of the Gotti's. Pete Gotti himself was a nice guy. Out of all the Gotti's, he really was a nice guy, an everyday regular guy, until he thought, in his mind, he was being loyal to his brother, and he got a life sentence for it. His girlfriend, that he started dating while he was married, ended up taking her own life. His wife left him, and he has a son, I really don't know where the son's at, who wasn't a bad kid. That's what the reality of the mafia does to a family member, whether their last name's Gotti or whether their last name's any other last name that you guys could think of. So that's the reality of the real mafia that people don't see. Then there's the other brother. There's Richie Gotti Sr., John Gotti Sr.'s other brother. He had one of the sweetest kids around. His name was Joey Gotti. And because of this life and because of what he went through, he never got involved in the mafia. He took his own life. He took his own life because of what was going on around his life. And if somebody said to you, well, I heard Johnny A. Light doesn't like, or Johnny Elite, they call me different. My name's really pronounced Elite, by the way. But in my neighborhood, they say Johnny A. Light. And now, my life, they say Johnny Elite. They would say, you'd say to him, why is he speaking so highly of the Gotti family? Because Joey Gotti legitimately was just like you guys, just a nice kid that went to work and didn't want any part of any of the, the, the things that happened in, in his life. His mom used to open up the door to 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning for my cousin who dated their sister, Danielle, for six years. Danielle was a nice girl. She worked with children. She was sweet. She, the same way, always laughing, always looking out for somebody else. Dated my, my cousin for six years, and we go to that house at any hour we wanted, and the mother cooked us breakfast, cooked us dinner, cleaned anything for us, laughed with us. Her life got destroyed when her son took his life. They had another brother, Richard, who was a plumber, and he worked in a deli. And the father put him in a life that he became a maid member, did a shooting, went to prison. I'm not sure if he's still there or if he's home. And this guy was such a nice kid. Why somebody's father would put them in a life and set them up to ruin their life is beyond me. If you love your kids, the last thing you want to do is you'd rather take your own life instead of seeing one of your kids go into the street. That's the reality of the street. And that's just the Gotti family, some of the Gotti family. They have a brother-in-law. His name's Peter. Louis Albano married Angel Gotti. 
Peter was accused of being a rat back in the 80s on a homicide. The Gotti family attacked him day and night, belittled him, chased him around. Yet Angel Gotti married Louis Albano, whose family were known to be drug dealers, alcoholics, and used drugs. This, now they're on the internet as if they're law-abiding citizens and they're trying to let people believe that this life is conducive to living a good life. But I just gave you some examples of the Gotti family that ruined their own family. Forget about the lives that, along with myself, ruined a lot of lives. So I don't sit here and say it was just the Gotti family. I did the same thing. I sold drugs, I shot people, I killed people, I robbed people. And the only difference is I woke up one day and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to change my life. What I did in the past, I can't take back. So there's a lot of people out there that say to me, well, uh, you know, I don't want to curse too much in here, but I'm going to say they say, fuck Johnny. You know, well, everything he did, and they're right. The people that don't want to forgive me, I guess they're never going to forgive me. The people that do accept me as, you know, what I did as being wrong, I try to give back. I come to schools, I go to juvenile centers, I go around the world, I talk to kids. I was in Switzerland, there was a, a gang fight there in Switzerland, which doesn't occur too often, a couple of kids got stabbed. So I went out to their school, I spoke to them. So I'm going to speak to you about the realities. The realities is this, uh, the street is a dead end. Where you guys are sitting in a college chair, don't screw that up. Because every day you're free, and I know you take it for granted because you didn't go through some of these things. But guys like me that were in and out of prisons for decades, we understand that life is precious. And I watched friends of mine die over and over again. <clears throat> I watched people go to jail that watched their family members while they were in jail die. Their children got killed in the street. And that's the reality of the street life. Unlike some of the things you may read about me in social media, because the Gotti family is in social media nonstop. They'll say I ratted. They'll say I cooperated. They'll say a lot of things. Okay. The street is treachery. If anybody here, and Chief Little, can look up my paperwork, I was never caught with a crime. Never. On this case that they gave me a life sentence for, a RICO case which a uh, RICO racketeering case with murders, drug dealing, everything is uh, supposed to be a life sentence. Never got, never got caught. Never got caught selling drugs. Never got caught buying drugs. Never got caught on videotapes, audio tapes, nothing. I got caught by everybody ratting on me. Those same mafia guys that say they don't rat, they all ratted on me. 54 guys took the stand against me. I went on a run. I went to Brazil. I left my children, I left my family, I left any financial things I had here, nightclubs, parking companies, I was worth millions, I owned homes everywhere, and when I went on the run, people in my family passed away, I lost all that. So when people say this guy's a rat or that guy's a rat or Linda Gotti's a rat or Peter Angel Gotti's brother-in-law is a rat, the street is about survival. So when these guys talk against me and these guys save their own lives, I don't look at them as rats. I look at people that are trying to save their own lives. 
You know, the reality is if somebody tells something different to you about the street, that it's expected. For me to say that I expected something different when these guys got in trouble and started talking against me, I'll be a fool. And I'd be a liar if I told you that I'm mad at these guys. These guys that are out there, made members, active associates that tried to kill me, they're actually my friends. They go around and they do talks with me. We talk to each other how we can influence kids not to follow our lives. We look at our lives as if we were going to war. We were the enemy with each other. We tried everything to kill each other, rob each other, and make money off each other. So, so this is really what goes on in the street. Anything different is just somebody lying to you. Well, the romance of movies like uh, The Bronx Tale, or Goodfellas, or The Godfather, or The Irishman that's coming out, we all love movies. Those are movies. They're exciting. It's romantic. But that's really not the truth of what really went on in the street. The truth that went on in the street is just what I told you. I'm a guy that's sitting there to tell you I never got caught with a crime. If anybody has family members that are attorneys, they can look that up. That's the reality. But yet, I was facing a life sentence because guys like Gotti Jr. went in with his attorney and made a deal in 2005 not to be charged with murders that he was involved with, shootings, and he sat and he, go, he went into a profit session which they call queen of the day. And that doesn't surprise me either that he did it because, again, this is what he was an active boss of the Gambino family at the time. His father was the king of the chair, went to prison, and Gotti Jr. took over and took the reins. And I guess he couldn't handle it, and he started cooperating in 2005. He tried to change that narrative over the years several times, and he tried to... Uh, insult people's intelligence. He became what he calls everybody a rat. There's nothing to change. He's got 302s out there. That same guy that's talking against guys like your professor, Chief Little, because he wears a uniform and he lives a life the right way, teaches you guys in schools and guys just like him, he calls him a rat. You guys know as well as I do. He's a gentleman, a man, He's caring, and this is the right path for people to live in, not the path we lived in. If Gotti Jr. would, for once, stand next to me and talk to people, I'd forgive him too. I can't forgive him when he keeps sending out a false message and he keeps pointing at other people, or his sister is on this, on this same path that these days. She's a girl that I guess never got attention because in her family, the father was very boisterous. He was... Whether you like him or not, he was in the media. He was well-known. Uh, guys in the mob didn't particularly like him as a leader, but the public uh, was influenced to believe he was something important in the mob and, and a good leader. Whether you believe that or don't is not the issue. The issue is uh, who he was and how popular he became, and he craved the attention. Vicky Gotti, his daughter, was a writer in the newspapers, she did TV shows. Her children did TV shows. So there was a different... She was very famous for the things that she did. She was a younger girl that was known as the Princess of the Dawn. But Angel Gotti never got to get that attention. So I guess she feels like she needs to be on a stage. So what we try to teach kids is don't bully people on social media, don't bully people in 
in public. She, I guess, had her insecurities, and it's the only time she ever could get attention at 60-something years old, is trying to bully people through social media. I'm not on social media for two, three years. This girl's on social media arguing with people under fake accounts of my name. It's not me. But what she's teaching young kids, 14, 15, 16, 12, 10, is to use social media as a bullying tool and to try to get to people's personalities and weaknesses. But the person that does this is the person that's really weak and the person that's craving attention and never got attention. So what I'm trying to say to everybody is the mob is nothing like you think it is. The street is nothing like you think it is. I was in prisons on and off for two decades. I've been stabbed up, I've been shot, I've been beat up, and I've been attacked every which way you can imagine. But if somebody's going to stand on their own two feet, and the things I did do for a living, I got to accept that. I always accept what I did, and I says, and I try to move forward, so you in the back don't live and do what I used to do. I said this once before in, a, in, a, in one of the other talks. I'm not sure if it was for the chief, but O.J. Simpson was a superstar, movie star, announcer, commercials, one of the greatest athletes ever. He sat in a college room and screwed up his life. So it could happen to anybody. So the reason why I sit here and, I, and, and we come in and people say, well, what are you doing at colleges talking? Why aren't you speaking to kids in juvenile centers and jails, which I do do. But we're human beings, and it's that one decision that can wreck your life. So it's very important not to make that one mistake because life could be beautiful or life could be miserable. you got to choose what you want. I'll never stand here in front of anybody and make excuses for what I did. There is no excuse for what I did, and I'll never try to justify what I did. So to move forward in life, you got to move forward by taking the burden on yourself and saying, I did this. It's not because I didn't have a perfect family situation. I don't think anybody has a perfect family situation. So there's no excuse. So anytime I hear somebody make excuses, well, he grew up with rich, or this guy grew up poor, or he didn't have parents, there's no excuse. Your excuse is if you want to take responsibility for yourself, you will. If you want to have a good future, you will. If you want to live a good life, you will. We can all find excuses why we do what we do. And really, I haven't found the excuse of why I did what I did. I still can't figure that out because sometimes I'm going to talk about some of the shootings I did. I just did a, a, a show in Dallas, an interview, and I spoke about shooting after shooting, baseball bat beating after baseball batting stabbings I did. And I left out a shooting I did at Kickers. It's on Metropolitan Avenue. It was a nightclub that we were trying to force bouncers to be unionized through us. I walked in, I shot four people. Mob-related case, mob-related uh, nightclub that I was pushing to answer to us. I walked into Flight 116, a drug dealer that kept robbing my drug spot, and I shot him in the head, TT. I walked into the swim club that was owned by Genevieve's captain, Fritzy, and I shot one of his bouncers because he was beating up Johnny Boy Ruggiero. He was known as John Gotti's cousin. I went to the Hamptons after about 12 bounces, beat up Johnny Coniglia's son and some of his friends in the 80s. I went with Johnny Ruggiero. He drove the car. 
These guys were monsters. I waited till he was driving home. I pulled him over as a detective, and I shot him twice. I can go on with these stories, like I said on this last show I did in Dallas. I believe, they used to nickname me the sheriff, I believe that I could tr can tr control whoever I wanted, when I wanted, by violence. Now, I got people that test my ego every day. They say I'm nobody, I was nobody. I'm a punk, I'm not tough, I'm full of shit. I got to smile and laugh because I got a second chance in life. Only a fool will go for that bait. Only a fool will let somebody get to their ego. Only a fool would buy in to say I got to prove that I can beat everybody, fight everybody, I'm the toughest guy in the world, and I can shoot everybody. Mike Tyson, I've used him plenty of times over. I got friends of mine that are professional fighters. Prince Badi is one of my good friends for years. He's out of Camden, New Jersey, great fighter. Bobby Ches, three-time world champ, great fighter, one of my best friends. And Mike Tyson, I was introduced to through Bobby Ches, was one of the greatest fighters ever. If he went around trying to fight every guy that talks about him, he wouldn't be able to go to sleep or eat. It's impossible. You gotta have enough pride in yourself, dignity, self-respect, which I never had before, that's why I did what I did for a living, to walk away, laugh, and say this isn't important, what everybody's saying, doing, or uh, threatening. You have to keep your egos in check, because every day, girls or guys are going to run into idiots on the street, and there's no consequences. While you're in the car, people hear about all the road rage and stupid fights. At the end of the day, if you walk away, and you just laugh it off, and you get mad for a second, but you don't react, and you go about your business, Trust me, the next person that runs into that same guy or girl that's looking for trouble, she or he will find the trouble she's looking for eventually. But don't let that person be you. Because if you let somebody control your destiny, you will fool. And the important part in life is you control your destiny. Nobody else controls your destiny. What you want in life, you know what you want. If you let me control what you want in life, you lose your life. And it's very important for everybody to understand that the mafia exists off of controlling people. And the mafia exists with me recruiting a young guy like him to come with me and convince him that he's going to make a lot of money with me and convince him to use a gun for me. Well, I sit in my fat chair at home like the Gottis did. They sat in a chair, slept, never used a gun like people think. That's just for the movies. I've asked Gotti Jr., not his sister. His sister wasn't there with us when we were selling drugs. His sister wasn't there when we were robbing people. His sister wasn't there when they were asking me to shoot people from. I want Gotti Jr. to sit and talk with me in front of anybody, and we'll debate, not shoot, exactly what I'm saying. I want him to say something different than I say. My friend John in the back, we're friends for a very long time. He's a gentleman. Goes to work every day. Runs a business. Those are what people want to see for a living. Not people like Gotti that's selling a story and a snow job to people about a life that doesn't exist. About a guy that actually, in his words, ratted, cooperated, 
His sister Angel calls everybody right. Her first cousin testified. Her brother-in-law testified. Her uncle went to jail for selling heroin, Jeannie Gotti, for 27 years. Her uncle, Vinnie Gotti, went to jail for five years for selling cocaine. Her nephew, her brother's other son, just went to jail for eight years for selling cocaine. No one's picking on that family. Nobody picked on me. We did this to ourselves. So the belief, when someone lies to that extent and believes their lies and tries to justify what they did, or me try to justify what I did, we can't. We can't possibly justify what we did. We lived a terrible life. And for you guys to understand that, you have to understand what you're doing is commendable. You talk about armed forces and people that join the Army, Marines, Navy. These guys, I, don't, I, I say this a lot, I don't think they're treated right when they come home. I think they should get more benefits. I think they should get more health benefits. I think they should get more uh, notoriety for what they did, the possibility of risking their lives for this country. So I think some things in this country are a little screwed up, and I think that maybe it's just uh, some of the media stuff that goes on uh, some of the kids that are naive to what's going on as they're growing up, and uh, they don't understand the, you know, because you're not seeing it. You're not in a room. You know, it's easy to say in a movie, but you're not in a room and you're not watching me when I shoot somebody. You're not watching the pain. And when I talk about this, I swear it's like I'm talking about another human being, not myself. I talk about this, and I can't even imagine what I used to do. And I don't even know what was in my head that I was so violent. I'm really not sure, because people ask me all the time, why were you so violent? Uh, I really don't have an answer for that. Why did I let people influence me to do so many shootings from killings, baseball bat beatings, extortions? I really don't have an answer for that. You know, I've been through therapy, uh, and uh, I learned to control myself. My impulses are the same. If somebody wanted to swing at me, hit me, threaten me, my impulse is to go after them, be aggressive. The difference is I don't, use, I don't react to my impulses anymore. I walk away. I might be mad, I won't lie. There's days when I'm in the house and I'll talk to my girlfriend and I'm like, I can't let something go. And I, I just work through it. I'll talk to my therapist and I keep it moving. And I say to myself, I like myself now. I'm proud of what I do. I like what I do. I like that I'm trying to save kids. There's uh, a kid that just got in touch with me. I'm going to the UK in two weeks. His name's Sam Greenfield. He was involved in a gang. His best friend was killed. His father contacted me. I didn't know him. And he asked desperately for help. He didn't know where to turn. Can somebody talk to my son? Will you speak to him? And I started to speak to him. We FaceTime. We stayed in touch with each other. I talked him out of killing the kid that killed his friend. This kid's a legitimate tough guy, not a guy just talking. I know when someone's just talking, will they really kill somebody? Would he really do it? Yes, he would have did it. 100% he would have did it. He became a fighter, became a champ, won all kinds of trophies, turned pro, and I'm going to see him next week personally for the first time. And he's advocating. He just got an award uh, not only for talking for kids, but he got an award for helping kids and troubled kids now. So we've been friends through social media, uh, Facebook in the past. When I shut that down, 
two years ago because of the harassment from the Gaudis. I, I talked to these guys direct uh, on telephones through FaceTime. And uh, I could say one thing. If I can't say I saved anybody else, I saved one person's life. And that's really where it's at. If you can save one person's life or you can save one person's life, you know, it's important. Look at my skin, right? I'm white. My best friend's black. Skin color means nothing. But in prison, it means everything. Everything's racist. This is 2019. Unfortunately, there's ignorant people towards if someone's fat, if someone wears glasses, if somebody's skin color is different, if someone has a menial job. But the person that is fat or menial job or was at one time a drug addict or any of those things, they have to like themselves. You've got to make yourself like yourself. Who you are, when you get up and look in the mirror, be proud of you. There was days when I'd get up in the mirror and I guess I wasn't proud of myself, and I really didn't care. When I went into a room, and there was 12 or 15 guns, and I had one, I actually went in, and guys that know me, guys that try to kill me, forget what Gotti say, there's guys that I actually shot that speak up for me. There's guys that I actually killed family members of that speak up for me. There's guys that were my enemies that tried to kill me. There were made guys that actually speak up for me because everybody understands what I'm trying to do. This ain't about me, it ain't about my old friends, it ain't about my old enemies that are my friends, it's about you guys. It's about getting you guys to understand that if you have younger brothers and sisters, or if you have people in your family that have been in trouble, try to help them to understand that if they want to enjoy their life and, and really enjoy it, they gotta like themselves. And if you don't like yourselves, find out why not. Try to get some help, why not? But if you believe in what people are selling on the street, and I'm talking about the street life, you're really naive, ignorant. And uh, I see so many kids out there and gang members, different gangs that know me. I, as a kid, my friend was, became president of the Hells Angels. I dated his sister. He passed away recently of cancer a couple years ago. And, you know, he was a wild guy. I knew the guy from his heart. He had a great heart. His sister was one of the nicest girls around. Uh, you know, unfortunately, good people make some mistakes and live a bad life. But the good thing about this world and the United States is you get a second chance. You can get a second chance to do the right thing. Even if you're in prison, prison you can do the right thing. Because there's young kids that go in there every day, and when I was in prison, I could advocate for them in prison to go back on the street, or you could talk to them about don't do this, don't follow this life. I'm fucked here. I'm stuck here. This is what I chose. But now that I have a voice and I became a pretty popular guy, uh, people send me mail from all over the world. People call me, write me. And, uh, you know, I kind of either take it and run with it and do things positive or I can ignore some people or live a selfish life. I choose it at this time of my life to try to do the right thing. Uh, yeah. What was it like growing up? Like with, your dad was a boxer, right? And you had, you had a pretty decent childhood, I guess. Um, but 
If you could bring us through that, that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, and what, what may have caused you to go in that direction? Well, I grew up uh, Jamaica Avenue on the border of East New York. I grew up in the 60s. Uh, a lot of racist, racist tension. Uh, but my father didn't raise me that way, so maybe I thought different because of the way he raised me. Five years old, my friend was black, Kevin Johnson. When they first started busting people in, both of us looked at each other like, now what do we do? Because everybody started fighting with each other in school. Uh, my dad made me a boxer since I'm three years old. There's pictures out there of me and my brother playing around with gloves on. And I was in gyms my whole life. Uh, with uh, Back then, it was the big boss of the neighborhood was Andy Ruggiano, who Fat Andy, they call him. His sons... Albert was my baseball coach, Anthony, gentleman, and uh, really nice people. The father was what you would call a gangster's gangster. He was quiet. He was a big money earner. He had a big following. And I looked up to that stuff because that's where I grew up. And again, he was one of the nicest guys around. I can't say he wasn't. And his sons were really great guys. Not arrogant. Not the guys that felt entitled and that they can push you around because their father was who he was. He was a major boss. He was straightened out by Albert Anastasia, if anybody knows who that is, Murder Incorporated. So I was exposed to this stuff because of where I grew up. And I didn't want to be a Michael Jordan. I wanted to be a fat Andy Ruggiano. I wanted to be that gangster. Unfortunately, I was a great ball player. I got a full-ride scholarship in baseball. I was a boxer. I was in the gym, Lost Battalion Hall, with Jerry Cooney and different guys like Albert Ruggiano, and, uh, David Sears, Billy Estrema, some top fighters. But anything I did, no excuses for it. I had some injuries, and I just kept moving towards the street because of the exposure. I didn't come from a rich family. I came from a poor family. No excuse again. If I wanted to make money, I had newspaper routes. I didn't have to sell drugs. I chose to sell drugs. I chose to take the quick route. My dad, I love my father. I don't make any excuses. He did the best he could for me. My mom did the best she could for me. And again, you can make excuses, perfect environment, not. Uh, my family life, I guess, was pretty average. We all don't have perfect lives. I don't know too many people that do, and the people that do, they're fortunate to, because it really isn't. The average person, I don't think, has that perfect life. Um, I just think that uh, the choices we make is from our own, whatever's going on mentally, and whatever position we think we're in, uh, frustration. You think, you know, Mitch, you work out regularly. You're into martial arts. My friend John in the back is into martial arts. My other friends were boxers. The way we work out physically, we got to work out mentally. To be physically strong, you have to be mentally strong. To be mentally strong, you need to be educated. You need to read. You need to educate yourself, whether it's watching documentaries, whether it's... But every day that you move forward should be to better yourself, something to make you positive. I talk about racism a lot because I do a lot of things with inner in in inner city kids. I'm doing something in Brownsville pretty soon with another gentleman, Danny, that uh, son went to prison. Danny's a great guy, and he asked me to talk to some kids. And the reason why I talk to inner city kids is not because of color. It's because of the situation. A lot of these kids like me grew up with no money. 
And the excuse of, well, we have no money and we take a shortcut is not an excuse. We need to go and talk to these kids and tell them, you're as good as me, better than me, and you can be better than me the more you educate yourself. If you can't, everybody can't be Michael Jordan, Mike, T Mike Tyson, Bobby Chez, Prince Badi, but you can be you. You can be my friend John. You can be somebody that's working and somebody that's moving forward. Even though you might not get there as fast as you want, you'll get there. But our environment is important. There's a guy, Lou Romano, that writes books. He wrote a book uh, about, uh, it's not a true story. He wrote a book about, Alba I'm Albanian. He wrote a book about Albanian mafia and the Italian mafia. And he wrote a book about zip codes, meaning where you grew up is how you're going to be raised. In one aspect of that, he's right. Where you grew up is going to influence you how you're going to be raised. But that doesn't mean you can't change your zip code. So if you grow up in East New York, Brownsville, where I'm going to do my next talk, or in my neighborhood, where we nicknamed it Death Haven, Jamaica Avenue, my zip code was 11421 as a kid. But I could have made that zip code Beverly Hills if I wanted to. All I had to do was go to school get educated, become an engineer, become an attorney, become something positive. Instead, I made my zip code uh, McKeon Prison, upstate, near Buffalo. I stayed there for years. I made my zip code in Brazil. I went on the run. I spent two and a half years in those penitentiaries. I made my zip code in Camden. I spent three bids in those jails. I probably was in 40 different prisons, so I had about 40 different zip codes in prison instead of making my zip code, like I said, somewhere positive. I could have went to the academy and became an officer under Mitch, Chief Little. I chose, only I chose to go out and do what I did. I'm not going to ever be like Gotti and blaming everybody for my life. When he stands here and takes the blame for his uncle going to prison because his father put him in a life, that he felt he needed to be loyal to his father, to his brother. When you take blame for yourself and stand on your own two feet, and Gotti becomes a gentleman and says, yes, I cooperated, yes, I ratted, yes, I didn't want this life anymore, and yes, I want to help you talk to kids, I'll respect them. Pete Gotti, I always liked, like I said, that man was a sanitation worker had a great pension, had a great family. He had a beautiful daughter. He lost it all to this life. That's the small print that nobody sees. So the belief, I'll say it again, of me not liking the Gotti family, that's not true. That's what people in the media, that's what Angel Gotti and John Gotti Jr. wants people to believe. Vinny Gotti, their uncle, the drug dealer, coke dealer, raped, killed Robin Vitula. Robin's daughter stays in touch with me. He's free. He chose to take her life. He chose to be a drug dealer. The FBI one day didn't just wake up and say, I'm going to go after Johnny A. Light. I'm going to lock him up today for drugs and everything, for shootings, because they just didn't like me today. That's laughable for anybody to buy into that. That's Gotti's tune every day in the media. The government hates the Gotti family. The Gotti family sells newspapers. Let me tell you something. Gotti's family might sell newspapers. They don't sell movies. They did a movie. It was a 
the worst movie ever. They did about 300,000 people. I do one video in Dallas, and I have about a million views on a lecture. You know why? I don't bullshit anybody. I don't say I was the greatest guy in the world. I just tell you I was one of the worst at one time. And I want that to change, so I want you guys, or you, because you look a pretty smart kid, and I keep looking at you, that you deserve a good life. You deserve to be somebody that's running a company. You deserve to work with my friend John. This is the important thing. You got to know that you deserve to have a good future, regardless what's going on in your life somewhere else. And for you guys to understand that, you got to really, really understand hard work gets you where you want to go. In my life, I took shortcuts and I killed, like I said, and I hurt people because I didn't respect myself, obviously. I didn't like myself, obviously. So every time I see a kid, it could be you, when someone's bothering you, hit him. You're only hurt, hitting yourself at the same time. You're only hurting yourself. You only, if you want to fight, any of you guys want to fight, every time I hear somebody talking about tough guys, well, go go in the, go in the gym, get in the ring every day. You can fight all day, every day. There's plenty of tough guys in those rings, and they'll fight. And you can fight every day until you're the greatest fight in the world or you had enough of getting beat up and beating people up. But doing it on the street, you're not winning no trophies. So hopefully everybody uh, is, uh, I really wishes all a great future, a great life, and uh, get what you deserve in life, and really enjoy life. Don't take it for granted. Enjoy your beach. Enjoy food. Enjoy girlfriend, boyfriends. Enjoy the shows, Christmas, all the things that people are in jail never going to see, people that lost their lives either by my hand or other people's hands, and those guys in prison, there's tons of them that people don't know about that stay in touch with me and send me messages and ask me to keep doing what I'm doing. People that uh, believe in God, people that don't believe in God, whether you're religious or not, uh, you know, I, I believe in God, I believe in faith, I believe I got a second chance because God knows in my heart I want to see you, you guys, you kids, and adults, whoever, do the right thing. Anthony Ruggiano is Fat Andy's son who changed his life. He goes around and he talks to kids, ex-drug addicts, uh, people that are in trouble, and he changes his life and he does something positive. Robert Ingalls was similar to me. His background, he was older than me. He did the same thing as me. He became a Christian, and he lives by it. For 20-something years now, he goes around and he helps kids, and he goes around and he helps adults, and he goes around and he speaks at different uh, sermons. This is positive behavior. There's guys that try to kill me that I'm friends with that do the same. You know, life's about giving back, and for, for sure, the guys I just mentioned and myself, we need to give back a lot more than everybody else did because of our past. So I appreciate you guys' time. If anybody's got any questions, just let me know. If you want to be curious about anything, let me know. John, what was you, the last time you spoke, you talked about the Brazilian prison and how it compared to the prisons in the United States. You were there for, what, two years? Yeah, I was in uh, three different prisons in Brazil. Uh, again, Gotti tried to play those prisons down. There was just uh, an, an article that just came out. 54 guys got killed this year in uh, one riot in the prisons that we were at. Uh, I was in three different prisons there. You, it, half the building would be a catwalk and would rain inside. Um, I'm going to the UK 
to talk to some kids and I'm signing a, uh, another movie deal. I did something with Netflix. It'll be out in January and February. I did a series. I was just in GQ that I passed around that magazine. Uh, my friend uh, Jason Donegan is a psychic. They've been friends forever, and I got involved with projects with him. So I'm going to the UK for some of these things, signing some deals, and I'm talking to some kids. But one of the other things I'm looking forward to the UK trip is these guys were in prison with me in Brazil. There was a, a bunch of us around the world that were in those prisons, and we survived off each other, and we would never survive those jails. And we, we have a reunion in the UK when I go next week. So I'm really looking forward to seeing some of these guys. Uh, there was a couple of guys from Angolia, Africa. I've been in Africa a couple times, and we stay in touch. There's guys in Denmark that were in prison with me. I stay in touch. Spain, Turkey. And I've been at all these places visiting guys that we together, collectively, helped each other survive these prisons. These prisons aren't like the United States prisons. Some of the United States prisons, when they're real bad, three guys get killed for most of the year in prison. In Brazil, 16, 58, 54, there was a state senator in Brazil, just let, uh, a newspaper article came out about two months ago, saying he'd rather die than spend one day in the prison I was in. Um, the reality of how I lived was terrible. And uh, surviving is, you know, something that, you know, you suffer. When people say you don't suffer and there's... You know, you see guys talking about, I don't cry. They're full of shit. They're lying to you. They cried. I cried. You're suffering, and it's not even fear for your life. It's not fear because you're lonely. You're crying because you know you just threw your life away. You're crying because you know my uncle was like my father died while I was in jail. You cry because you're not there when your kids are going to the hospital or your mother's in the hospital. There's a lot of reasons. But those jails that confinement isn't normal. Put yourself, I tell everybody, this is very simple, and, I, and you can take your phone with you, you can bring a TV with you, and lock yourself in the bathroom, just for three days. I bet you just can't do it for a day. But you have the comfort of your own bathroom, and you can't leave. Do yourself a favor and try it. Because I spent years in those solitary confinement cells. And other guys like me, and there's guys that are never leaving those jails that stay in touch with me. And they tell me to keep my movement going with kids from all over the street because they wish they could do it. So it's not what everybody thinks. I got friends that were serious murderers, serious killers, serious gangsters, not just guys that were mafia guys. I've got, I know every crew, every gang, Latin Kings, Bloods, Crips. I know guys from all over. The Disciples in Chicago, I was with one of the bosses for a long time that knows me very well. Motorcycle gangs, I could go on. Nietas, I know them all. Cartel in Colombia, I was with. So I lived in Colombia. I lived all over the world. I was in a run in about 20 different countries. I know every aspect of the life of the street better than anybody. And uh, there's nothing but suffering waiting for you if you go that route. And if he's got family members or kids, like I said, or friends, take the time and talk to them. So you're talking about the relationship too. Like everybody believes that there's a, an extreme loyalty with the family and, and anybody that works with the family. And it, you said that it was more of just a, a partnership or a working relationship. And that is that accurate? That it was it was more of just their associates, not as much. 
Well, you, you don't have, you, you know, the mob world or the street world, your friendships are based on falsity. It's based on power and money. It's not based on true friendship. Me and John are true friends. So our friendship's based on just friendship. We go out together, we laugh together, we go to dinner together. We don't base our friendship in we're going to make money tomorrow or not. In the mob, everybody's expendable. When you get caught, maybe we're going to kill you. If we fail, you're going to expose us. If you don't make us any money, and we make $2 million this year, and you are involved with us, eh, we'll just get rid of him. He doesn't make us money anyway, so we kill him. If we feel he's a danger and he's uh, going to another crew, another side, we may kill him. So there is no friendship. There's, there's such treachery in the street that our, our friendship's just based off of financial need, existence, and if they could bring something to the table with power. When your existence ends, Frankie DeChico, if you guys are so young, you ain't going to know who that is, but in history, he was blown up in a car. He was Gotti's underboss at the time. When he got blown up, exactly what happened. He got blown up. He got blown up. No one cared. Nobody revenged him. No one cared where he was. No one cared that he died. It's just next guy's coming in and take his place. When my friend Bobby Borriello got killed in front of his house, he got shot ten times in front of his son, and his son actually talks to Gotti Jr., why? Because he doesn't really understand the life. He's only hearing the side from Gotti Jr. You loved his father so much, but you never revenged who killed him. You're a gangster. Why didn't you put a gun in your hand and kill him? When Johnson from Philadelphia beat Gotti Sr. in prison, Gotti Sr. is not a, a, you know, he's not Superman. He's an older guy. Disrespected Johnson, and Johnson whooped him all over prison. Right? All right, so Gotti lost the fight. No big deal. Right? He's an older guy. The other guy's a big, strong guy. Uh, he made a racial remark towards Johnson, who was black. Johnson beat him up bad. But he came out of prison three, four years later. Where was his son? Now, this is his son, Gotti Jr., right? Acting boss. Why didn't you kill the guy? Why didn't you have the guy hurt? Because you didn't care. Because your father couldn't make you money anymore. He's in prison. Simple as that. That's the reality of jail, prison, and the life of crime. No one gives a shit unless you can do something for them. There is no real true friendship. And when you get in trouble, they do exactly what they all did to me. They told on me. Unlike the version that you'll hear in the media. Did I later on come in? Yes, I did. And I've said, yes, I did plenty of times on my last video, and everybody's talking that I say, yes, I did. Did I shoot him? Yes, I did. Did I kill him? Yes, I did. Did I hurt this guy? Yes, I did. Did I take all my orders from the Gaudis? Yes, I did. The Gaudis will tell you it's not true, right? And I'm talking about John Gotti Jr. But yet, if you listen to the underboss, Sammy Gravano talk, he'll tell you I was the Gaudis enforcer, hitman, street guy, I did all their work. The Gotti's didn't do it. I did it. Ronnie Juan on Truccio. Angel Gotti does a lot of talking for him. But yet he did an opening statement in his court 2006, and 14 or 12 or 14 times he said Gotti Jr. was my partner in drugs. You're a captain of the Gambino family. Why would you say that? 
or you just want to pick and choose what they say. Mikey Scars DiLeonardo, another captain in the Gambino family, John Gotti Jr.'s right-hand man, from his words, Mikey Scars says, I'm the Gotti's guy. I'm the guy who was setting up juries so Gotti Sr. and his brother Jeannie could beat court cases. I was involved in that. I was involved when they were plotting to kill people, hurt people. And there's testimony and testimony after every wise guy saying the same about me. So the reality of the life is, is just treachery. That's what this world's about, the mob world. You want to make a real friend? Join a golf team, bowling team, grow up the kids you grew up with, stay with them. But those are your real friends. There's no treachery. You get in the car. I don't know how many friends you got. You get in the car. You go to school. You don't got to worry about them shooting you in the back of the head. When I get in the car, I got to worry about everybody shooting me in the back of the head. That's no way to live. I walk in my house. I open the lights. I got to walk from room to room to make sure nobody's in the house waiting to shoot me. Who wants to live like this? When I'm walking with my girlfriend and I'm walking in the street, I got to pay attention. Who's in the restaurant? Who's down the block? If that car was there when I came, is that car later? Why are two people sitting in that car across the street? I live that day in and day out. Till I die, that's how I'm going to have to live. That isn't living. When I put my head on the pillow, I don't get to go to sleep so easily like everybody else. Not after all the people I shot, killed, and beat. And how many people still want to shoot, beat, and kill me? Plenty. I know one thing. The people that are talking on the Internet or Facebook and do all that yapping, they're not the ones that are going to try to kill me. It's the ones that are quiet, that know better, that don't say anything. Those are the serious ones. The guys that talk on these internets like girls or the girls that talk that are older and they play with the internet, they should be ashamed of themselves. And Googling and texting and whatever they do on social media. You know what? Social media, most girls and women, they're on social media to have fun, talk to each other's friends, talk across country. Uh, show their bodies or whatever they're doing for, you know, in a positive way I'm talking about when they're on the beaches or whatever. And then you have women like Angel Gotti, who's 60-something years old, that's not showing her body, but showing her mouth, teaching kids like a child how she runs around with no class so low to be doing what you're doing. Don't you see that kids are going to follow this? She's doing a video the other day with her ex-husband with a baby laying on the floor like a child. That jealous, that envious, that you got to mention my name constantly. I'm not on social media. I'm not on social media. I don't need that. All I want to do is something positive and reach you guys. So the mob world, back to what it is, is just treachery. There's no real friendships. And it's dangerous. And there's nothing in the street but the street. Meaning, there's nothing there but trouble. If you want to have a good life, it's got to be in a positive way. And if you're a tough guy or a tough kid and you know you are, why do you need to show somebody else? Why are you so insecure that you've got to prove that you're tough to somebody? You shouldn't have to. If you're secure with yourself, you're not going to have to. And if you really aren't, he's a fighter, his brothers are fighters, and not because he's in the room, and not because his brother is my friend, 
and became my friend. I didn't know him prior. They are first-class gentlemen, all of them. And the difference is they're polite, they're tough, and they act like men. There is no, <coughs> excuse me, no, no insecurity in their family. And so somebody raised them right. Me? I'm the first guy to tell you. Obviously, I had to be insecure when I was younger because I was too violent. What was I trying to prove? I don't know. And sometimes, I, every time I go back, like I said, it's like I'm talking about somebody else because I was really violent, probably one of the most violent guys in the mob world that you'll know. Not proud of it. And uh, this is my, to myself, this is my penance to try to keep saving people's lives like Sam Greenfield in the U.K., Anybody else? Any questions? We just got a few minutes, so if any questions, um, when when I came back when I was in Brazil, I got two of my associates that were involved came and brought me paperwork on Gotti Jr. that he was actually cooperating in 2005. I was in the penitentiaries in Brazil. When they brought me back in 2007, I talked to my lawyers and I got the list of guys like. Ronnie won on Trucchio, was a captain of Gambino family. They were all cooperating against me. Uh, they went to trial. Ronnie won on did, just like John Gotti Jr., but they were feeding the government information against me. Ronnie won on in an opening statement said if he wasn't nice to Johnny A. Light, he'd kill me like everybody else. Uh, he ratted on another banana captain, Vinnie Sara, in that statement, blamed him for things. He admitted to the existence of the mafia. He existed to position in the mafia. These are all rat things to do. Uh, a list of Gotti's guys were all cooperating against me. And when I got that information, I told the government, yeah, I'm done. The difference between me and them still is, I came forward straight out. I didn't hide. I didn't go in the back room. I told everybody, oh, now I am going to cooperate. I'm finished in the life I believed in. You guys are double standards giving me up at the same time, because believe it or not, I was naive enough to believe in the life, to go on the run, to leave my family, to leave my money, not to give these guys up, my enemies, and they were all giving me up, friends and enemies, and I had enough. And then I came forward, I says, okay, what's my deal? <clears throat> now, I'm supposed to get a life sentence, but going to Brazil, and I've never really gotten into this actually anywhere, going to Brazil is extradition law. The most I can get is 30 years. So coming back to the United States, I was facing 30 years, which I could get 26. It's extradition law, tr transfer treaty. They can't give me the death penalty if they were thinking about it. So I was facing to do 26 years. I says, okay, what's your deal for me? Will you testify against Gotti in his next trial? 100%. He's a rat. He was feeding information, just like, and I brought this up on other shows, just like other bosses, just like him. Joe Messina, Banana Family, Rat, War Wire, Al Diarco, Lucchese Family, Rat, War Wire, Ralph Natale, Philadelphia, Rat, they all testified. Whitey Bulger, Boston, rat. Chucky Porter, Pittsburgh, rat. So the existence of these kids that they con, all their bosses are rat. So who am I being loyal to? The guys that are giving me up? The guys that's supposed to be telling me what to do? The guys I'm doing the killing and shooting for after I do it? They're going in the back room and meeting the government? And they all got excuses why they're doing it. So what I'm trying to say is to everybody, to him or him or him, don't be stupid like I was. Don't believe in what I thought was the existence of loyalty. It took me a lot of years to do that. Imagine leaving your family, your children, your money, 
your mom, your dad, your grandparents, and not ratting on your enemies, and your enemies and friends are giving you up while you're gone. So I learned real quick that I was a fool, and uh, it gave me a second chance at life, and now I took it. And I don't run from it. I live in my neighborhood still. And I don't have any problems with doing what I did. And I think that uh, I was just naive prior to that. I believed in these guys, and I was a fool. At the same time, they're trying to take my life. Anybody else? So my cousin goes to Huntington High School. It's on Long Island. Yeah. And she always tells me about the, one of the gangs there. I can't remember. MS-13s? Yeah, because there's like, uh, she tells me like some of them are out of school and around and stuff, so you should definitely go talk there. <laughs> because yeah. she's not in there, but she's always like, oh, she's always like, MS-13 is like, Everywhere they shot someone at the Burger King the other day, and I'm like, that's that's nice. These guys, a lot of those guys from Salvador, MS-13s, uh, MEs, Mexican Mafia, Texas Syndicate. But the MS-13s, I know some of the guys. I was with some of the bosses. Uh, one of them was a personal friend of mine. It was a young guy that changed his life. I just went to see him in another state. I won't say where because he's in hiding, uh, and uh, people want to kill him. But he changed his life. And the problem is, in every heritage, in every area, in every gang, everybody sells the same thing. But if anybody really does research and sees what goes on, really, in these, in these, in these worlds, in this type of world, and if you see some real tough, and you guys, you know, there's names, I can throw names like crazy, in prison, serious killers that stay in touch with me from all these different gangs and ask me, Aryan Brothers is a very uh, vicious uh, jail, institutionalized uh, mafia that's run within the prison system. And a lot of those guys still stay in touch with me uh, that aren't active, that were active, that were the bosses on those, on those uh, with the ABs on those commissions of those uh, gangs. So I know them all. From any, you can name any gang like you just did, and I do know them because the street is a small world, and we reach out to each other, mafia to Latin kings, Latin kings to the hell's end. We all reach out to each other somehow when there's different business dealings, and we all get to know most of each other if you're a really active guy on the street. So you take a guy again, and I'm gonna, go, and I'm gonna have to, I'm married to that gaudy name whether I like it or not, and whether they like it or not. The difference is he could stand here and be a positive influence with me, but they weren't active like me. I was in every country. They never left the country. I was active. I knew every gang, leaders of every gang. They weren't because they weren't actually in the dirt. They weren't in the street in the grind like I was. They sat behind a nice chair asking guys like me to do the work. So the history of what you're saying, you're right. And, and unfortunately, some young kids that come from hard lives. I come from Albania. My family does. That's their background where there's no money. A lot of these guys from Mexico or Salvador have no money. So they think this is the only way out for them. And unfortunately, they're wrong. And if they can get another chance, like my friend did, some of them will take it. And my friend actually from MS-13s is living a good life now. Went back to school, graduated college, got a great job. He did the right thing with his life. So there are guys out there that do the right thing after they get another chance. Anybody else? I was raised around the mafia, like the chief said, 
what was my background? My background, unfortunately, was around the Ruggiano family, who was the boss in my neighborhood, and a uh, quiet guy. So not only was he a, a tough guy and a nice guy, he was so quiet, and I looked at him and I said, wow, this, but later on I started getting, seeing the arrogance of other mobsters. And, you know, guys like, and I talk about the Gambino family themselves, they're gentlemen, they're actually quiet guys. I'm not advocating for that life, but there are guys in every form of life that are nice guys. I'm not, I can't tell adults what to do with their life. I can tell you guys, don't waste your lives. But I grew up around this, so I, I started at a young age exposed to it, and I was always around it. My barber was my father's friend, he was a gangster. My little girlfriend, Louise's father, was a made guy. I was 10 years old, my little, you know, childhood sweetheart, whatever you want to call, holding hands. Her father was a gangster. Around the corner from the deli I worked, that was his brother. He ran the sports and bookmaking that I ran slips from. Gangster. I was exposed to it. It's still not an excuse, but I was exposed to it. She said somebody out there, I see this one. Um, did you feel different when your children were born? <laughs> you know, when you're living a single life and without kids, your only concern is your own life. And then you have a responsibility to your own children. And are you going to teach your kids this is okay? Or are you going to teach them this is wrong? So my exposure to my life unfortunately affected all my family. And it affected my children. And uh, my two sons, they, they do a great job with their lives. I'm proud of them. They go to school. They go to work. Um, really good kids. Don't get in trouble. I don't want them involved in my life in any which way, even when someone talks against me. I tell them all the time, tell them to go tell my father. It's not our business. We're regular kids. My daughter's doing well for herself now, and I have one son I have some issues with. You know, it's my son. I love him. I'm proud of him, but he's got some issues, and, you know, this life makes me uh, have to work through those issues. But as a father, you look at life different, right, and just what you're saying. I look at you guys, and I, and I say every day, I just want to, not just because of my kids, I say to every mob guy, I said this, I think the last time, Mitch, I was at one of your classes, mob guy, ball player, judge, political people, uh, movie stars, name one person, any of you guys can name one person in any of those fields that want their kids on the street dealing drugs or shooting guns or killing anybody. I don't know an imbecile that would say yes, they do. You can go through all those jails, prison after prison, and ask them, do they like what I'm doing? If they say they don't, I want to see that same guy put his kid in the street, put a gun in his hand, put drugs in his hand, tell him to go out there. Because if you don't love your own kid and you're so selfish, that child of theirs should run far away from them. Because for me... It would make me more happy for the chief to tell me he became a doctor, you became a lawyer, you became an engineer, you became a truck driver, anything that is a positive life. But if I hear, because I keep looking at you because you remind me of somebody, by the way. So I keep looking at you. If I hear he's doing bad, I, you know, even I don't know him, I, don't want, I want to see you enjoy your lives because I know the suffering that I have. And I know some of the suffering, some of my friends' kids. There's a guy, he killed somebody, 
He was my childhood friend, too, at one time. Not close, but childhood friend. He killed somebody at a very young age. I killed his brother-in-law. I killed his best friend. I ordered his brother-in-law dead. I killed his best friend. I killed his best friend's brother-in-law. And I shot his brother in the head. And we're friends. And he pushes me to advocate. He's one of the biggest people that helped me get through my life. And people say, how is that possible? Because they try to kill me, too. And they understand what I understand. We've completely fucked up our lives. And you know the beautiful part about that guy? His kids are doing fantastic. One's going to be a doctor. One's going to be a lawyer. He's fortunate enough that he changed his life. He got away from the street. He wasn't Italian. He was Irish. Got away from the street and became a positive influence to guys like his kids and guys like me, an adult, that he helped me to do what I'm doing now. So he needs, he's, he could be really proud of himself to take his life from when he was 15 or 16 killing somebody to actually influence me enough to go around now and talk. Because when I first came home, I went to see him and we, I cried about what I did to his family. And he stood by me. He stood by me and said, you can change and you can save some kids. That's all I want from you. He says, if you can do that, I can forgive you. And I've done it. So... It's not as simple as people think that, you know, it's just cut and dry. It's not. There's so much pain that comes in with this. And there's so many people. I took a guy's life, and his daughter stays in touch with me. She became, she knows my kids. And, she, you know, over the years, when she had trouble, and she had some trouble over the last five years, you know who she called? Me. She was stuck at somebody's house. They threatened her, and she called me. She didn't call somebody else. She didn't call her uncle. She called me. So life's full circle, right? So, I, you know, I try to help her, I try to save her, I try to give her good influence. And unfortunately, I did what I did. Now, don't get me wrong, all these people I'm talking about were gangsters, too. They took lives also. They tried to kill me also. So, we were at war, all of us. There's no excuse, though, for what I did. I'm not making an excuse. I never make an excuse for what I used to do. All I can tell you is, is uh, I'm fortunate to get the second chance, and I'm going to take it and, and, and do something useful with it. Somebody else raised their hand. I don't know who that was. We good? Thanks, John. We have to get to the next class, huh? So, thank you very much. Thanks, guys.